This is the pre-show. Now the show is starting. What wrong one? <laughs> nope. Hang on. Sh show hasn't started yet. I promise you the show hasn't started. I I'll tell you when the show has started. When you hear applause. <laughs> now. Now I know our show has started. Late breaking news. Late breaking news. Mike Elk over at Payday Report is now reporting that Christian Smalls has won. Payday Report says that with nearly 2,000 votes counted in the Amazon Union election out on Staten Island, they are now projecting an historic win for the Amazon Labor Union. Mike Elk over at Payday Report is saying right now that with over 2,000 votes cast, the union, the Amazon Labor Union, holds a, quote, likely insurmountable lead of 311 votes. The union currently is leading 1,200 to 889 in the vote count. That comes to us from Mike Elk over at Payday Report. It's looking like Amazon will have its first union shop out in Staten Island, New York. Meanwhile, Reuters has some expected news coming out of Bessemer, Alabama. The tally in Alabama seems to indicate that Amazon workers have narrowly rejected unionizing. The vote seems to be 53% of the Amazon workers in Bessemer voting against the union. We are told that there was low voter turnout, ballots will be challenged, and the vote was closer than last year's, where workers rejected the union by a two to one margin. So it looks like Amazon wins in Bessemer, loses in Staten Island. And we will be talking about this a little later on in the show. Welcome to the mop up for March 31st. 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 55 degrees and partly cloudy. China and the European Union will be holding their summit in Brussels on Friday. The European Union and Joe Biden were planning to come down hard on authoritarian regimes, including China. But then war in Ukraine broke out. China is reportedly surprised by how the EU has solidified around NATO and Joe Biden, including right-wing governments like Turkey, Hungary, and Poland. What stance will the EU and Joe Biden now take with China as they try to prevent China from assisting Vladimir Putin's invasion of Iraq? Will Biden and the EU look the other way when it comes to China in order to court China's support. For more on this, we go to England, where Grace Jackson is standing by. She is the host of Literary Hangover, as well as an expert on China. Thank you for coming back, Grace Jackson. Thanks for having me back, David. Um, it was it was great fun last week, so I thought I would pick up kind of where we left off, and you've given a good intro for this week as well, uh, talking about China and what China's been up to this week and this summit 
Um, it's actually going to be a virtual summit over a video conference tomorrow um, between Europe, the EU, um, and China. Uh, and so I'm going to have to resist the British urge to talk about the weather for 15 straight minutes and actually talk about China. Okay. Um, I want to sort of begin by talking about how China and Russia these days, especially since uh, the invasion of Ukraine, increasingly are being conflated in people's minds. And there's a reason for this. Um, they're being talked about in the same way by our leaders, uh, by especially, you know, Biden. Um, and to a lesser extent, but an increasing extent in Europe as well. And I think this is, you know, not only misguided, but potentially dangerous. Um, I think there's generally quite a low level of awareness about China uh, in the West. And that's been borne out today. There was just a, a paper released um, by a higher education uh, kind of research group here in the UK talking about the woeful state of what they call China literacy in the UK, at least. Um, you know, you can go through school in the UK and never learn a thing about China hmm. uh, by the time you're 18. And there's very little in the way of higher education on China. But that's kind of a separate issue, but it, it's somewhat related. It's, it's contextual. Um, Surprising that it sounds like the United States, but go ahead. Well, I, I think it's probably a bit worse in the United States. Um, but, you know, I think w when you think about the way China and the US understand each other, I think you could argue that people in China have just a slightly more sophisticated understanding of the US system than vice versa. Right. 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 Um, although I think there are a lot of there's a lot of kind of mutual um, misconceptions uh, on both sides. Right. But back to this summit uh, in Europe tomorrow. So this is uh, probably going to be uh, a wave or it was originally seen as a way for Europe, Europe to diffuse tensions around the war in Ukraine with China. Um, I think they're also going to sort of desperately try to get China to agree to help them end the war and condemn Russia, which we talked about last week. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's very unlikely. Um, China really doesn't want to talk about the war. It's probably going to try and focus on other issues. Um, and Europe is probably going to threaten China with sanctions of its own if it provides any military support to Russia or helps Russia evade sanctions. Hmm. Um, we should say that China's mostly been sanctions compliant, and um, I would expect it to stay that way. You On mean it, it has not been trading with Russia? It's, it's Well, it's just it's stayed within the constraints of the of the sanctions there is trade with russia okay. um but yeah so on the eu china relationship um interestingly two things happened in 2020 that are important here firstly china overtook the us to become the eu's largest trading partner in goods in 2020 at the same time in 2020 the relationship between China and the EU began to deteriorate. There was this comprehensive agreement on investment, which was a huge trade deal that fell through 
uh, between China and the EU after the Europeans got cold feet around human rights abuses, um, the issue of Xinjiang and the Uyghurs. And so that fell through. And it's sort of been on the on the downslide since then. Um, <clears throat> and obviously the situation in Ukraine makes it way worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and last month, uh, the Ursula von der Leyen, uh, von der Leyen, the commission president, the EU commission president, she said that um, Vladimir Putin and China, when they when they met and they released that manifesto on February the fourth, where they claimed to have no limits to their relationship, she called this a revisionist manifesto to review the world order, um, saying that Russia and China are becoming more and more assertive and willing to restore the old empires that they have been in the past. And that was really interesting to hear. Um, And I've seen a lot of talk this week about this idea of the emperor and the czar, you know, um, the Chinese and Russian empires somehow being reconstituted uh, this year. And it's, it's interesting because while that, there may be some truth to that perhaps, but, at that point, we were also an empire. Don't forget that was right. a the age of of great empires right. uh, in the nineteenth century that we're talking about. So, well, she, where does that leave it, us now? She is there for life, which is a new phenomenon in China, and it looks like Putin is there for life, which is a somewhat new phenomenon for modern day Russia. Right. And I, uh, there's going to be a lot of attention on this in November this year at the 20th uh, National Congress of China in, in China when there's expected to be another term announced for Xi Jinping. Um, and I think that if so, what I w- really wanted to talk about right. in reference to this EU summit is this idea of uh, authoritarianism versus democracy as the organizing principle of right. American foreign policy right now. It's it's being talked about as the Biden doctrine. And I think if there's anywhere where authoritarianism versus democracy is kind of an, a helpful way to think about things, it's in terms of term limits on leaders. When you get beyond that, the distinction actually starts to break down a little bit. And I want to argue that it's not a good organizing principle and it's not going to lead to good foreign policy for anyone um leaving aside that this idea of democracy promotion for all of us who remember it um (laughs) has uncomfortable echoes of of the sort of nation building jingoism that that drove the iraq war uh freedom fries and all of that beyond all of that there is this problem with authoritarianism versus democracy because these are they don't these terms don't really describe ideologies right that autocracy and authoritarianism it's not an ideology it's a means of control and they're not actually opposites democracies can have authoritarian features um and vice versa actually and of course we partner with plenty of authoritarian regimes um the us does the uk does uh and so i i I'm uncomfortable with these terms because they're not very precise. They're very fuzzy. And moreover, Russia and China are not the same. They they don't have the same kinds of authoritarian systems. <clears throat> I don't know much about Russia's system. I'm not going to try and speak to it. But 
at least in terms of China, Chinese, the Chinese uh, system of governance is highly disciplined. It's highly bureaucratic. There are 86 million plus members of the Chinese Communist Party. You know, this is a very different situation from what you have in Russia, where, um, you know, I think kleptocracy is a good word to describe that compared to perhaps bureaucracy. Um, so, yeah, it's this this idea that we're being asked to, to sort of see the world in binary terms again um, with a complete lack of distinction is is a problem. And I think it's going to it's going to cause problems for us down the line, not not least of which will be that if we refuse to, if we selectively refuse to work with quote unquote authoritarian regimes, what are we going to do about climate change? What are we going to do about nuclear proliferation? All of these global problems that actually do require some, some uh, collaboration. Right. Right. We spread our uh, capitalism to China we assume that would lead to democracy. Is there anything resembling democracy? I, how, how could you have a communist state without people voting? I would assume there there are elections in China, right? Uh, there have been lots of different experiments with forms of democracy in China, and there are some um, at the very grassroots level, at the level of the village. Mm -hmm. um, I believe there are some elections but there's no kind of um, there's no question of of whether there would be a kind of one person one vote system for the leadership or for a multi party um, kind of system. But there are there are some sort of very small scale forms of democracy. How many members uh, did you say? How many members of the Communist Party in China? Uh, more than eighty six million. Eighty six million. I would assume they have more of a say, more of a democratic participation than ordinary Chinese? Um, that I would have to bring someone in who can talk about that, but I, I'm i not sure that is the case. I think that within the party, um, although there'll be forms of kind of consultation that happen at every level of the party, the party is a top-down uh, hierarchy. And it, I mean, it operates on kind of Leninist uh, centralizing principles. And so I would expect that to be limited, although I wouldn't rule it out. And certainly there are social benefits, political, social, political, maybe even kind of cultural benefits to being a party member in China. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. It's definitely something that's that can um, boost your network. It can boost your employability. Uh, it's a sort of source of, of social capital, you might say. You want to be in the party you you i would assume you can't be jack ma you can't run alibaba unless you're a party member uh well there are certain regulations that stipulate that organizations of a certain size must contain a party member right. or have some sort of party supervision but whether you yourself jack ma would have to become a member that's I'm not sure that is the case, um, but certainly uh, large companies, they all need to have some form of, of party membership uh, to ensure compliance. When I think of uh, Russia under the Soviet Union, I think of Stalin and 
the, the purges and the terror. When I think of the Politburo in China right now, I think that you have Xi as the leader, but he has to he has to get consensus. I would assume he can't rule with an iron fist that there are segments of the Politburo that are conflicting, advising and fighting amongst themselves. And yeah, so yeah, how I think go ahead. Well, yeah, I, I think there has been um so there are sort of two separate things i want to say one is there's a history of factionalism within the party which is a bit more of a sort of uh salacious history i would say so remember back in 2012 2014 around that time when xi jinping took office there was a huge scandal around his rival Bo Xilai in Chongqing, who had kind of amassed a, an alternative center of power within the party. That was like a great scandal. And a lot of China watchers sort of really indulged in that because it, it, it seemed to sort of prove something about the nature of, uh, yeah, of authoritarianism, that this is a party that's squabbling and it's always kind of backbiting and there's no stability. However, I think that's just one uh, one picture. The other thing is um, that with, like you say, there is uh, also a tradition, a competing tradition, I would argue, in the party of kind of consensus building um, of distributed authority. And that was something that Deng Xiaoping, um, who was in power in the 80s, a great reformer, very influential, sort of ushered in and Hu Jintao, who was the most recent um, mm -hmm. person in charge before Xi Jinping, there was a sort of something developing there with more of that distributed authority. Uh, it seems that Xi Jinping has centralized power more than his predecessor, but I think that we kind of get him, again, we've done a good job of portraying him as a sort of all powerful, completely, right. um, you know, monolithic uh, presence in the party. And I think it's true that there is more discussion, more deliberation, and perhaps even even some conflict over certain directions within the party. But it's also very hard to know because it's a very opaque institution. Um, there are some people who see the Communist Party of China more as being run kind of like a, a sort of with a with a sort of mafia type um, style of rule, and that's another theory that we could we could get into. Right, right. So factions uh, during Tiananmen Square, I remember the military was a separate faction from Deng Xiaoping. That he couldn't, he didn't have complete control over the military. What are the factions now? Do you, can you venture a guess? I would assume there's still the military. I would assume the capitalists have some, the, the billionaire class would be a separate faction. And then the intellectuals, the academics, what, what, how does it break down? Um, it's very, very hard to say, but there is, um, I wouldn't say that the billionaires are a faction within the party. They're a, more of a sort of parallel, uh, parallel to the party, adjacent to the party, you might say. Um, 
there is a party, a very important party intellectual called Wang Huning, who is one to watch. He's somebody who kind of, he's considered a very brilliant thinker um, and someone who's quite influential on Xi Jinping. Uh, so I can kind of direct people to resources on him if they're interested. Right. Um, but in terms of the military, actually, she does seem to have consolidated quite a bit of control over the military. He, When he came into power, he sort of started putting himself on all of these committees. Mm-hmm. Um, his predecessor's style of rule was very much to have kind of like uh, delegated power into these small working groups, they call them. And Xi Jinping just started showing up to all of them. And now he's sort of on all of those committees. And I think the the um most people think that yeah he's got a very high degree of of power over the people's liberation army and it's not you couldn't really describe it as a faction i want to get back to the biden doctrine i didn't know he had a doctrine so i'm curious about censorship in china are you more likely to be censored do you think if you're from the west than you are if you're a domestic journalist is this do they crack down as hard on the domestic reporters as they do on the west yeah i mean yes and no i think if you're a domestic reporter if you're working for a chinese news outlet in china you know exactly where the lines are because they kind of like here in the united states yeah, you don't I mean, show you don't show anything from Hunter Biden's laptop, right? You leave that to the Daily Mail, right? Right. You do a pretty good job of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in within China, the lines are pretty clear, and although they they are always shifting, they're still clear because actually every year, um, j- journalistic organizations receive a style guide. And it will actually have lists of terms that can and cannot be used. And every year it gets leaked. And it's a fascinating read because it does change year on year. Um, So, yeah, if you're a a foreign journalist in China and you are kind of pursuing these stories that the, the party is uncomfortable with, yes, you will be you'll be followed. You will have, um, you know, your your reporting will be made difficult mm-hmm. let's put it that way but that i mean there are journalists in china there are some very good journalists in china especially financial journalists but there's there's there has been a kind of creeping sense that things things that were not sensitive before are now actually very sensitive and just to take another field as an example in academia um this past week was the annual like Asian studies conference, which is a, a kind of where all of the regional studies experts, they gather and share their research. It's just an academic conference really, right. but happened in Honolulu last week. And they did a sort of hybrid online offline format where you could join by zoom if you couldn't be there in person. And a lot of Chinese academics who work on regional studies, who work on um, Asian studies, were planning to attend. And this year, for the first time, uh, they said that their universities said they couldn't attend even virtually Hmm. and that they needed permission, depending on the research they were doing. Right. There was an an NPR story that that was quite interesting on this. 
so that's a new yeah these these lines keep changing and generally it's not it's not for the towards the more uh, liberal um the liberal side unfortunately so that is a change right it's late in great britain so i want to be respectful of your time the biden doctrine when was it announced and you say that democracy can have authoritarian uh parts to it uh i know that ancient rome had you know allowed for dictators when it was necessary cincinnatus the general came off the farm to become dictator but you know then he steps down uh that's that was written i believe into roman law how can democracy have authoritarian facets to it when the idea of democracy is anything but authoritarian at least that's what i was brainwashed to believe Hmm. well i think when you when you sort of approach it from a different angle and by the way the the biden doctrine i i don't think that's something that he is himself designated i think that's something that foreign policy um pundits have have coined something i came across um so it's kind of like obamacare they called it obamacare (laughs) and he eventually started calling it obamacare they well it's just the extent to which biden has been harping on about democracy for several years now and democracy promotion seems to be part of his brand and one has to wonder is this not because what he sees American democracy at home in such tatters that mm-hmm. in order to kind of make up for that, he can talk about how it needs to be promoted abroad. Um, Feels like democracy but, is a Trojan horse for capitalism, for, for our <laughs> version of capital, right? It's to get our companies in there. Well, that was, yeah. And that was kind of something I wanted to say about this fuzzy, this sort of, weird distinction between democracy and authoritarianism on the one hand yeah. on on two sides um they don't these are not ideologies and they don't really uh give you a good critique of power right they don't account for differences like right versus left for example um and god forbid we think about the division between labor and capital because that's another way in which we can split the world up right. but obviously that doesn't serve certain interests um and i'm you know i'm not saying there's no difference between china and the us or russia and the us i'm i'm not saying that but i think that this um this binary is not going to serve us well what is china what does it fear about the eu and america what are they worried the eu and biden could do to them uh, China, in terms of its strategic interests, China fears that um, the EU and the US and NATO and the West simply want to contain China at all costs. That that they they believe there's no room for China to expand for a multipolar world to emerge, and you know. They have a point when you look at the way China is being completely conflated with Russia at right. this this current moment. I mean, China has a long history of non-alignment as well. I mean, we can talk about 1955 
the Bandung Conference, where Zhou Enlai, the Chinese uh, premier, I think was his title, um, attended. And that was a conference organized by the non-aligned countries during the Cold War, those who didn't want to uh, throw their lot in with Soviets or the West. Right. And right. China, when you look at the way China behaves in Africa. Um, the Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road. There is a lot of that sort of, let's say, the spirit of Bandung um, being evoked there. Uh, it's, I would love you to come back and talk about Belt and Road and compare <laughs> it to the IMF and the World Bank, how China... Even, I, I don't even know if they colonize the way America, the World Bank, and the IMF do. I'd be curious to know if China has tax havens the way uh, Great Britain does. Uh, so much to ask you. It's late in Great Britain. The uh, historical question I want to ask you about Cho and Lai and Mao Zedong, they were rivals at first? Um, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would say that they, I think there was always a slight perception that Joe was so charismatic and so likable and charming that he couldn't not be a rival. But I think ultimately they worked very closely together and right. yeah. But the, it was an example of factionalism. No, where, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe it that oh, way. Good. Okay, great. No. Grace Jones, Grace Jones, uh, Grace Jackson. I'm sorry. I was thinking of I, I, the next segment. I don't even want to tell you why I thought of Grace Jones. It has something to do with the I won't even go there. Grace Jackson. Grace Jackson is the host of the Literary Hangover podcast. Most importantly for us, she's an expert on China. Follow her on Twitter at Grace Jackson and follow her podcast on Twitter at Lit Hangover. Amazing job. Thank you so much, Grace Jackson. Anything you'd like to plug? No, no. Thank you, David. That Great. was really fun. Yes. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Well, hopefully um, we can wrangle you into coming back next week to talk to whatever to you talk. want to talk about. Thank you, Grace Jackson. We will be back. You are listening to The David Feldman Show, David Feldman Show. Dot com. Great job, Grace. Great job. It's time right Thank now you, Grace. for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments, too. He'll tell a dirty joke. He knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you.
Yes, it's time right now on the David Bell Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, it looks like Christian Smalls, president of Amazon Labor Union, has succeeded in turning the first fulfillment center in America union. We're getting reports now that the vote count is 738 to 600 Christian Smalls reports that Amazon's asshole lawyers are in the vote count room. And he says, quote, I love watching them squirm. They're drinking mad water. F every lawyer who is fighting the union. F every lawyer who is fighting Christian Small's efforts to bring a union shop to Staten Island. This is a big, big story. Well, we're going to talk about this. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're finding out as we speak whether or not Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama and out on Staten Island have voted to go union. It looks like it looks like Staten Island's fulfillment center will go union. The Bessemer, Alabama fulfillment center will not be going union, according to Reuters. But we'll we'll see. This is a big day for the union movement. Unions are now more popular than ever. And yet union membership in America is at the lowest point in over a century. We lost 250,000 union jobs last year while everybody was talking about how this was the golden age of unionization. We lost 250,000 union jobs last year. Today's workers at Amazon had the opportunity to vote to join a union. Last year in Bessemer, Alabama, they said no. Now, why would they vote against their own self-interest? It's the same reason Americans vote for Republicans. It's the same reason Democrats vote for Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi. We are all susceptible to lies. Amazon workers are being lied to by union busting corporate lawyers in the vote counting room as we speak. They're being lied to by public relations firm. Most of them, most of these public relation firms and lawyers, not surprisingly, have ties to the Democratic Party. It's why Biden hasn't gone down to Bessemer or Staten Island or given a full throated endorsement of going union. The most you can get out of Biden is Every shop has the right to decide for itself whether or not they want to join a union. Now, in Bessemer, Alabama, voting ended on March 25th. 6,100 workers were asked to join again. Again, they were asked. They were asked whether or not they want to join the retail, wholesale and department store union. The Retail, Wholesale and Department Store Union, the National Labor Relations Board, found last year evidence of Amazon tampering with last year's election in Bessemer, resulting in workers overwhelmingly voting 
against joining the retail, wholesale, and department store union. It was a landslide against the retail, wholesale, and department store union. The uh, voter turnout this time around, because there was tampering, the National Labor Relations Board said you have to vote again. Voter turnout in Bessemer was only 39% this time around. It was 55% last year. Votes are being counted as we speak in Bessemer. Now, I want you to think of Christian Smalls, our friend, out in Staten Island in the freezing weather, being hassled by the cops, his supporters getting arrested. That's the new Amazon labor union, Christian Smalls, who worked inside the fulfillment center. He fulfilled his promise to the workers tonight. They are going union. He lived and worked with the warehouse workers. He was out on the street every day. Christian Smalls reminds me a little bit of Cesar Chavez, whose birthday it is today. Christian Smalls. Now let's talk about Stuart Applebaum, the president of the union down in Bessemer right now. He is the president of the Retail, Wholesale and Department Store Union. His office is in Connecticut. I don't think Christian Smalls has an office. Stuart Applebaum, the president of the union that's trying to take uh, Bessemer into its embrace, uh, he I'm being told he's down there right now. Uh, he's very active, Stuart Applebaum, Harvard Law grad. Did I mention he went to Harvard Law? Stuart Applebaum, very active in the Democratic Party. I tried to get him on the show last year. I tried to get a representative from the union on the show. Nobody ever returned my call. Uh, so I called his office today. According to a spokesperson for Stuart Applebaum's union, her name is Chelsea Connor. I spoke with her today. Stuart Applebaum, a graduate of Harvard Law, she claims has made numerous trips down to Bessemer. She says he's there right now. But I can't find any photos of Stuart Applebaum with the workers down in Bessemer. I've Googled it. If you can find some, please send them to me. I don't see any video on his union's Twitter feed or Facebook feed. I see no pictures of him marching with the Amazon workers standing out in front of the Bessemer, Alabama warehouse and handing out literature. I don't see any evidence of Stuart Applebaum doing what Christian Smalls has been doing every day, seven days a week for the past year and a half, standing with the workers. Not a single photograph of Stuart Applebaum with the Bessemer workers, not a single Twitter or Facebook post of the Harvard educated Stuart Applebaum meeting with the workers. When I asked, I, I spoke to the union today when I asked what hotel is Stuart Applebaum staying at down in Bessemer? His spokesperson hung up on me. She was irate that I would ask such a question. 
I want to know what hotel he was staying at. Not that I would call the hotel. Not that I think they're lying to me. I, I believe that he's down there. I'd like to know if he stays at a Cozy 8 motel, a Motel 6. I want to know what he spends on travel and hotel stays, if he is in fact down there. We'll see. Maybe Stuart Applebaum marched with the Bessemer workers. Maybe he sleeps in their homes. If he did that, if he did what Martin Luther King did in Chicago, moved into the tenements to draw attention to, to the rats and, and no hot water. If Stuart Applebaum did that, he owes it to all of us, to the unions, to publicize this. Why is he keeping it secret if he did anything remotely like Christian Smalls. Why are Stuart Applebaum's speeches not on Twitter or Facebook or even on the front page of his union website? He's nowhere to be found. And that is why it looks like, and I hope I'm wrong, but that is why it looks like once again, Bessemer will vote against joining his union because Harvard Law School's Democratic operative Stuart Applebaum, unlike Christian Smalls, is nowhere to be found. Mike Elk over at Payday Report writes today that the union drive in Bessemer will go down in defeat because Applebaum's union refused to lead wildcat strikes or take shop floor action against Amazon. Meanwhile, Christian Smalls, not a graduate of Harvard Law, not a Democratic operative like Stuart Applebaum, Christian Smalls has been on the street every day organizing the Amazon Labor Union where in New York City, 8,000 Amazon workers out on Staten Island are waiting to find out if they will be joining Christian Small's Amazon Labor Union. It looks like they will. His, his new union, brand new, uh, there's going to be a union out on Staten Island because Christian Small's organized wildcat strikes. He lived on the streets with the workers. He sued. He went to Letitia James, our attorney general, and he fought. Now, voting stopped on Wednesday and we're waiting on the count. Uh, so it looks once again, it looks like Christian Smalls uh, is celebrating Cesar Chavez's birthday the right way with the workers living with the workers, protecting the workers, creating a union. Congratulations, Christian Smalls. I sent him a note. Whether or not you win today, you showed us the way. Stuart Applebaum, however, where is he? Where is he? Nowhere to be found. If, uh, if he's doing something for the retail, wholesale and department store union, if he's down there, he's the president of the retail, wholesale and department store union. If he's doing any actions down in Bessemer, the fact that we don't know about it shows what a disgrace his leadership is. If there if there's any speech or march or picture of him 
meeting with the workers and he hasn't put it on the union website, that is why he went down in defeat again, second time in a row. Harvard lawyer, Democratic operative. Christian Smalls, well, anyway, uh, fingers crossed. I think Amazon Labor Union uh, wins today. That's what that's what I'm being told. Well, Will Smith isn't the only one who delivered a slap to the face of the people in Hollywood. Multi-billionaire recording artist Jay-Z threw his Gold Party Academy Award celebration Sunday night at the Chateau Marmont Hotel. Despite Unite Here, Local 11, it's a hospitality union, begging him and customers to boycott the Chateau Marmont. They've been boycotting, calling for a boycott of the Chateau Marmont for the past year. The Hollywood Reporter has chronicled in detail how the Chateau Marmont's owner, Andre Belaz, fired employees during the pandemic without giving them severance packages or extended health insurance. This when the Paycheck Protection Program was doling out all our tax dollars to protect the workers. No paycheck pr protection money for the workers at the Chateau Marmont? Where'd that money go? The Unite Here Local 11 begged Jay-Z to join them in their boycott, accusing the Chateau Marmont of systemic racial discrimination and sexual misconduct. And then there are our friends over at the PBS. WTTW is the Chicago PBS affiliate where striking members of the local 1220 of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers now find themselves without health insurance. The electrical workers, the grips, the union, the, the people who are responsible for the pipes that produce all the shows that come out of WTTW, the Chicago PBS affiliate. They're on strike and the executives with the PBS affiliate punish them for going on strike by taking away their employer provided health insurance. Your friends over at the PBS, which gets corporate funding up the wazoo. They even run ads. They say they're commercial free, but all you see on the PBS are commercials. Ken Burns, Ken Burns, his documentaries are funded by David Rubenstein, the founder of the Carlyle Group, the largest war profiteer in the world. That's who's funding Ken Burns's documentary, David effing Rubenstein from the Carlyle Group. So the studio workers at the PBS, where David Rubenstein has his own show, the studio workers went on strike earlier this month claiming management wants a new union contract that would allow PBS to hire uh, non-union workers to phase out the union and start bringing in non-union workers. That's your liberal public broadcasting system. Won't you please donate to the PBS? Won't you donate to the PBS? 
They're taking away the health insurance, the health care of workers who are using their constitutional right to strike and they get their health care taken away from them the same way GM tried to do that two years ago. Do you see why Medicare for all is so dangerous to the ruling class? Do you see why they do not want us to get free health care that isn't linked to our job? When you get your health care from your employer, it makes you afraid to ask for more money because you know, you're not going to strike. If you strike, they switch over to COBRA. You can't afford it. If you have family, you're not going to go on strike. You don't want your kids not to be able to see a doctor. Strikes would put you and your family in danger of losing your health benefits. And if you think I'm kidding, ask the members of Local 1220 of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers who are now without health insurance because they decided to strike. Do you see how dangerous Medicare for all is to the ruling class? When you get your health insurance from your employer, it terrifies you. You are terrified to ask for more money because you'll, you'll die. You could conceivably die. If workers didn't need their employees, their employers for their health, their health care. These workers would work for whomever they wanted, whenever they wanted. Health insurance, uh, they wouldn't have to worry about health insurance. So the only explanation for not switching to single payer, the only reason America has not switched to single payer is corporate America knows that single payer, payer means Corporate America would have to keep its workers happy in order to keep them. So corporate America doesn't want the American worker free from financial worry about their health care. Health insurance, health care is the shackle that keeps Americans tied to their desk. Corporate America would rather pay health insurance companies more than pay their employees. Think about this. If corporate America were freed the burden of paying all these exorbitant health care costs, they, they could pay their employees more. They could pay higher dividends. They could pour money into research and development. But no, corporate America would rather give that money to health insurance companies because corporate America is afraid of their workers having choice the choice to go anywhere, the, the choice to become an entrepreneur and keep, compete with the company they were working for. That's the reason corporate America is willing to pay so much for health insurance. They view health insurance companies as the prison guards. They're willing to pay a premium for health care because the health insurance companies are the prison guards keeping their employees chained to their desk. Now, earlier this week, Dr. Sarah R. Collins testified about Obamacare before the House Oversight Committee. She's from the Commonwealth Fund, which for more than a century has been dedicated to examining America's 
rotten healthcare system. Dr. Collins testified that America spends far more of its GDP on health care than any other rich country. And at the same time, we rank last on access to health care as well as providing quality treatment. Health care in America stinks. And we all know that we pay more than anybody else for the worst health care in the industrialized world. We spend more than anybody else with the worst results. That's what privatization does. It focuses on profits over efficiency. The Commonwealth Club, Dr. Collins says, has concluded that the number one driver of health care costs in the United States is not research and development. It's not salaries for doctors or nurses. It's not being spent on improving patient care. Obviously, we're dead last in patient care, last. So what is making healthcare so effing expensive in America? Dr. Collins is saying the very same thing Bernie said in 2020. Healthcare is expensive. The prices are going up because of what private health insurance companies charge. The private health insurance companies are the single biggest driver of healthcare costs in America. And corporate America knows that. But they want health insurance to be expensive. They want it not to be obtainable. They want their workers terrified. They are willing to pay more for health insurance. These companies, because the more expensive health care is, the more terrified and compliant their workers are. Here is Congressman Katie Porter. She was on the show uh, back when she was running. Uh, here she is asking Dr. Collins about health insurance companies gouging America. And if we look at just billing costs, just billing and insurance costs, Medicare is at 1%. Wait, private companies spend 17 times more on administrative costs than Medicare? What are private insurance companies spending on that Medicare is not? Does Medicare spend hundreds of millions of dollars on television advertisements like private insurance does? Dr. Collins? No. Does Medicare spend millions of dollars on stock buybacks to shareholders? No. Does Medicare um, spend money on marketing? Private insurance likes to put its name on stadiums and PGA tournaments. Is there a Medicare arena? No. Does Medicare spend $23 million on executive pay like private insurance companies do? No. We know how much it costs to run a high quality health insurance program. $1. Out of $100, research shows that Medicare spends 1.1% on administrative costs. We spend $4 trillion on health care every year. We could save $200 billion on administrative costs with Medicare for All. And those savings, they could go to expand Medicare. We could spend that money to let patients see dentists. 
We could let that money let patients pay for hearing aids to help older adults afford eyeglasses, to bring down the cost of prescription drugs, to finally pay mental health professionals for the work they do. Instead, all this money is wasted. We're not talking about paying to keep the lights on in operating rooms or improving the quality of care. All this money is used to, to, to pay big insurance to push paper. It's death by 200 billion paper cuts. And here's the really painful thing about that. Katie Porter, Harvard Law School. That's even a graduate from Harvard Law School can figure this out. It's outrageous that the doctors put up with this shit. The nurses don't. Where are the doctors in America standing up against the health insurance companies? Why are the doctors allowing the health insurance companies to kill us? The health insurance companies kill more Americans than COVID. Where are the doctors? Where's Fauci talking about this? Well, I would assume they all have been bought by the health insurance companies. But, you know, the, the corporate America, they don't complain. They just pay the they pay the the plans. Why is corporate America willing to pay so much? Well, like I keep saying, nobody believes me, but I've been saying this for years. It's worth it to corporate America. The insurance companies serve as the prison guards to keep workers terrified to even think of escaping their job. I cannot tell you the shit that I put up with at work because the show was union. And because it was union, it meant I got health care for me and most importantly, for my family. Now, eight years ago, nobody believed me when I said this. So corporate America is all in on health care being unaffordable. It's the shackles that keep you chained to your desk going, yes, sir, no, sir. The shit I ate on certain shows because I was getting my health benefits from the union, not from the employer. The employer was paying into the union, but I depended on my union for the benefits. And all I did was eat shit so my family wouldn't lose our health care. Nobody believed me when I said this eight years ago, but now people are finally beginning to pick up on this. Many unions do not want Medicare for all. Nobody believed me when I said this. Many unions, not all, but many do not want Medicare for all, because if the government starts providing the health care, then what's the purpose of a union? How do you justify the salaries of these Harvard-educated union presidents? Now, I said this eight years ago, and people I really respect said, no, that's not it. But I saw it with my union. All anybody at my union ever talks about is health insurance, not residuals, health insurance. Imagine single payer, Medicare for all. Imagine if these unions had a fight for something other than health insurance. They'd have to actually work. They would have to demand more money for the workers, more vacation time for the workers. They would demand stock in the company, a seat at the table. They would have to demand to be on the board of directors like in Germany. 
the union presidents like Stuart Applebaum would have to actually work for a living. And nobody believed me. And then we saw something in 2020. Bernie couldn't get the union vote during the Nevada caucuses in 2020. Why? Why? This was the, the, the candidate who was all in on the, the PRO Act. Why weren't the unions going to support Bernie in Nevada? Because, and we saw it, Medicare for all was a threat to the powerful culinary union local 226, which warned its membership that Medicare for all would, and I quote, jeopardize our hard-won health benefits. Medicare for all would jeopardize our hard-earned, hard-won health benefits. In other words, all this work we did for you, getting you health care, if we have Medicare for all, then all that work would have been for naught because if Bernie wins, the government will provide it instead. And we work so hard to get you your health benefits. And with Bernie's Medicare for all, now we will no longer be the ones chaining you to a crappy job. We won't have you in our union all because of health care. We're going to have to actually do something else for you. And, we, you know, we're Harvard lawyers and, you know, we have vacations to go to. We want to keep you imprisoned at your job as a culinary worker at the casino, keeping your mouth shut because you don't want to lose your health insurance. If you get Medicare for all, you're only going to be willing to pay union dues if we get you a bigger paycheck. We don't want to do that. We don't want to get you vacation time or stock options. We don't want to actually work for you. We want to give you health insurance and have you shut the F up while we collect our six-figure salaries. And so the union in Nevada lies to their workers. They say Bernie wants to take away your health care. No, he wants to give you better health care, better health care, whether you work or whether you stay home. Bernie wants to take away the union's hold over its members the same way the casinos had a hold or have a hold on the workers because you get fired, you lose your health, you lose your health insurance. That's how the unions have a hold on the rank and file, the same way corporate America does. We provide you with the health insurance so you do what you're told. You vote for who we tell you to vote for. And that's how it played out in Nevada, although Bernie won in Nevada. Uh, everybody said eight years ago that I was insane when I maintained that the unions didn't want Medicare for all. I know that most of the unions in America are run by pimps and the rank and file are their bitches. And the pimps know that unless they are the ones providing the protection, the bitches don't want to give them a chunk of our salary. Unions love the healthcare system as it is because for the most part, they're running a protection racket. If healthcare remains unaffordable, workers stay put because their union 
is protecting them. And you're grateful for the morsels, the crumbs. Now, Taft-Hartley uh, forbids Marxists, communists from running a union. That's a First Amendment issue that should be challenged in our courts. We need Marxists and communists running our union. But the right wing was smart enough when they passed Taft-Hartley to forbid communists and Marxists from running our union. I want a Marxist negotiating for me. I don't want Harvard Law School graduates like Stuart effing Applebaum, Democratic operative, Harvard Law School fighting for me. I want Christian Smalls fighting for me. I don't know if he's a Marxist. I don't care. I want a pit bull fighting for me. I want radicals running our unions. I don't want a, uh, a, a, uh, a Maltese protecting me. I want a effing pit bull. Meanwhile, CNBC is reporting that White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki's old firm, Global Strategy Group, is helping Amazon produce all their anti-union websites and material to keep the Fulfillment Center out by JFK from joining Christian Small's Amazon Labor Union. Global Strategies Group, they helped run a pro-Biden super PAC during the 2020 presidential election. Barbara Russell, Barbara Russell, Barbara Russell, is Amazon's global director of employee relations. Barbara Russell, her name is Barbara Russell, B-A-R-B-A-R-A, Russell, R-U-S-S-E-L-L. Barbara Russell is Amazon's global director of employee relations. Did I mention her name is Barbara Russell? And she is working with Global Strategies Group to help oversee the union busting that's going on at Amazon. Her name, by the way, is Barbara Russell. According to her LinkedIn profile, Barbara Russell is a graduate of the University of Michigan Law School and has a bachelor's degree from Cornell School of Industrial Relations and Labor. Her first job was working for the Civil Service Workers Association and then she turned to the dark side. She became a union buster over at Amazon. Hey, Barbara Russell, rot in hell. Meanwhile, the drive to unionize Starbucks is growing from Vente to Grande. On Monday, a Starbucks in Knoxville, Tennessee, became the first Starbucks in the South to go union. We're talking right to work states, and Tennessee has its first union Starbucks, uh, the first union Starbucks in the South. SB Workers United, that would be Starbucks, Starbucks Workers United, says that out of the 9,000 Starbucks run by Starbucks, nine are now union. There are other Starbucks in America. They are licensed by supermarkets and shopping malls 
and most of them are already union signatories. But the owned and operated Starbucks, they're about 9,000, only nine have become union so far. But 150 Starbucks since August of 2021 have filed requests with the National Labor Relations Board for a union vote. So next time you go to Starbucks, ask if they're union. Talk about unions, leave some literature, let the customers know that Amazon is bringing in the hired guns to kill the unions. We're all addicted to Starbucks. It's hard to quit caffeine. So when you're going to Starbucks, talk very loud about union organizing there. Hey, you ever wonder why a bagel and cream cheese at the airport costs eight bucks? Not because of labor costs. Airport workers in 20 cities today staged a walkout calling for a right to unionize as well as higher wages and benefits. Some workers complain they make $12 an hour and can't afford a car or rent. You know, the, the nice people who help your grandmother into a wheelchair and then wheel them uh, to the plane so they can visit you? They get $12 an hour, $12 an hour. Can you live on $12 an hour? Uh, these are the people who work at the airport. The airports get massive, massive tax subsidies and grants from the government. Uh, these are the people who uh, provide security, handle your baggage, clean the airplanes and the toilets. Some of them are making as little as $12 an hour. You know, a lot of people want to age at home. There was a story today. I don't know where I read this. There was a story today about more and more Americans not being able to age at home because they can't find health care workers. The average health care worker in America makes $12 an hour. I'm sorry, in New York makes $12 an hour. Imagine that living in New York City, providing, you know, going to a going to somebody's home and sponge baths and changing bandages, putting ointment on the bed sores, $12 an hour. That's the going rate, $12 an hour. And a lot of people in their 70s, 80s and 90s in New York are complaining that they can't find anybody to come to their home to take care of them. And now they may have to go to nursing homes where they'll be killed by people like Andrew Cuomo. How many, what did he kill? Like 15,000 people in New York because of COVID, the nursing homes? Something like 15,000 people in nursing homes died because Andrew Cuomo neglected them during COVID. So yeah, $12 an hour. Think about what we value in this country. Uh, a corporate lawyer, can get $1,000 an hour destroying a union. But the, 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 the woman who comes to his mother's house and wipes her butt 
and gives her dignity and feeds her, she gets $12 an hour. You wait till you can't use your own toilet and you need your bed sores uh, treated. You tell me what's worth $1,000 an hour. Some piece of shit Harvard Law graduate destroying a union or the kind woman, usually a person of color, making you feel better, giving you dignity. You tell me what's worth $12 an hour and what's worth $1,000 an hour. This is a fucked up country. It's a really fucked up country that we allow this. When Professor Ben Burgess was on Joe Rogan's podcast this month, he mentioned John Deere workers being on strike and Joe Rogan had no idea that John Deere workers were on strike. Now, Joe has dedicated a lot of time uh, on his show to discussions about what constitutes gender or you know censorship on college campuses. But the important stuff like the financial security of his own listeners, why bother? Why would he bother when it's his job to distract his 12 million listeners, to distract them away from the real source of their immiseration? That's why he's paid $200 million, to distract his fans from ever realizing what's really making them miserable. Why do you want to see grown men beating up each other in the octagon? Maybe it's because you don't have a union. I doubt Joe Rogan will ever tell his listeners this. One of the largest studies ever conducted on ivermectin and its ability to kill COVID has now concluded, and it has said ivermectin I think the Latin word is bullshit. It's bullshit. 1,300 people from Brazil infected with the virus received ivermectin or a placebo. The results are in. Doctors have officially concluded that ivermectin, and I hope I'm pronouncing this Latin correctly, is bullshit. That's from the New York Times. Well... Vladimir Putin is now more popular than ever in Russia. According to the New York Times, 83% of Russians say Putin made the right decision going into Ukraine. That's up 13 points since the start of the war. The Times based their reporting on polling from the Levada Center, a trusted polling company inside of Moscow. Oil prices have started to fall, partly because President Joe Biden today promised to open America's strategic petroleum reserve and for the next six months will release one million barrels of oil per day because that's what this planet needs. One million barrels of oil per day burnt. America stockpiles 550 million barrels of oil for emergencies. At one time, believe it or not, this country was the leading producer of crude oil. That was back in 2018 when we jumped ahead of Russia and Saudi Arabia. But the problem with producing so much oil is it drives the prices down, right? Supply and demand. So the oil lobbyists 
and the oil companies decided to cut back on their production because while they pitch drilling rights to Congress and the American people as energy independence, the truth is oil is and always has been a boom and bust, unstable market, right? So we gave them all these drilling rights. But in the past three years, activist stockholders for oil companies here in the United States say they want dividends. They want artificial scarcity because that drives up prices and profits for the oil companies. So they're saying, don't drill anymore. We don't want you investing in infrastructure that will bring the prices down. No more drilling. We want that money as in the form of dividends. They want the price of oil to remain high. Drill, baby, drill, right? During the oil shocks of the 1970s, politicians screamed for energy independence. We needed to start drilling here in the United States so we wouldn't be dependent on the vicissitudes of countries like Saudi Arabia. So we drilled and we did something smart. Back in the 70s, we made it illegal to sell American oil overseas. That way, anything we drilled would be ours and that would keep the prices down. But the oil companies couldn't make money when the prices are down. So they lobbied the Obama administration, which in 2015 uh, said that we could now export our crude oil to the world. Suddenly, crude oil was pegged to the international market as opposed to the domestic market. And in one fell swoop of Obama's pen, all the drilling we did for that energy independence, it disappeared. All the independence disappeared and the oil companies were allowed to charge Americans the same price for our oil as they charge the rest of the world. So if it's $100 a barrel for Poland, it's $100 a barrel for us, even though it's our oil. Our oil doesn't belong to us anymore. It belongs to the global market, thanks to Barack Obama. Drill, baby, drill. That's no longer our oil. It belongs to the highest bidder, just like Barack Obama. Russia is the world's second largest producer of crude oil. It's been that way for uh, many years. I don't know if you've heard, but oil is the single largest contributor to, maybe you haven't heard this, oil is the single largest contributor to the greenhouse gases, soon making this entire planet uninhabitable for humans and most species. Did anybody hear about this? Okay. Oil, ironically, comes from dinosaurs. We are choking on the very essence of what we are soon to become. One day, millions of years from now, a highly evolved species of cockroaches will be fueling their automobiles by burning us. It's the circle of death. And maybe you haven't heard about the Arctic Circle. Russia owns a big chunk of it. The rest of it is owned by the United States, Canada, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, and Iceland. And Maybe they haven't told you this, but it needs to stay cold. The Arctic Circle needs to stay cold. 
there are something like, uh, there's like 250 million square miles of permafrost up uh, on the Arctic Circle. It's half the world's permafrost. It's up there in the Arctic. Permafrost is good uh, because it's what they call a carbon sink. You don't want it to melt. It's a, uh, a carbon sink that is storing, they think, uh, 1,400 gigatons of carbon. The ice is storing 1,400 gigatons of carbon. So if this permafrost continues to melt, it will then release all that carbon, which causes the planet to get hotter, which means more permafrost melts, releasing more and more carbon. That's why this stuff is happening quicker and quick, quicker. They call it the snowball effect, but soon the snowball will melt and our entire planet will be underwater. It will be underwater, which is why you hear so much about oligarchs on their yachts. That's all you hear about is oligarchs and their yachts. Uh, I am told that sailing is so pleasant that some people never want to touch land. I am told that people like David Geffen and Jeffrey Bezos love their $350 million yachts so much, they say they wish they could just live permanently on their yachts, their self-sufficient yachts with their desalination plants where they fish for food. You don't need countries, you don't need land when you can live on the sea. The oligarchs, they see the future for humanity and it is a return to the sea. I wouldn't be surprised if they're already financing stem cell research so they can be fitted with gills. Certainly Jeff Bezos, Carl Icahn, and David Rubenstein from the Carlyle Group already look like bluefin tuna. I'm gonna assume they've been fitted with gills. They are not going to their doomsday bunkers and they're not launching themselves into outer space. They are going to their yachts, their brand new yachts, because people like Jeff Bezos, they are convinced the climate will change the same exact way they have sex by never finding the little man on the boat. Jeff Bezos is convinced that climate change will never find him on his boat. The Arctic is melting. It's hitting triple digits up there during the summer, which is why the sea level is rising. Warm ice turns into water and water raises sea levels and that causes floods. We need the Arctic Circle to be all ice. Ice is white. It reflects the sun back into the atmosphere. It cools the planet. We need it all to be ice up there, but the ice is disappearing. And because the ice is disappearing, oil companies and mining companies see the Arctic Circle as a much easier spot to tap, to tap for more oil, for minerals, because there's no more ice to drill through. There are billions and billions of proven oil reserves underneath the Arctic Circle, not to mention all the rich minerals. This thing in Ukraine, and Zelensky talked about this earlier in the week, this is about oil and Russia wanting to drill and America 
wanting to drill and the EU and America wanting to sell more oil than Russia does. It is a competition for oil. And they all have yachts. Putin has a yacht. All the oligarchs have yachts. They don't care if the if the planet is flooded. They have yachts. They belong. They belong to no nation. Their money belongs to no nation. It's all global. The people who have all that money live nowhere. They have no country and they they can live everywhere or anywhere. The higher the sea levels, the fewer shoals for their yachts to crash into. And if you think I'm joking, I'm not. Talk to someone who owns a boat. They imagine living forever on that boat. Now imagine someone with a yacht. They hate, David Geffen hates land. I'm serious. Talk to the idiots who go on cruises. They never want to come home. These are people who once you go on a carnival cruise and if you're stupid enough, you're already praying for a planet covered in water and that humanity survives on uh, on board fleets of cruise ships, a world where it's just all you can eat lobster buffets and and carrot top performing nightly on the Lido deck, uh, which is truly the apocalypse. I can't think of. Uh, a more horrific thought than that. Uh, we have to wrap it up. Uh, we're I'm out of time. I just want to say I'm uh, I'm worried uh, about all this chatter about Coda, the film Coda. Uh, it's all anybody's talking about, and I worry that this endless chatter about the movie Coda winning Best Picture is drowning out the will. Smith slap. I, I worry that we're not talking enough about Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. Uh, I know you're sick of hearing about Will Smith. All I can say is if I'm sitting in an audience and some comic makes fun of my wife's alopecia, I'm going to turn to her and say, honey, you going to take that from him? You get up there and slap that son of a bitch. By the way, there are new reports that the Academy lied. Gee, what a surprise when they said Will Smith was asked to leave, but refused. That was the official statement coming out of the Academy yesterday, that they asked Will Smith to leave, but he wouldn't. David Rubin, president of the Academy, and Dawn Hudson, she's the CEO of the Academy, they issued a statement saying they were furious and requested that Will Smith be removed but they never spoke to Will Smith. The only person who spoke to Will Smith was the producer of the Academy Awards, Will Packer. And according to Variety today, Packer was overheard by two witnesses saying to Will Smith, we do not want you to leave because Will Packer was the producer and he answers to ABC, not the movie Academy. And this is only about ratings. Packer has refused to talk to the media about this, but he tweeted after the slap, quote, I told you it wouldn't be boring. Chris Rock is assaulted. Will Smith gets to stay all in the name of commerce. And it didn't even bring in the ratings. It turned out to be the second lowest rated Academy Awards in history. Will Packer sold his soul for what? Nobody watched 
you you kept Will Smith seated for the ratings and you didn't get any. I think OJ said it best. The question I've been getting is Will Smith and Chris Rock. Hey, look, it was unfortunate. I, I, I think Will was wrong. Uh, look, I understood the feeling. Now, uh, in my life, I've been through a lot of crap when I was raising two young kids, and every comedian in the country had an OJ routine. And don't think I wouldn't want to be slapped a couple of those guys, but you got to accept it's, it's humor. Thank you, O.J. Simpson, the paragon of rectitude and restraint. I love how he says B-slap. Sure, he could have said bitch, but out of respect for his audience, he said B instead of bitch, because O.J.'s a class act. We will be right back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. Oh, no, thank you. No, thank you. I love you. Thank you. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinel. Dan, in the newsroom, we're going to do the quiz master. Uh, I, I went over. It's been a rough day. Uh, we were visiting doctors today, and I can't think of a better guest than Marshall Allen, author of Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win. Go buy Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and when welcome back it's an honor to have you back on the show thank you so much marshall allen can you hear me marshall you have to unmute yourself hang on hang on there you go. sorry about that no no uh, thank you i had to switch i had to switch my phone my internet went out at my house like 10 minutes ago so here i am did you pay the first bill for your internet 
I always pay my internet bill. They show me the price. So, you know, you can't uh, complain if they show you the price up front, even if you don't like it. Right. Like that's the catch with our healthcare system. You know, they don't give you the prices and then they, they hit you with these ridiculous prices, which is why you have to check the bills. Right. Well, let me embarrass you first. You're a great man. You, uh, were a reporter for ProPublica. Now you work for the Inspector General for Health and Human Services down in Texas. And I do. Yes. And you're a great man. You're an Inspector General. And you well, work, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not actually an Inspector General. I do, you know, like uh, analysis for the Inspector General's office, um, looking into the way our federal government spends healthcare money. But yes. I always have to throw this caveat out. Anytime I'm speaking here, it's as an author, as an educator, talking about my book, um, because the inspector general's office wants to be sure that, um, you know, they know when I'm speaking on their behalf, which I've never done because I'm actually brand new there. I've only been there for about eight months. So I'm still learning very much um, the ways of that job. So, right. Um, I'm not speaking on their behalf here, obviously. Well, you are a great man. I met you through the Ralph Nader radio hour. Yeah. You were on the Ralph Nader radio hour and you talked about your book, never pay the first bill and other ways to fight the healthcare system and win. It has the Feldman guarantee. Go buy, never pay the first bill and other ways to fight the healthcare system and win. And if it doesn't pay for itself, I will reimburse you. I promise you this book will pay for itself. And I made $430. Oh man, you're making my day here. Last Wednesday because of Marshall Allen, author of never pay the first bill and other ways to fight the healthcare system and win. And, and okay, tell us that story. That sounds good. I like that. Well, okay. Uh, first, I should mention that uh, Marshall Allen will help you go over your medical bills. He does I it will. for free. And he has a training. Yes. You have a class. You, you've even offered to come to office hours and go over medical bills with uh, my listeners. And I, I don't want to I want to talk about your your newsletter. I believe it's on HubSpot. Substack. Substack. Yep. My what, Substack what newsletter. Yeah. Yes. Substack. How do people subscribe to this? So go uh, to subscribe to the newsletter. That's marshallallen.substack.com. And if I was at my keyboard here, I'd throw a link into the um, the chat. But it's basically my name is Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, Allen, A-L-L-E-N, dot substack.com. And it's free, but I'm doing something kind of cool. Substack is a great platform for independent writers to raise money. So people can donate. I'm encouraging people to donate if they want to. And then I'm taking all those donations and I'm actually donating them. All those proceeds go to hire professional patient advocates. Um, sometimes people's cases get too complicated. They can't handle it on their own and they can't sort through the bills on their own. Thank you, Ann. I see uh, Ann put it in the chat. Thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm taking all those proceeds, I'm donating them to hire paid professional advocates for people in need. Or, you know, I might even, um, if I can raise enough money, uh, start hiring attorneys. You know, sadly, 
Um, patients are often sued by hospitals if they are unable to pay their bills, which I think is completely unjust. And I, my dream is if I could raise enough money, I could actually fund some attorneys to protect these patients um, against these unfair lawsuits. Well, last time you were on the show, we talked about the buddy system. You find somebody who is having some health issues. The last thing they want to go through is Aetna or United Healthcare. And the, the kindest thing you can do in America is buddy up with a sick person and say, let me go over the bill with you. Let me talk to the health insurance companies. It's a celebration of everything to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's the, it's the greatest gift you can give to old people or sick people is being their buddy and, and making the calls uh, to the health insurance company so sick people can spend their time uh, doing what's really important. So I have a, a neighbor, uh, late 70s, early, I've never really asked him how old he is, and he needed his sinuses to get an MRI is there's been they've been clogged and they they you know at his age they didn't know what it was and mm -hmm. he needed an MRI and I take him I, I don't have the bill in front of me and I, I I'm disorganized so I take him to a uh, a radiology mill and there must have been a hundred people in the waiting room. They're just moving wow. them in and out, in and out. And he needs an MRI. And uh, he gives me his credit card and I, his car, I go up and they say his copay, I think, I, I don't, I think it was $430, I think, mm -hmm. something like that. And I go, wow. And then they, uh, the, the, the woman behind the counter says, wait, 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 I have to call his doctor. Let me just check something. And she says, no, no, we're, he's supposed to get this MRI, not that MRI. And I go, okay, okay. And I give her my credit card, his credit card, and $430. And I look at the readout. Now, I had just done the Ralph Nader radio hour, like it was mm -hmm. right after. Not a good time for me to be out in the world because I'm looking for a fight. Yeah, uh, right. And this guy just wants <laughs> to find out. <laughs> He's, he brought I just want to know what's in my nose and my sinuses. And I look at the bill and it's fourteen hundred dollars, Marshall. Wow. Fourteen hundred dollars. And not I not even close. Yeah. So I, I said, uh, excuse, excuse me, how is this fourteen hundred dollars? And the woman goes, that's what we charge. And I said, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but that's what I ask. Why is it 14? Well, that's the going rate. I go, really? For I said, how long does it take? She goes, three minutes. I said, it's three minutes to, to, to take a photograph of this guy's sinuses? She goes, that's what we charge. I said, let me speak to your manager. The manager comes out. And now I'm, you know, I, I, re, I think yeah. there's, I'm, I'm the a-hole here. And I go, I'm not trying to be rude here, but my friend, you know, $1,400 for an MRI. That's what we charge. I said, can you just double check? And she goes, that's what we, and he's going, can we get my, you know, <laughs> one yeah. and I'm well, in a second. So she goes, that's what we charge. That's what we charge. I go, just seems unfair. She goes, what do you care? The health insurance company is oh, going to yeah. pay for it. And I said, uh, I don't know, just seems like a lot of money. And yeah, I said, well, this is why we have high premiums, right? I mean, 
when people think um, they're not paying it out of pocket, and you know, we are paying in the long run. Um, working Americans are paying through higher premiums, higher deductibles, less coverage, um, even Medicare, you know, they reduce coverage, um, premiums go up, you know, this is how we pay. So the technician comes out and I'm still arguing, not ar not arguing. Yeah, my, pressing them. My older friend is pulling on my shirt. Please, David, can I go get my MRI? And I said, it's it's not the principle, it's the money. I said, that's that's what I always say. It's not the principle of this. It's yeah, the, it's the money. I said, I will be back. And I start walking behind him. He's talking to the tech. The technician is saying it's an MRI. Are you claustrophobic? And I tap the technician as we're walking. Go look at this bill. And the guy, my friend goes, David, we I'm I'm getting uh, I need to get my, you're embarrassing uh, me, please, <laughs> please. I, I, I this is the last time I'm going to ask you to take me for these visits. I go, I can't help it. It's for I said, look at this bill, Mr. Technician. And the guy looks at it and he goes, oh, that's seven hundred. They're, they're double billing you. No way. I swear to God. And I go. We're going back. And my friend is, no, I want my MRI. I go, no, we're not. And we, I said, I don't care about your MRI. And we went back and they uh, my and they erased his deductible. And to his my friend's credit, he goes, OK, that was worth it. Now let's go get the MRI. And no, that's amazing. But you had asked them again at the front desk you asked even the manager to check in yes. and they blew you off yes you persist and you ask the tech and the tech points it out to you and i'm the That's jerk incredible. and i said and i said why am i the jerk in all this why right. am i the a well, you're not you're not you're the hero actually yeah. this is you're the hero and this is but it's a great example of how first of all a few things first the price is never the price right these prices, to be quite honest, are made up to begin with, especially when you look at the initial charges in a hospital, in a doctor's office. They set these exorbitant charges and then they expect the insurance companies to have discounts off of those charges. Those discounts are also not based on the actual cost of the care that's being provided. The discounts are based on market share, the brand name of the insurance company and the number of patients they can bring to the medical provider or the hospital. They're not based on the actual cost. And so as a patient, you might be covered by say United Healthcare and pay $3,000 for that MRI. You might be covered by Medicare and pay $500 for that MRI. There's no fairness in pricing in the system. And so my argument is always, there's no good reason why one patient should pay more for that MRI than any other patient. We should not be discriminating against people based on their healthcare coverage. And so I always point to people, here's how you find the price. And then here's how you advocate for the best price. Now, your friend sounds like he was on Medicare. Mm -hmm. So that was prob probably already the lowest price or ar around the lowest price they were offering. But he had to go out and of I pocket think, on something. Oh, he did. So, yeah. But still, um, for an MRI, I think a price of around, you know, was it $500 or $700? Yeah. Um, those are expensive, you know. But I've heard of people paying thousands of dollars from, for an MRI in a hospital. So, um you know, and also, again, I just want to throw this tip out. When you need an imaging test and it's not an emergency, uh, you have a discretion to where you go, go to an independent imaging center, not a hospital imaging center. It will be way cheaper in those facilities. Um, but so how much did you end up saving then? 700? Uh, I, I don't have the bill in front of me. 
I, I'm pissed off at myself. It was about a couple of, well, I didn't say it was his money, but it was a couple hundred dollars. And uh, he hasn't offered to buy me lunch or dinner or well, that's a whole not, other. I would say Uber Eats is on him next time. I, I, yes. uh, take your pick. Yeah. Uh, well, this is why everybody should go buy Marshall Allen's book, Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System. And when it pays for itself, and if it doesn't, you know, if you buddy up with somebody and take care of their health care problems and it doesn't pay for itself, I will reimburse you. Why is it important to challenge the bill? I, I joke that it's not the principle, it's the money. But by fighting back, what are you accomplishing? For well, for one thing, billing mistakes are incredibly common. So why do you fight back? Why do you check? Because this is a completely chaotic incompetent billing system that we have in healthcare. And you found an error. Now you didn't know it was an error when you found it, but it didn't look right to you. You asked them to check it twice. Two different people checked that bill and didn't notice it was double billed. That's because they weren't listening to you. They weren't paying attention. They weren't checking. And you have um, computers auto adjudicating 96, 97% of all the claims that get processed in America. Millions of claims a day are being processed by our payment system. We have dozens, hundreds of insurance companies. Each insurance company has dozens, hundreds of insurance plans with different types of coverage. This is complete chaos. If you're wondering how do they administer this thing, they don't. It's a complete mess. And so you have to check. And so I tell people, sometimes people are like, well, it sounds kind of hard or it sounds, how am I going to learn how to do that? I'm like, look, you learned how to balance a checkbook. You look at your credit card statements because you want to make sure you're not getting ripped off. In healthcare, that was a three-minute procedure for hundreds of dollars, right? We are talking hundreds or thousands of dollars that these mistakes can cost us. And so mistakes are common. And then overcharges are also just as common. So we want to check for these mistakes and unfair prices. And then I, I also hear from a lot of people who have enough money. They go, look, I don't care if I pay an extra 700 or look, the insurance is covering it or whatever. Right. I don't I'm not buying my time is worth more than my money. And to those people, I would say, look, when you stand up for yourself or in your case, you stood up for your buddy, you're not just standing up for your friend. You are standing against these injustices that are happening to working Americans and Medicare patients across the country every single day. And so we all need to rise up against this. I sometimes say this is like a David and Goliath battle, right? You feel like you're the, the little David up against a giant healthcare uh, Goliath, but we have 380 million Americans who are dealing with this system. We have a lot of Davids in this battle. So if all of us got informed, pressed when the prices didn't seem right, checked our bills, and then started actually fighting back. I mean, checking the bill is just the first step to fighting back, but we can save ourselves a lot of money. And I believe we can turn around this healthcare system. I do believe that consumers need to do it. I, I God bless you. Uh, it's like Mario Savio said, you got to throw yourself on the gears of the machine and yes. slow it down. When you challenge the bill, uh, if enough people challenge the bills, it slows the the machine down and uh you know let me play you a clip i want to ask you about uh, a piece you have in your newsletter entitled the baby survived but the mom almost had a heart attack when she got the hospital bill 
but first, I want to play you Katie Porter, Congresswoman Katie Porter, who was on our show uh, before she got... I don't have elected officials on my show because mm-hmm. I'm not polite. But uh, but when she was running, she was on the show. I, I love yeah. Katie Porter. And I want to ask you to look at this. And have you seen this? Have you seen this clip? She was talking to a Dr. Collins from the Commonwealth Fund. You would think this would be a viral clip. And if we look at just billing costs, just billing and insurance costs, Medicare is at 1%. Wait, private companies spend 17 times more on administrative costs than Medicare? What are private insurance companies spending on that Medicare is not? Does Medicare spend hundreds of millions of dollars on television advertisements like private insurance does? Dr. Collins? No. Does Medicare spend millions of dollars on stock buybacks to shareholders? No. Does Medicare um, spend money on marketing? Private insurance likes to put its name on stadiums and PGA tournaments. Is there a Medicare arena? No. Does Medicare spend $23 million on executive pay like private insurance companies do? No. We know how much it costs to run a high-quality health insurance program. $1. Out of $100, research shows that Medicare spends 1.1% on administrative costs. We spend $4 trillion on health care every year. We could save $200 billion on administrative costs with Medicare for All. And those savings... They could go to expand Medicare. We could spend that money to let patients see dentists. We could spend that money to let patients pay for hearing aids, to help older adults afford eyeglasses, to bring down the cost of prescription drugs, to finally pay mental health professionals for the work they do. Instead, all this money is wasted. We're not talking about paying to keep the lights on in operating rooms or improving the quality of care. All this money is used to, to, to pay big insurance to push paper. It's death by 200 billion paper cuts. That is uh, Congresswoman Katie Porter. My apologies. Uh, that clip blocked out the person signing for the hard of hearing, and I apologize. Have you seen that clip? Marshall. I haven't seen that clip, but I think it's a um, it's a really dramatic and strong and accurate depiction of how wasteful our healthcare system is just in the way we pay for claims. And so I talked about this chaos, right? Right. Part of, a large part of this chaos is because we have so many different insurance companies with different types of insurance plans, with different prices, with different levels of coverage. And so that is estimated to waste. She's right about that number. It's hundreds of billions of dollars a year being wasted just by the inefficient way that we pay for healthcare. And so I, I personally don't advocate, like I've had people, I've had a few people challenge me, you know, Medicare for all advocates have, have emailed me and said, why don't you stand up and fight for Medicare for all? And I think the reason I don't um, personally is because I am, I am trying to focus on the problems for the people who are um, the patients themselves. Right. They don't and have time. People, they don't have time. Yeah. For, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm trying to help people where the problem is really at, where the harm is being done in a very real way. And I also, to be quite honest, maybe I'm too cynical about this, but I don't 
believe um, a political solution is really the answer to the problem we have. I, I, I look at it more of a free market solution. Um, however, that being said, if Medicare for all were to be put in place, I think it's clear that it would simplify the claims processing system. It would simplify the pro- the pricing system. And I do think it would save, um, like she said, at least it would save the, that money that's being wasted right now on the inefficient way that we pay for healthcare. I mean, there's no question. It's absolute chaos, which is why, you know, your uh, friend had the, had the situation. Well, right. Your friend's billing error was actually a little bit different, but right. um, we can talk about this story I just did um, on my well, Substack yeah, I, 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 We have Because that's a perfect example. Yeah. In-network and out-of-network. What are we talking about in-network and out-of-network? If you have private insurance, you probably have heard of surprise medical bills, right? These are the bills that you get when you go to a hospital or a doctor. They don't have an in-network agreement with your insurance plan. The insurance plan pays a small amount, and then that hospital or that doctor sends you what's called a balance bill or a surprise bill for the balance of the unpaid portion of the bill. And of course, it's out of network, so in their mind, that justifies billing you exponentially more, which also makes no sense, okay? So this particular story was about a family with a three-month-old baby named Jacob, and this happened last September. Jacob, one night, 3 a.m., wakes up in the middle of the night. He's having trouble breathing. The parents are panicked. They take him to the hospital. He ends up getting transferred from the hospital closest to their house to Advocate Lutheran General Hospital, which is in the Chicago area. He gets great care there. He's there for two weeks in the intensive care unit, intubated. So this this baby was very sick. They save his life. And to this day, baby Jacob is doing just fine. But the reason I said in the headline that the mom almost had a heart attack when she saw the bill is because they didn't know, but it was an out-of-network bill. The family gets a bill, an unpaid portion, for $183,000. That's what they get hit with from this medical bill. Their Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois plan classified it as out-of-network, so they didn't pay the full price, and they got hit with this massive surprise bill. So... The family is desperate, begging for some type of a solution here. Again, a lot of times I say we have a cruel healthcare system because the the mom told me, her name is Kate. She told me, the hospital just told me that I could afford it. Okay, now the the mom does accounting work. The, the, The dad is a contractor. I don't know about, you know, most families in America don't have an extra $183,000 laying around. In fact, I looked it up. That is three times the median family income in the Chicago area. 183 grand. What do you mean you could just afford it? So anyway, they put her on a $500 a month payment plan because they threatened to send her to collections. She agrees to pay 500 a month. Now think about the absurdity of that. 500 a month is a massive bill. But even at 500 a month, it would have taken until baby Jacob was a 30-year-old man to pay off that $183,000 medical bill. So the family's desperate. They're deep in debt. They're paying 500 a month. And then they they thought about hiring an attorney. They get referred to a patient advocate, a patient advocate named Gail Bick, B-Y-C-K, if anyone wants to ever look her up. She has a, a company called Intune Health Advocates in the Chicago area. Gail looks at this and she can right away see that Illinois is one of the states that has an out of network surprise billing law that protects consumers. 
And just like this is also like the federal No Surprises Act that just got passed. It just went into effect. This law protects consumers from out-of-network bills uh, for especially typically these laws are for emergency services. And what the law says is if you go to an out-of-network hospital for emergency services, they are required to bill you at the in-network rates. They're not allowed to balance bill you with these outrageous charges. So neither the hospital nor the insurance company were following the state law. It only got caught because a patient advocate got involved and knew the law. The patient advocate sends a letter to the insurance company. The insurance company takes care of it at the in-network rates, but it took a patient advocate to insist and press the hospital and the insurance company to comply with Illinois law. And so the warning here for all of us with the No Surprises Act, it's great that the No Surprises Act went into place. Okay, that's going to provide a lot of protection. But we still have to know about it, unfortunately, and make sure that it gets applied. There are a lot of these laws. In fact, since I wrote this column two days ago, I've heard from two other patients that have been hit with out-of-network bills. I look up the state that they're in, and their state also has a out-of-network bill law that's been put into place to protect them, but it hasn't been applied. So I think this happens a lot. And patients need to be informed. And unfortunately, again, you have to check. You have to stand up for yourself. In the Bible, they talk about a jubilee where all debts are forgiven. Yeah. What would happen if America decided instead of a general strike, they said, we are not going to pay. The, the citizens say we are no longer paying our medical bills. We, we're going to go to the doctor. I have Dr. Philip Hershenfeld coming up in three minutes. I, I don't want him to interrupt me quite yet, I'm sure. But if the American people said, you know what? We're not paying our medical bills anymore. All of us do not pay your medical bills. Let, the med let these health insurance companies all go bankrupt and get bailed out by the federal government and let the government sort it out. I believe that would be called single payer Medicare for all. If 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 the doctors, the nurses and the and the American people could somehow stop processing the claims. Go on strike. Do not. Well, so here's here's how I advocate for it in my book. I, I, I believe just ethically that, you know, if we get a good service, we should pay a fair price for it. Right. So um, I believe that we, that we should pay our bills as long as they're fair and accurate. And so when you look at the price variation going on in healthcare right now and more and more of this is now being unearthed because we have price transparency in hospitals, they're now required to post their prices. We have lots of tech companies coming on board with very clever apps that allow us to look up prices. So look at um, healthcarebluebook.com or look at fairhealthconsumer.com. These are websites where you can look up the cost of care and see fair prices in your community and look up your hospital websites. They're now required to post their prices, even though many of them are not complying as they need to be. But my argument is- So if I go to health- Healthcare Blue Book. Healthcarebluebook.com. And it will yeah. tell me what it costs. It'll give you a fair price estimate what we, we lost for, um, for uh, 
whatever service it is that you need. And so you can look up different services in your community and it will tell you what other employer sponsored health plans are paying for that service in your community. And Fair Health Consumer will give you the average of what insurance companies in your area pay for whatever service it is you need. And so I argue that we should be rewarding the hospitals and the doctors and the physical therapists and the dentists, everyone who gives us fair prices, give them our business. People who do not give us fair prices, we should shun them. We should not give them our business. I think that's a fair way to handle it um, because honestly, um, I don't know how we'd coordinate uh, a mass not paying of the bills anyway. Um, I love your Jubilee idea because one in five Americans right now has medical debt in collections. It's the biggest this source is, of bankruptcy in America. It's a, it's a huge source of bankruptcy. This, these are bills people can't afford to pay. And so once it goes to collections, and by the way, that's people who are being pursued by a debt collector. One in three have medical debt. So the number with medical debt is much higher. But if we were to forgive that, look, the system isn't going to get that money anyway. They know it. And so they will take a much lower um, reduced payment for that bill that's in collections because they realize there's low odds of them actually getting paid for that. Um, I would more advocate for forgiving medical debt. I think that's a smart thing to do. It could be written off as charity care for the medical providers. They're probably not going to get that money anyway. And that would be a way uh, to me that would be a more fair way to hit the reset button. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously, I, I don't I don't know that that anybody's ever going to do that anytime soon. But and I have a chapter in my book for people who have medical debt in collections to help them, too. Well, I want to bring in Dr. Philip Hershenfeld in a second. Uh, you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We are talking to Marshall Allen, who has been kind enough to come on the show. Once again, he's author of Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win. Uh, buy the book. Uh, you were on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. He's endorsed this book. And you saved my friend a couple of hundred dollars. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst, and uh, Ethan Hershenfeld is a brilliant comedian and actor. Uh, Dr. Hershenfeld, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I have a bunch of thoughts. Um, it is possible to get excellent medical care in this country if you are upper middle class, and if you are very well educated. Otherwise, it's the luck of the draw. Um, why, why, what does education have to do with it? Because you're smart enough to, to know how to navigate the system and what to look for, right. how to find a good hospital, how to find a good doctor, things like that. That's one thing I have to say. Right. Another thing I have to say is there's not going to be any reform the medical industry or the drug industry, as long as our Congress is um, play for pay. Yeah, they're funded by the healthcare industry. Yeah, of course. And for example, the, the, one of the laws that I find most egregious is that Medicare is not allowed to uh, bargain with drug companies. They have to pay the full price 
list price, whatever it is, even though they spend billions every year. And that's just because of the lobbyists who paid off congressmen. George, um, it's George W. Bush, right? Medicare Part D. Yeah. Um, well, and this is this is why I don't put a lot of hope in our elected officials bringing about meaningful reform, because what we need is really true disruptive reform. If, if about a fourth of all of our medical spending is wasted on things like, you know, hundreds of billions spent on wasted claims processing, we should be able to reduce our health care costs by about a fourth. So if we're spending four trillion a year, we should be able to spend about three trillion a year and still get high quality health care while ensuring everyone, by the way. Hold um, on. I'm, I just want to do the, the math there. So four yeah. billion to three billion. So that's a savings of a, of a trillion. That's of a, a savings trillion of a dollars. I've, I've done the math on that. That is enough money to insure every person in the United States um, with with very, very good benefits. That is a huge, huge savings. And all the studies, if you look at it, uh, Institute of Medicine did a study in 2012 where they estimated that the waste of the American healthcare system was about $800 billion. So if you think that the size of the um, Department of Defense's budget is big, 800 billion dwarfs the size of the Defense Department budget. And so the numbers in healthcare are so staggering, they're so monumental, that if we could really bring about disruptive reform, then we could lower the cost of care for everyone while giving everyone better health care coverage. And so that's really what I advocate for in my book. I show employers how they can do it, and I show individuals how they can do it. Marshall, is is a trillion dollars still considered a lot of money? <laughs> I think so. Yes, I do think okay. so. Okay. Yeah. It's certain parts I, of I know, it, certain I know parts we of have country. a lot of inflation. Uh, we do have a lot of inflation, but I do think a trillion is still a pretty hefty sum. Yeah. Okay. It goes a long way in places like Omaha. And you know, here in the city, but <laughs> do you, Marshall? Do you have a chapter in your book? By the way, I just signed up for your Substack, so thank, thank you, you for, for plugging that because yeah. I really need help with that. Do you have a chapter on coupons and coupon cutting? Because so that's I, I have found very effective with like like the other day I I bought this uh, this brand of uh, marinara sauce I'd never had before, and I found it was called Yo Mama, which I thought is a terrible name, but I bought it, and then I got it home and I realized that there was actually chicken stock in it, which in Italy, they would kill you for that. So I wrote to them, I emailed them, and they sent me a coupon so I could have their non-chicken based Oh, well, that, uh, was nice. that was nice of them. So I, you find, is there a lot of couponing? And, and there's, there's not a lot of couponing like we think of traditional couponing, but good RX. I mean, that's that's like a coupon. And so um, when I talk about uh, drug prices, if you look up the good RX website and good RX is um, making money off of our dysfunctional way that we price prescription drugs. And you can usually find the best price for drugs in your community by going on GoodRx and then going, they will route you using the GoodRx coupon to the pharmacy in your community where they have the best price on drugs. It's really good for like one individual drug that you might get. The problem is if you're on multiple medications, 
you typically want to get those from the same pharmacy. So it's not a uh, it's not a perfect system. Do you have a, a chapter on sweet talking the receptionist? Because I find when I go to the doctor <laughs> that a lot of times, like, for example, if they don't have an appointment at the time I need, it's the doctor will not help. The doctor will not budge. He's, he's really out of touch. But I find if I can just crack a joke or compliment Definitely. the receptionist, does that is there a chapter on that? So I don't I don't have a whole chapter on sweet talking the receptionist, but I do have a lot in there on negotiating, right? Because a lot of this is about negotiating. Just like David was saying, hey, are you sure that this price is right? Could you take a second look at this, right? How about um, this? And I, ha- I have found, you know, when you go with that that front desk person, you really want to be friendly with that front desk person. They will help you get your medical records, get your itemized bill, um, get all the things you need to check your bill. So definitely let me, uh, you catch more flies with honey, right? Let me try this right now, Marshall. Negotiate. Yeah. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, Freudian psychoanalyst. I am having trouble with insomnia. Instead of going through my insurance company, I brought a chicken. (laughs) Will you take a chicken? The barter system. (laughs) No, they won't take a chicken. And one of the reasons that this is not going to be cured is because there are too many people at the trough. And they don't want to solve it. And uh, like the insurance companies, like the politicians. So there's very little incentive to bring down the price of anything. That's one piece of the puzzle. Another piece of the puzzle is, yeah, the hospitals are terrible people and then we should burn them all down, whatever. But I know for a fact, one of the great nonprofit hospitals in this country and I'm not going to mention what it is. They're on the verge of bankruptcy. They're not the only one. And um, so, yeah, we could stop paying hospital bills, but uh, I think we're then we're going to have no hospitals. I, I, um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, have to, I, I agree with you. I have a friend who's been going through Obamacare, uh, <clears throat> Medicaid. And I have to say that the care, edu- an educated friend, and the, the, the health care has been stellar and it's free. I, I, I have to say that about New York State. It, it, mm-hmm. I, I, I buddied up with this person and their Medicaid is stellar. So studies have shown that there is no relationship in healthcare between the quality of care you get and the price you pay for it. So in other that's words, what I, that's what I've been telling all of my doctors. They, they're all, by the way, between their addresses are between 500 and 800 on Park Avenue. Every one of them, the all the doctors are on Park Avenue and uh, they're they're uh, they're uniformly terrible. So very high rent, very high prices. On Third Avenue. Third Avenue. See, <laughs> yeah. do, you think, do you think I would find a better deal if I went off of Park Avenue? You browse at on Park Avenue. You buy on Third Avenue. <laughs> very smart. Marshall Allen is the author of. <laughs> Before you let him go, can I ask him one more question? Yes, please. 
Do you think it's a problem that uh, the Mayo Clinic is named after uh, a food item that's that unhealthy? <laughs> you know, I'm guessing that their branding people have thought that one through. I'm sure every time they get a new president, they must have a meeting, yeah. right? They bring in the PR people. They bring in the advertising and branding people. They say, can we do anything about <laughs> yeah, this? Mustard. Maybe, mustard. Like, oh, maybe they could go with like Mayo Light. Yeah, or the mustard or the or the, the yeah. pesto or soy, you know, mayo with soy or something, yes. just so it's an alternative. So it doesn't mm-hmm. sound so unhealthy. I'm sure they must be having those conversations. Um, I just before I go, I just want to say thank you for having me here. Oh, and my also, my website is marshallallen.com. And I'm serious. If anybody needs help with your medical bills or any other question you have, send me a message through my website. I read all those. I respond to all those. And I'm always very happy to help people because I've been helping a lot of people and they're saving tons of money. And then I write those case studies up in my newsletter. These are victory stories. And right. It's a lot of fun for me. So reach out to me. It's a great and also, story. I want to say, reach out to me if you've bought a consumer product that you don't like and you want someone to send a complaint email. I love doing that. And I can get you a coupon. Frequently, they send you a coupon. Hang on. Hold that thought for one second. Let me, uh, Marshall Allen was a reporter for ProPublica. He currently works for the Inspector General of the HHS in in Texas. And he uh, is the author of Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win. Follow him on Twitter at Marshall underscore Allen, A-L-L-E-N. Buy this book. If it doesn't pay for itself, let me know. I will reimburse you. Uh, you were on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and it's an honor to have you back. You do great. It's a great Thank you. service. Thank you, Marshall Allen. Thank you. Well, it's, hi. hi. It's now time for the Hershenfelds. I wanted to take care of a little. We're, I'm sorry. We're finally in prime time, I think. We've never been in prime time before. Well, we were we were trying you out, and okay. thank you for accommodating me. Dan in the newsroom, do you want to do the, the quiz at the bottom of the hour and see if we could bleed into uh, Emil and the Hershenfelds? We can all compete. Dan, if that's okay with you. All right. Dan is away from his desk. Uh, I like the idea of having a consumer advocate on this show. That has disappeared. There there used to be consumer advocates in the 60s, in the 70s, and then the Powell memo was written and they said, why are you using the public airwaves and why are you using newspapers to humiliate corporate America? They're, They're sponsoring all your stuff. There are no more consumer advocates. The closest we have to consumer advocates are people who publicly shame local uh, automotive uh, repairmen who are not linked to any chains who advertise like your your grandfather, Ethan. He was uh, he repaired autos. Yeah, he was a, he fixed the springs. That was the doctor's father. He fixed the springs on trucks and buses. I think he. He was very, I think he did good work and was not very, uh, he didn't overcharge. I don't think he would have gotten a lot of complaints if there was Yelp back in the day. He, in fact, he would forget to cash people's checks. They would pay him by checks. And then you would find, apparently, his bookkeeping was terrible, which runs in the family. And then you would 
apparently years later, you could just find a check that was from several years earlier that hadn't been. Yeah. Also, he would take. He was into the barter system. Uh, the doctor frequently had like a a Buick that was maybe eight to ten years old that came from his dad because his dad would just take payment for jobs. Someone would just give him the old Buick or leave, right? right? If they didn't pay for it, they would say, you know what, I, I don't need the car, just keep it. Right. I remember the height of the financial crisis. I'm watching uh, Los Angeles news, height of the financial crisis. You know, Channel 4 is on the job. This, uh, this uh, car wash in Vicuna, California, we tested the workers there and left $5 in change. And when we came, when we came back, there was four dollars and thirty cents. You know, they, they stole seventy. And I'm like, is this a put on? Like, we're on the job protecting you. We we spoke to the manager, and he fired those. I'm thinking, good for you. You know, that's that's how they're protecting us. The height of the financial crisis. You know, his his father at his spring shop, they had a gag like that. They had a silver dollar that was welded to a piece of metal attached to the ground, which they am I telling this right? This is, this is a true story, yeah. Yeah, and the guys, the workers, would just watch to see if customers would, you know, and then they would look around to see, make sure no one was looking, and reach over to pick this thing up, and it was attached to some, like, uh, rebar attached to the ground. See, I'm, I'm torn, and, and this is, I want to talk about being Jewish with you, because I had an, an incident uh, challenging a bill, uh, at a radiology lab and uh, they asked me what my name was and I, I said David Wilson my name is David Wilson <laughs> when I challenge a bill I am reinforcing every unfortunate stereotype you can't let that you can't let that yeah you can't let that i know what you mean i mean of course we have one has an awareness of what the stereotypes are and but it's best not to let that get in the way of your of, of what you know is right i the have stereo the stereotypes are going to be there no matter what you do or don't do so don't think you can influence the stereotypes in the people who hold on to them. So when I go to a restaurant, I should, I don't have to tip 7%. You don't have to tip at all. What are you talking go about back 7%? To tipping, I can tip at 2% like any normal person. <laughs> but to, but to tell you the truth, I am affected by that kind of thinking also. So I routinely, this is my neurosis, I routinely over tip. Me too. I dad, I have the I have the that's identical what, thing. That's what I do. Of, the, yeah. of fighting the stereotype. So wait yeah, a second. I have, yeah. Doctor, I, I never want to pry into your personal life. But oh, yeah. you're admitting that you over I I don't mean to cross any boundaries here, but you admit to yeah. over tipping? I admit to over tipping? Did you just admit yeah. I do. That's shameful. Absolutely shameful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to say this, David, on the subject of consumer advocacy. I know that 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 uh, 
the professional in that area does not exist anymore. But I really do do this as a, yeah, I find it fun. Like if any product, and I recommend people do this, and I'm not kidding, if anyone has had an experience where they were dissatisfied or they, a product that they bought was terrible, actually contact me. I love writing these letters because here's my technique and I will share it for free. My technique is never ask for anything. I never ask. I just write to them. I say, I bought this thing. Here's what was wrong with it. I'm, I was a little disappointed and nine times out of ten they just send me coupons for the replacement thing. It's just a weird because these companies are very um, conscious of wanting to have a great reputation. Right. Right. Well, why don't we do uh, why don't we give you a segment? I'd love to. I can read some of my letters right. and show some of my coupons. I, I have those. I, in fact, the, the recent one was was ridiculous. I bought this. Do you know what jackfruit wait, is? Wait, wait. Hang on. Hang on for one second. Hang on for one second. What if you're I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you're our consumer advocate. But every segment is you fighting for you. Like it's I'm on your side, but, but, but it's always the cable company screwing Ethan. It's always yeah. getting your deposit back. I'm a consumer advocate, and I'm the consumer. Um, but do you want? Since I'm a psychoanalyst, I'm interested in the origins of things. And here's the origin of things: many, many, many years ago. Before he was even born, I was a medical student and I was eating Samat's cherry applesauce. Uh -oh. And there was a pit in the Mott's cherry applesauce. And I actually broke a tooth and I went to the dentist and you know he repaired it for whatever it cost a few hundred bucks in those days I took the pit I taped it to a letter I gave the whole story did you tape a piece of the cracked tooth on there also I didn't. no I sent the bill for the cracked tooth and um, and I said I am sure that your uh, chemical analysis will show that in fact this is your cherry pit and they sent me a check for the whole thing no questions asked so you're better at this than i am they would have just sent me a bottle of applesauce if i work for Mott's, i would have said hey you're in luck you like applesauce now you have no teeth buy more applesauce <laughs> <laughs> you don't need teeth to eat our applesauce I, I would say that I would back up further in that story and say, what's the origin and the perversion that would lead anyone to buy the cherry yes. flavored applesauce? Yes. That is highly uh, irregular. It's, but, the, it's he's you know what it is? He was trying to fight the sense memory of the pa potato pancakes from Passover. So he wanted something. He didn't want to. He didn't want it to be like a Marcel Proust Madeline and all the yeah. images of have, have you ever tasted the cherry applesauce? I'd like to inquire. I haven't. I'm, so as usual, I'm spouting off with no evidence. Don't knock it until you've tried it. Okay, I'm putting it on the list. I'm going to try it. But why? I don't know if you still why? make it, though. But anyway, it used to be good. Why would your mind go there? 
to adding cherry to applesauce. I'm going to have to agree with your colleague on this. I think it's the the marketing people. They have to they have to keep the company moving forward through innovation. But, let, let me let me yeah. can can I tell the jackfruit story? Yes. Okay. Do you know what that is? It's one of these you know vegans uh, have to find meat like things elsewhere. So this jackfruit. Apparently it's a it's a real fruit. It's also my nickname. It. They used to call me a jackfruit, but that's a whole other story. This and jackfruit. Then, that was my nickname on the volleyball team. Send <laughs> uh, I've had this product before. It comes in a kind of yellow pouch. This one, I was eating it, and then I, I got something in my mouth. It reminded me of the last scene in Sweeney Todd when the kid discovers fingernails in, in the chop meat. Because there was something in this jackfruit that had the distinct texture and shape of a fingernail. So I wrote to them, and I said, this is probably part of the fruit or the husk or something. And they said, indeed it is. We usually remove it. But, uh... You got one. So I, I, that, that was my whole, uh, I simply said to them, this happened. They sent me an envelope full of coupons. And how do You're people. On a roll. Yeah. How do you. How do and people, a nail clipper. And a nail clipper. How do people contact you to do this? Oh. Well, you can email me. My, my email address is eh and then bass, like the fish, ehbass at gmail. Uh, it's actually bass from when I was a singer, but when I say bass, then people don't know how to spell it. So I just say ehbass, like the fish, at gmail. If you have a consumer issue, email me. I, I would love to help you out. Yeah. I could save you a trillion dollars like that other guy. I perfected the slow talk. When, when you call about the cable bill and hi, I want to ask and what? Yes, of course. Well, because I've done I you could ask my daughter. We, we got a washer and dryer. I slow talked Time Warner cable into a washer and dryer. And it, That's amazing. I think I unconsciously did the slow talk on the on the phone this morning with three one one. I was calling because there's a there's this North Fifth Street Pier Park right near me. Beautiful place to walk your dogs. There's a ferry. There's all sorts of nice stuff. And there's you're not allowed to smoke in New York City parks. But there's very little signage. So a lot of people think that's the place to go smoke. So I said, you know what? I'm going to stop bothering people and just call 311. Well, you're, and, you're in um, a park asking people to stop smoking? Of course, every day, multiple times. So you're not allowed to smoke in parks in New York City. Yeah, I know that. But this is <laughs> New York City. No, but I ask very nicely. There's a lot of uh, um, passive aggressive. It's like, I'm so sorry to bother you. I know that this is it. I really, please, please forgive me. But, but here's the thing. And do they, do they ever more, stop? They do. I mean, frequently they'll put it out in my face. In, yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm no. thinking of Paul Hanreed in uh, now Voyager with the two cigarettes. I can just see the guy lighting up two cigarettes. I'll put no, it out. Frequently, um, no, this morning uh, a woman said, uh, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. Uh, I just moved back. I didn't realize that. And I was like, yeah, it's just all the parks. And then a woman next to her said, oh, don't, don't listen to him. Just smoke, smoke your <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Yeah. I would suspect 
there isn't a single woman who will put the cigarette out. A couple of men will. I, the odds are that a man will put the cigarette out, but no woman will put the cigarette out. Almost no one puts it out, but but there's a there's a range of most people are, are perfectly friendly. I mean, honestly, uh, and I don't do it constant. I don't do it a lot. I'll, 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 but I here's here's what I told three one one. There are a lot of no swimming signs that are very visible. So I said to the three one one woman, you know, not a lot of people go swimming in the East River. But people are smoking here all the time. Maybe you need some no smoking signs. Anyway, this is uh, Dr. Hershenfeld. You, I, I, it looked like you wanted to say something. Don't be shy, doctor. Oh, Speak your mind. Yeah. Yes. No, I've just been enjoying listening. Right. Do I have you have something to say? Believe me, I'm not shy. Well, what if if Dan is here, the quiz master? Dan, are you here? We can do our our quiz. Should we should we have uh, the Hershenfelds compete? Sure. Okay. Sure. And, okay. And you got a lot of Coors Light there, Dan. Look at all that Coors Light. It's time for Stump the Humps. And uh, why don't we have father versus son? And I'll play two. What? The three of us will play. What? What's the prize? I'd like to know. The the prize is yes, uh, money in the kitty. Oh yeah, we put money in the yeah. We'll put some money in the kitty. Hang on. Uh, We I never know what the quiz is until he sends me the answers an hour before the show starts. Let me put uh, some money in the kitty. I would buy. A 1954 Indian Chief motorcycle. That's my advice. And 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 have Che Guevara riding on the back. Isn't that what he drove? What what is the quiz, Matt? Oh, master! Oh, quiz master! I have a feeling quiz master um, is not a good word anymore. <laughs> I have a. So I was researching. Uh, our normal birthday quizzes. You're breaking up there. Can't hear. Can't hear. Is that better? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I was researching our uh, birthday quizzes as of late, and I stumbled upon the fact that very you. No, we we can't hear you. Why don't Why don't you? We'll give it ten more seconds. If you can't fix it, we'll we'll come back. You'll shoot them. How is that? Is that better? No. I think it's yeah. better. Okay. I think it's better. Okay, so the quiz today is on magic. Nope. Quizmeister. The Quizmeister. Fix your audio, Quizmeister. Okay. Uh, I And we'll try to get you in the next hour. Is that okay? I'm sorry. Very good. Yep. It's all right. I I am. Um, I, Dan, oh, thanks. Hey, can I plug something? Sure. All right. Um, I'm I got a gig. I'm shooting a thing. I had rehearsal today. You can see it. Uh, it's a pilot. I'm in a pilot episode of something called Blank Slate. It's an NBC uh, drama. It's about a Homeland Security guy. And uh, I'm a bad guy. Um, blank Slate. Look for it on a screen near you if NBC picks it up. 
Wow. You are the busy. I've never seen anybody as busy as you. Well, I try. You should see all the napping I get to do. It's not that busy. I wish it was busier. Um, I also booked a movie. It's called Bound, like uh, like your book is bound. Right. Bound. And um, so that's an independent feature that uh, happened also. Um, wow. And then um, oh. I booked an audio drama where I'm doing a fake English uh, accent from the 40s. And somehow I convinced them. So uh. this is great. Yeah, some gigs. Yeah. And, and, and you've just been named a consumer advocate for this show. Consumer advocate. And then let me plug one other thing. I have a friend in Italy, in Puglia, which is the heel of the boot, if you look at the map. Um, Puglia, the, the, the big city in Puglia is called Bari, B-A-R-I. And he has a place there, my friend Mario, has a place called Pigment Workroom. Please look up Pigment Workroom. This is one of his gorgeous uh, works of art. Wow. He does prints, he does street art, he does graffiti, he does screen printing. So please look up Pigment Workroom. He's a good friend of mine, and um, I wanted to give him a plug. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Hershenfeld? Is I it? have nothing to plug. I'm sorry. It's against the ethics of my profession, actually, to plug anything. Okay? You, you satisfied now? <laughs> Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst, and his colleague, Ethan Hershenfeld, is a brilliant comedian who you can watch right now on YouTube. Thug, thug, Jew. Thug, Thug, Jew. Two thugs, one Jew. That's the title. <laughs> thug, Thug, Jew. It's approaching a million views um, from below very slowly. But it is approaching. It's in that direction. The number of views is going up, not down. So it is approaching a million. That's that's impressive. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, share it. If you liked it, if you watched it, please leave a comment. It really helps. And please share it. Um, you know, we got to pay these medical bills somehow. Right, right. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you, Dr. Hershenfeld. I Thank look you. forward to seeing you. See you next week. Happy Toodaloo. Next week. Next Goodbye. Week. Thank you. And thank you for working around my schedule today. Thank Anytime. you. Anytime. I appreciate Goodbye. it. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, let us now go to California. There you are. There's hey. Neil Guillermo. How are hey. you? I'm fine. How are you, David? How are you? How are I'm, you? I'm, uh, you know. Are, are you hanging in there? It's, it's cold back there. It's right? cold. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's We're coming up April Fool's Day is tomorrow. I hate April Fool's. I used to love it. I used to love April, but now then everyone got in on it, you know, right. and, and now you can't tell what's, you know, what's, you know, when you're being fooled or who's saying anything right. So I, I stay away. I stay away from April Fool's. But thanks for reminding me. Yeah. I'll be on guard. Uh, Sir Paul McCartney is teaming up with PETA. Apparently, yes. as if Starbucks doesn't have enough problems <laughs> with unions. Yeah. It turns out they're charging for plant-based milk. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that. But, you know, Sir Paul has a soft spot in his heart for PETA and has always been there. And in fact, um, you know, like my, my wife has been with PETA for over 30 years. And that's when we first met 
Sir Paul years ago. So you met Sir Paul. You met a Beatle. Well, I mean, it was in passing. I th- is that a Beatle? Is that? I, I wasn't sure, but it it was you know I was I was like in the in the in the background and he was in the foreground. But but yeah, my my wife has met Sir Paul. Has met the. the I met. I, I'm being serious. I met Pete Best. Oh, you did, Pete Best, the the drummer. Yeah. The the original drummer. Right. I guess he would be the fifth Beatle. I guess. Well, really. Stuart Suth- Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe would be uh, the. Uh, was he the fifth Beatle? I think so. And then he died. I thought it was Murray the K was called himself the Murray fifth Murray the Be- K was the fifth Beatle from yeah. Yes, he was the disc jockey who brought the Beatles. So what did your wife talk to Sir Paul? Oh, I believe she had well, I was like off in the distance. So I think she did have a little uh verbal kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, verbal intercourse, as they say. Yeah. Uh, conversation. <laughs> that's yes, that's probably the better word. Conversation. But, you know, he's he's a special guy, of course, Sir Paul. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of my friends uh, compete. Have you met a Beatle? If you've uh, met a Beatle. Uh, how about Yoko? Does she count? I met Yoko. Uh, did you really? Yeah, I, I I had a nice conversation back when we were in San Francisco together. I did a story on I mean, Yoko had a, a gallery exhibition. I did meet Yoko and and I think she signed my reporter's notepad, I think. But I, of course, I can't find that reporter's notepad. But I, I think she signed it because I said, you know, I, I have the same birthday as John. And I mean, you're not born on the exact same day, but. That day in October, John Lennon's birthday. Wow. Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine. That would be a good... Imagine that would be a good song title. Imagine that. I'm waiting waiting for inspiration to strike. I got the title. Now I just need the rest of the chords and the... Yeah. I, uh, I can't play it on the show, but I was watching John Lennon and Chuck Berry on the Mike Douglas show. Everybody should Google uh, Chuck Berry Uh and John Lennon meeting each other and performing together on the Mike Douglas show with Yoko singing along, going, I mean, she literally goes, and she's singing along and they kill her microphone and and she persists. It's so funny that she would think that she could join. This is the two icons, this landmark moment of Chuck Berry and John Lennon meeting his hero and Yoko. (laughs) David, she she was doing the the Asian American version of My Ding-A-Ling. Don't you you recognize it? Yes. I hear covers of it all the time at Asian American rock festivals. Yes, most people do not remember my dingling. Chuck oh Berry. come on, David! Come on, that's that's like got to be in the top. My dingling. <laughs> you don't remember my ding. You don't remember my dingling. My ding. Won't you play with my? Yeah, of ding-a-ling. course. There you go. It's a yeah. right, right at the, on the tip of your tongue, as it right. were. My and, dingling. And not my dingling, but a dingling. And on the, the third verse, the- I believe, went uh, "Smell my piss." Well, that's I another think, Chuck Berry 
video <laughs> I'm thinking of. Smell, I think it was. Smell my I think, I think the. I think the, like, call it, I think it was my urine. I think. Do you know what video I'm talking about? I I have not seen that video, but I I'm careful to play any copyrighted material on a show because I played uh, the. Uh, there's this young uh, punk rock Mexican Asian group out of out of uh, out of L.A. And I I play them on my song on my my show and they YouTube dinged me. They said or Facebook dinged me. They say you can't do that. Do you? It's, it's copyrighted material. You know what? You know what? YouTube has destroyed. What have they destroyed? There was a time in my life when you would go to somebody's house, and oh. they had a tape of Pinky the Cat, or oh, yeah. Chuck Berry. Or you know the 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 uh, jacuzzi video of Chuck Berry, or what's her name Jane Kennedy, Jane Kennedy, yeah, the Jane oh, Kennedy he... tape, and this was you know guys would get together, and you know, but now it's all on YouTube. It's all well, no, I mean, you, you mean actually Instagram? Are you on Instagram? Yeah, but I'm saying there were like somebody would have a VHS tape, mm. and you, you know, Pat Oswald was had this amazing collection of shit mm. that he would share, and uh, and YouTube, it's like no no need to hook up with anybody. Let's yeah. talk about uh, violence against uh, Asian Americans. Another Asian yeah. woman was stabbed in New York. Uh, I think a father and son were stabbed coming to the aid of yeah. an Asian woman. And, uh, but Chris Rock and Will Smith, did you hear about this? Uh, two black guys, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, apparently, and they. Tell me they, about this poll. Tell me about the poll. The poll, you know, here's the thing I didn't realize that people would uh, be interested in this. Um, this poll thing, but a, a Democratic pollster uh, came out and it was done by a group. They're done Blue Rose Research and it was in, it's been publicized. I didn't catch it till late, but they asked people who is to blame, Will Smith or Chris Rock. Now, what's interesting is if you're a, uh, a white person, who do you think they would blame? Chris Rock more or or a, a white person? Yeah, if you're a white person, who do you think you'd blame? Uh, well, I would assume Will Smith. They're blaming Chris Rock. The no. Whites, yes. White people. Point one percent. What? What? Give me that again. What? Fifty. Uh, excuse me. Fifty-one point one percent to forty-eight point nine percent. Fifty-one point one percent of those questioned blame who are white blame Chris Rock. Forty-eight point nine percent. Blame Will Smith. That's white. Now, how about blacks? Well, hang on. So the white people think that if somebody makes a joke that right. you don't like, you're entitled to slap them in the face. A small margin. 51.1 blamed Chris Rock. 48.9% blamed Will Smith. Now, how about blacks? Tell me. What do you think blacks? How, they, how would they respond? I think uh, they blame Will Smith. 
56% blamed Chris Rock. 44% blamed Will Smith. This is a telephone poll taken soon after that event. By This is a Democratic pollster. Well, but, 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 but anybody who answers the phone has yeah. a chip on their shoulder. Well, the who question was, their which phone? Side, who answers the question their phone? Was, the question was, which side was more wrong, Chris Rock or Will Smith? But the core sample is people who, do you answer your phone? Well, no, I don't. I say, you want my opinion? You're going to have to pay for it. I don't, you know? I don't, my, I, I, like I don't answer my phone. Show. Who answers yeah. their phone? Unless, you well, know, this is why you got it. You got to work to get a sample size. that's worth anything. And that's why, you know, you can go to this and it's interesting that they, they have the, the breakdown by race and age. You know, some of the others are going to. Uh, All right, go uh, ahead. I, I just think this is. All right. How about Hispanics? How do you think Hispanics felt? Who do they blame more? Chris Rock or do they blame Will Smith? Hispanics. I, I hope they blame Will Smith. 55.7% blamed Chris Rock, 44.3% blamed Will Smith. All right, now how about Native Americans? No one ever includes Native Americans. That's why I'm surprised that they're even including this because it suggests that a kind of doubt that they had the sample size to make this really accurate, but they include this in their breakout. Now, if this were the 1950s, it would be a, a smoke signal poll, but yeah, I, that's that's I, I couldn't do that joke now because it's a you couldn't and, and don't mention TPs. TP shouldn't right. be the next word out of your mouth. What right. what 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 percentage? Who? How do the Native Americans vote? I'm debating it's whether that smoke signal joke is offensive or not. I, I don't know. It depends on if you have a basic cable or if you have a cell phone, uh, you might really gravitate to smoke signals. But if a Native American wanted to feel triggered, and I said, I'm just debating whether or not how offensive that is. I mean, it's all, it's a bad joke. I'm just, right. I'm just wondering what the ground rules are. Well, you're, you know, you, at least you're questioning. You're asking these, que these are no, good questions. No, I just wanted to make the joke and now I'm pretending that I'm concerned. Oh, okay. Right, so how did they feel? Who, who, how did Native they, Americans, they yeah. Native Americans. Uh, oh my God, I, I, I would be appalled if Native Americans favored Chris Rock. I just can't imagine that. No, Native Americans blamed Chris Rock, 55.7%. So oh, wait a second. Everybody hates Chris is what you're no, saying. Yeah, <laughs> except, and this is what I'm getting at. Asian Americans were 50-50. They blamed Chris Rock. They, they blamed Will Smith evenly. We are the arbiters of equality. You blamed everyone. I he, conducted a poll of Jews. They yeah. blame Jada Pinkett Smith for having alopecia. They blamed her that, yeah. The Jews yes. blame her for having alopecia. Self-hating alopecia. She, she couldn't wear a wig? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's come to a big dinner like that, and she can't put on a wig? All right, here, here's the other interesting findings from this poll. And I mention this because it gives a trend. The younger you were, the more you blamed Chris Rock. Jesus. Yeah, 57.8%, 18 to 34 demographic. Blame Chris Rock. 35 to 49, 52% blame Chris Rock. 50 to 64%, 18 to 
are 50 to 64 years old, 50.7% blame Chris Rock. Now, thank goodness, if you're older, 65 plus, then you started blaming Will Smith. So maybe they're the original, you know, fresh Prince of Bel-Air watchers. And they're saying, hey, I remember when he was a kid. He shouldn't have done it. So 65 plus, they blame Will Smith. Now, here's the income. If you're rich, how do you think you... I love this. This is so great. What? A rich person. A rich white person? No, just rich. 100,000 or more, which isn't really rich, but based on this poll. How do you think it broke down? The richer you were, do you think you blame Chris Rock or Will Smith? I'm going to assume a rich person would blame Chris Rock. No. Rich people from 100,000 to 150 and over 150, they were blaming Will Smith. And I think that's probably because all the rich people were lawyers. And they said, well, I think uh, there's a battery charge potentially against Will Smith. Or they don't like they're white and they fear black men. Maybe that could that could be it. But right. So 100,000 or more, all of them, you know, to 150, 100, over 150, they blamed Will Smith more. The people working in McDonald's, under 25,000. They, they polled they people in McDonald's. Well, people making under 25,000. I, I just, I was making a judgment call saying the overall work. Well, well, McDonald's pays. Are they at 15 an hour? Well, let's do the math. 15, let's say 15. 15 an hour should be like 30,000 a year. Well, let's see. The 15, that would be 600 a A week week. times 52. That gives you 31,200. Yeah. So, all right. So who do do you think the fast food worker, who do you think they, they blamed? Chris Rock or Will Smith? Who was more wrong? Uh... I think uh, McDonald's workers would be very sensitive about jokes about women losing their hair since everybody at McDonald's seems to be losing their hair because I always find one in the food there. <laughs> so... Uh, who would they blame? Who would... These are people... Oh, oh, you're just saying these aren't McDonald's workers. These are people making... No. Uh, People making under twenty five, under twenty five thousand, under twenty five thousand. Yeah. People at or below the poverty, at below poverty. Um, well, it was Boy, a billionaire a beating up a multimillionaire. I would like <laughs> to think that they thought the the billionaire Will Smith was to was blame. Wrong. Uh, David, you are so wrong. Under 25,000, it was almost, this is the largest group. 63.4% said Chris Rock was wrong. 36.6% said Will Smith was. And it seems that the less money you made, you you saw Chris Rock in the wrong. The more money you made, you saw Will Smith in the wrong. How do you like them out? But it's about justifying violence as well. I, I, yes, but I'm just saying, I, I was kind of surprised when I saw that, that the, the poor you were, you sided with Chris Rock, but, uh, or so I, Chris I, Rock was I, to blame. No, hang on. That's how you see it. I see it as 
do you justify violence? That's really what the question is. If somebody insults, says something that you think is insulting to your wife, is violence? Oh, I see. You're saying that. Okay. So they were just they were the the poor people saying that Chris Rock was wrong. That was justifying violence. You say? How could it not be? Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. Well, they, hey, you're talking. Saying, you're talking trash. You deserve yeah. to be slapped. That's well, basically the, what they're saying. Well, the, 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 once again, phrasing is everything. It was which side was more wrong, Chris Rock or Will Smith? All right, one last one. Oh, yeah, okay. Education. How about who? How about do you think the smart people were for Will Smith? Well, education doesn't Rock? mean smart. Unless, uh, well, see, education attainment. So, because you could be smart and not go to high school, right? You know, so it's not a matter of intelligence. It's just a matter of like less high school or some college or four year or advanced degree. Okay. Who do you think education wise who said Chris Rock was wrong? Who said Will Smith was wrong? Well, what education level? All right. Less than high school. Yeah. Some of your friends. I'm going to do what my son does. Show. Fewer. My son does this. Fewer than high school. Not less than he always corrects. I'm people. using the phrasing from the I know, poll. but my son, he, he annoys people whenever they say uh, okay, less or fewer. He always says they're saying it wrong. It's really funny. Okay, fewer than, less than. I have less fewer than fewer dollars. Than you have fewer. Go ahead. What? So who, 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 who was for Chris Rock and who was for Will Smith? If you had, high, all right, high school grad. High school grad. If you're who, a high who, school graduate. Yeah. I, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna go along with the trend here, and say, I would like to think that a high school graduate knows violence is wrong, and sides with Chris Rock. The high school graduates, fifty-six point six percent, said that Chris Rock was more wrong. Was more was more wronger. Yes, was wronger. Chris Rock was wronger. They, the high school grad, was forty three point four percent saying that Will Smith was wrong, and fifty six point six percent saying Chris Rock was wrong. Now, in the education thing, the smarter or the more education Stop you have, saying smarter. I right, I know. I caught myself. Doesn't mean just because you go to a four year degree. Or, you know, or if you had, uh, I think, are they calling uh, the degree you get in junior college? Are they calling that B.A. two? I don't know, but all I know is I can't can't spell G.E.D. So I didn't get one because I couldn't spell. I got it. So, all right. So the the more education, the more you blamed Will Smith. So that's that's this poll put out by these Democratic polls. Oh, and women. I think women and men. Oh, okay. Hang on for one second. Women. Yes. There is no way women would say Chris Rock was wrong. No way. 56.5% of the women said that Chris Rock was more wrong. No way. Yeah, I'm telling you, this is this poll. 56.2% no of the Chris no, Take it wrong. up with the pollsters. These Take are women the who pollsters. answer their these are women who answer their phone. What kind of <laughs> you know what kind of women answer their phones? Okay. I don't want to say, but <laughs> I, any I, woman who answers her, her phone uh, and she doesn't recognize the number. 
These no. are not mentally right, so, healthy people. Look, so the women were 56.5% saying Chris Rock was wrong. 43.5% said that Will Smith was wrong. And so the men, how do you think the men figured? Well, which which brother would they back? You know, men men can relate to a a big a bigger man striking a smaller man because that's what that was. Will Smith would not have done that to me because he knows that I I'm not going to put up with that shit. Right. And he wouldn't do it to a Filipino or an Asian because no. he thinks, oh, he's thinking that guy knows Kung Fu. Right. <laughs> right. It's true. I like I, 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 I went the wrong way. I took the, the, the A train. I got off on 125th or 116th. I was going to go to Columbia for something. I went the wrong way. I ended up in Harlem. I think I was 17 years old, lugging a big suitcase. And these guys just looked at me and ran away because they thought I was I had my Bruce Lee haircut, my bowl cut. It's run away. They think I the pos the positive of the negative stereotype, right? Anyway, so what do you think, males? What do you think? Uh, so who do they blame? Have Will you ever Smith? taken? The oh, it's my son. Is that your son? Yeah. Hey, uh, I'm doing my show. I'm doing my show. I'm doing my show. Ask him who was more to blame, Will Smith. Yeah. Can or I call you back? I'm in the middle of my show. Can I call you back? Yeah. But I was just quoting you. Yeah. Say hi to Will. It, yeah. He's a Guillermo. Emil says hello. Can I call you back after the show? Huh? About how you correct people and say fewer or lesser. Yes. What's your latest tweet? What's the pee and poo thing? What's the one triumph for each one? What is that again? Why do I pee out of my penis, but not poo out of my punis? Right. <laughs> and triumph, the incel comic dog, retreated. we retweeted that tweet. Yes, he was. Yeah. That's a good, very logical. All right, I'm going to put you on the speaker. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, hang on, hang on. I can plug you in. I got. I can plug you in. Hang on. All right, this is exciting. Uh, I might crash. You're, you're, hang on, okay. This is uh, Ralphie Lane, my son. Hi, Ralphie. Hi, Dad. Okay, you're, you're on the show. Tell right. me the, the, the tweet. There's a party in my pants. And you're invited. And it's diarrhea-themed. <laughs> That's a great joke. Yeah. That's a great <laughs> joke. That's great. There's a party in my pants, and you're invited. It's diarrhea-themed. So good. Yeah. You're hey, welcome. Very good. That one, you can, that one you can have. Thank you. And if, you, if I pee out of my penis, why don't I poo out of my punis? Yeah, that one went viral. That got like 11 likes. 11 yeah. likes. Yeah, that one went viral. You're, yeah. All right, let me call you in a little while. I'm proud of you, no, son. I'm proud of you. Busy, but 
I'm proud of you too. All right. Congratulations on the show. I I, I hear good things. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> the I, li- all right. I like you. I like you. All right. You're welcome. Okay. Bye. Oh, do the thing right you do, do the thing you invented. Do the other thing you invented. I'll talk, all right, I'll talk to you right now. Hello? Hi, how are you? All right, I got Good, how are you doing? I got right, okay. I'm in the middle right of my now. show. I'll talk to you right okay, now. Okay, okay. All right, I'll talk to you right now. Hello? Hi, how are you? This is fun. <laughs> Goodbye. I just... I, he's a genius. He's a comedy <laughs> genius. Unfortunately, all the jokes he writes are too funny, so... <laughs> That's pretty good. There's a party in my pants. You're invited, and it's diarrhea themed. How great is that? It's, uh, I can, I can, I can see it. <laughs> it's very, very visual. That's my I son, Ralphie. I call him Ralphie Lane, America's yeah. number one. Young, you know, America's youngest political satirist, Ralphie Lane, from the time he was five. I called him Ralphie Lane, America's youngest political satirist. Good. What were we talking about? Well, we were talking about this dumb poll. No, I was. This was great. This was great. <laughs> no, seriously. It, it, how, how about this? How about Biden supporters or Trump supporters? How do you think they? Well, what was the last one before he called? There was one. Gender, I would, gender, males. How do you think the males? Men. Felt? I I would have to. Men. I like to think that men don't. We, all right, I'm going to say they they sided with Will Smith. Yes, the men, 52.4% sided with Mel Smith, Will Smith and 40. Actually, so I, I read that wrong. Sorry. Who, which side was more wrong? Men, 50. Sorry there, I, I blew it there. Where, where is it? Where's the male? Sorry, I, I'm, I'm, I'm following it here. It just it, oh male fifty two point four percent said Will Smith was wow. wrong. So you're wrong. You're wrong. They sided with Chris Rock. They Maybe. blame more Will Smith. The men. But this is America. It, I, I know. It, I, we're look, a violent culture. We're a violent country. Well, only forty seven point six percent of the men blamed Chris Rock. Amazing. All right. One one last one. Attitudes. Uh, let's see. How about this? Is it? This is a question in the poll. Is it sometimes necessary to discipline a child with a good, hard spanking? They asked this of the people who answered this question. What do you think? Strongly agree? Agree? Well, there are, cultu- there are cultural differences on this subject, aren't there? No, there, there are, yeah. I mean, which is why, I, you know, it just sort of popped up on this poll. But I, I thought I'd share it because it's kind of interesting. Do you, are you going to break it down along? Yeah. Strongly agree to agree. Right. All right. Strongly agree. Fifty nine percent of those who strongly agree that it's sometimes necessary to discipline a child with a good hard spanking. Fifty nine percent saw Chris Rock as more in fault here. And only forty two percent saw Will Smith. And of those who agree with that statement, fifty one percent blame Chris Rock. So the spankers all blame Chris Rock more. How does that strike you and the pacifists who would disagree with that they blame the pacifists all blamed slightly 50.5 percent and 50.1 percent blamed will smith so there you go the people the beaters blame chris rock the pacifists blamed will smith and what does that tell you because it it says something to me 
Yeah, go what? Tell me what it tells. I'm curious what it tells you about this country. I mean, obviously, it... we want to beat up. Well, those of us who want to beat people uh, want to beat. I think. See, this is the the thing that I would blame Chris Rock if you take into account the alopecia thing and you think, oh, he's beating up on a woman. That's the only reason why I would blame. I would think in my head. I would think that Chris Rock has any kind of right at all. Otherwise, if you just look at the beating for the beating sake and casual violence, I would blame Will Smith. And I think what this what this poll shows is that, that if you're for beating and spanking your kids, you look at this, you say, I'm beating up Chris Rock. It's that, tainted. The, the, the sample is tainted because. Everybody right. in that poll, I assume thought Chris Rock knew that Jada Pinkett Smith suffered from alopecia. I don't know if that's true or not. You know, they, they because remember, the, the beauty of polling is, number one, it's got to be random, 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 random. But you've got to hope that in the 2,500 in the sample size, you're going to get enough of all the things that you want to, you know, to break it down by race, by age. So, you know, I think at best, you know, you could say, uh, in general, you, know, you might be able to break it down by might have enough of a sample in terms of uh, sex. Right. But I'm, I'm suspicious about all these other things anyway. But it's interesting because as we talk about Will Smith and Chris Rock, we're, we're going to continue to talk about it. I mean, Chris Rock was on stage in Boston. He's got a three three day uh, appearance up there. He just says, I'm still processing it. He's not talking about it. And, you know, he's going to talk about I think he's negotiating right for uh the lead in king richard the sequel right, right where he gets to play king richard hey because he's got leverage right he's yeah. got leverage over will smith right now don't you think yes we have to wrap it up yeah so anyway Great job. Then, this was this was fun well I, I i appreciate that you know uh people should check out uh my uh my uh, my live stream, which is on YouTube, my pathetic YouTube channel, which has like, you know, five people watching. But Reverend Barry Lynn is a subscriber. So uh, but you can also catch it on uh, Facebook and on Twitter at Emila Muck. Uh, I talk about this poll. And I talk about the whole thing about thin skin, that, that Roxanne Gay essay, thin skin, thick skin. You know, are you are you afraid of of performing live that people might? come up to you if they just instead of no, no, I'm afraid that I'm going to punch an audience member. Ah, yeah, that, that never works. So I mean, you know, then everyone comes against you. you know, everyone is again. If you, you got to I don't know. I, I just, you know, do you I, know, I, do you know, we have to wrap it up yep. only once. You know, my act is, you know, I'm punchable. Yes, you are. You're very punchable. Once somebody <laughs> came at me once. Right. That's it. The Just worst once? nightclub act. I mean, the most, you know, and only once did somebody come for me. Wow. Well, I owed good. alimony, but I, I thought it wasn't the right time. To <laughs> Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast. Uh, if I owe you alimony, you know, don't don't come to my show. We can work it. Uh, 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 Emil Guillermo host of the PETA podcast, read them over at the uh, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. 
and follow me on Twitter at Emil Amuck. I am going to go grab some tempeh. Hey, hey, David, can I share a food thing? You should yes. try some teff. Teff, T-E-F-F. That's my food tip for today. Okay. My vegan, no gluten, ancient grains, Ethiopian food tip. Teff, T-E-F-F. Fantastic. When we come back, we will be joined by the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. We are celebrating the work of Christian Smalls this evening. We are getting reports that he has succeeded. The Amazon Labor Union has succeeded. It looks like the Fulfillment Center out on Staten Island voted to go union. This will be the first union Amazon Fulfillment Center in America. It looks like Bessemer, they're going to demand a recount. We hope they too go union, but I think we... Emil, is that your understanding? Uh, I don't know. I'm just saying that today is Cesar Chavez Day, so yes. it's good. It's good Union Day. Yes, it is. I mentioned that earlier. If anybody reminds me of Cesar Chavez, it's Christian Smalls. We will be back with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. I'm going to play Ain't No Chairs in honor of Christian Smalls. <laughs> Chairs in this Bessemer shop. The back and out day don't ever seem to stop. A man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are common, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my rate in all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins that said, vote no. But maybe this year Union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this Bessemer floor. I'm hoping the Union might make things right. 
Some days I just don't have the strength to fight This plant down here can take its toll It'll break your body, it'll crush your soul Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop Chairs in this Bessemer shop, written, performed by Professor Mike Steinel in honor of our friend, our hero, Christian Smalls, the president of the Amazon Labor Union, who tonight showed us the way. And it is Cesar Chavez's birthday. We were shown the way tonight by Christian Smalls. Joining us is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. He is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. He is also a lawyer, a member of the Supreme Court Bar, and for nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for separation of church and state. Welcome, sir. It is very nice to be back here. It's great to have you. And it's- you know, uh I, I've been listening to this, uh, to you and Emil, and I just wanted to give you two bits of information. Number one, right now I'm in a basement because there is a tornado warning for this part of the District of Columbia. So if everything blows up, it, it's not Will Smith, it's the weather. Wow. And 100% of the people in this room right now think that Will Smith was 100% wrong. Yes. Throw that in. yes. Usually the only twister in Washington, D.C. is Madison Cawthorn playing with Lindsey Graham, a game of twister. <laughs> uh, what would you like to talk about, sir? I have many questions. I would, like I, talk, I would like to talk about Jenny Thomas. Ironically, I would like to talk about Madison Cawthorn and how much people that live in D.C. now have forgotten some of the great sex scandals of the past that really took down very prominent people. And then uh, I do have a religious writing out of the week as well. Good. So where should I start? Well, first, Ginny tell me, Thomas. Ginny Thomas, who is Ginny Thomas? Uh, Ginny Thomas is the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas. And Ginny Thomas is also a right wing activist and the more that we know in the last two weeks or so is that she was not just present at the January uh, insurrection, riot, whatever you want to call it, but she was act actively planning it. And she was doing that planning in concert with Mark Meadows. 
Trump's chief of staff. So she was intimately involved. This was not, she didn't just happen to say, oh, there's a lot of people out here. I wonder what they're protesting. She knew exactly what it was, and she was intimately involved, going so far as to suggest to Mark Meadows that he needed to make it clear to as many people as he could that they needed to stop the certification of the election. Right. So this was, she was deeply involved. Okay, so now, let me let me just clarify here. She did not organize the insurrection. She or help organize the rally on the ellipse. Correct. There's no evidence right now that she encouraged people to storm the Capitol. Correct. No, there is not. But and, there is evidence of her complicity, her significance in the Stop the Steal movement. So we do know that. So we, she, she was at the rally. She later said, this is a stolen election. But we don't have any, I've not seen any evidence, maybe the January 6th uh, committee has it, or maybe they heard it from somebody like uh, um, uh, Trump's son-in-law, who appeared before the committee for most of yeah, Jared. Her. But no, but so the question is, what do you do if you're Clarence Thomas about recusals? Now, there's only been one case that went to the Supreme Court in the last year about on the specific question of the legitimacy of the election. It was an eight to one vote with only Clarence Thomas saying we should hear this case, suggesting that he thought there was merit to it. So why didn't he recuse himself? Well, the popular myth that's going around on television these days is that he doesn't have to because there's no there are no restrictions on the conduct of a Supreme Court justice. In other words, that if he that he can do what he wants, he can recuse himself. When I was at Americans United, we did ask him to recuse himself once on a case where the party on the other side was somebody who had given him a big a fancy summer vacation or fancy dinners or something. And he, of course, refused to do it. Justice Scalia, on the other hand, did in a very important case, recuse himself. He was at a uh, giving a speech down in Virginia, and he suggested that the challenge to the constitutionality of the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag because of the words under God in it was silly. People called him on that. He said, I should never have said that, and I recuse myself. So it's not unknown for even conservatives to recuse themselves, but Thomas doesn't do that. But the myth is he doesn't have to. He, he can let his conscience be his guide. That is not true. And one of my favorite former Harvard law professors, uh, which would not be Alan Dershowitz, but uh, came up with a thing, he wrote a thing the other day about a statute Title 28 of the United States Code, Section 455. Let me just read you a little piece of it here. Okay. It says that no justice shall participate in any cases where he or his or her spouse is known by the judge to have an interest 
that could be personally affected by the outcome of the proceeding. And it doesn't say that's only for lower court judges. It says judge. It uses that word. And Larry Tribe, Lawrence Tribe of Harvard says, of course, it means what it says. Any judge at any level. So he would he he would be violating the law. He's already violated the law. Unless you really believe that Clarence Thomas and Ginny Thomas go home, watch billions on television uh, or professional wrestling or any of the other things we've talked about, and that that's okay. He never talks about evidence that he doesn't talk about many things came at his um, confirmation hearing. When he was asked about Roe versus Wade, he said, you know, I don't ever recall talking about that case never talking about that case there is nobody except the people who are asleep you know during the oscars who don't know something about roe versus wade and don't talk about it so he was clearly lying about that nobody called him on it he got away with it but if he's going to now say oh i uh, i had no idea jenny thomas i think she was shy i thought she was shopping that day no, right. that's not going to that's it's a crime. Now, the question is, can it be enforced? There's no enforcement mechanism in Title 28 U.S. Code, Section 455. So it may be that it's as unenforceable as what appears to be the impossible unwillingness of the Justice Department to go after Donald Trump, even though the evidence we are now well over a year after the events. Right. Did it take them this long? Now they're saying, we're waiting to present evidence to the public. And I'm sure that'll be very interesting because the people that everyone will want to hear from will be the same people who say, uh, I cannot answer that question because I have a Fifth Amendment right not to do so. Do you have a Fifth Amendment right before Congress? That's a very interesting question. And I think most most attorneys would say you do have that right. And that it's because I do remember when Oliver North testified and he did testify. And then when he was in when he testified in Congress, he talked a lot. He did not claim any privilege whatsoever. And then when it came down to his criminal trial, it was ultimately his conviction was thrown out. Why? Because they figured that the potential viewers, jurors might have seen him testify in Congress, and therefore it tainted the amount of information that they had about Oliver North. But it didn't taint H.R. Alderman's jury or John Ehrlichman's jury or John Mitchell's he, jury. No, you know, I don't remember what they said to the Watergate committee. I don't remember if it was as detailed as what North did. I mean, North, you know, I know him pretty well. And he, to this day, and all of his friends tell me the same thing. He he does not believe he did anything wrong at all. And that's why he fought so hard. And I remember him telling me, if you don't fight to the bitter end, then you're not even sure you're innocent. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Love of, he violated the Logan Act. He 
uh, he it's a it's this country it's congress that decides who we fight not oliver north and <laughs> that's true but, but but the logan act has very specific uh, pieces of that that you need to violate in order to violate the logan act and juries didn't think he had done so right so in the 50s there were the hollywood 10 the the writers the hollywood writers who refused to testify before the house on american activities committee right i think they pled the fifth and were sentenced to they had to go to prison for pleading the fifth i think i think they well you know i don't know what the laws were at the time but um the i think they went to jail for contempt of congress not for violating the ah, okay. amendment and and, it, and they did have contempt for congress because they should have right right uh, well do you think there's anything to get to the bottom of when it comes to january 6. Do you think we pretty well, much know what happened? And and is it settled that nobody at the top <laughs> is going to pay a price for that? I don't think it's settled. I think that a lot of people, including a lot of Democrats running for office, including people we all know, who, um, who honestly believe they have the time to do this right, and that, that if they vote to proceed to convict any people through the committee structure. They don't have any formal authority, but they can make a recommendation to the attorney general who seems to be asleep. And that that will somehow light a fire under Merrick Garland and he will all of a sudden in the waning days before the Senate and the House are both lost to the Democrats, he'll do something to prosecute. I mean, I think it's wishful thinking at this point. I, I just don't see it happening. I well, wish it did. Uh, it looks like Joe Biden can't wag the dog and bump his polls. I mean, he's been pretty bellicose and belligerent, but that doesn't doesn't seem to move the needle in favor of the president, which means the Democrats may lose the House, which means the Republicans will have no choice but to impeach Joe Biden because of the Hunter Biden laptop. There's no doubt in my mind that the Republicans will vote to impeach and there will be a trial in the Senate, which Fine. they will lose. They will Fine. cheapen what it means to, to impeach. The, the two impeachments for Donald Trump by impeaching Joe Biden the currency of impeachment will lose its value. This is exactly what the oligarchs want. They want Joe Biden to be impeached. They need a, a spectacle because nothing else can get done in Washington, D.C. They don't want anything done. They don't want Build Back Better. They don't want money going to our schools so Biden 
is going to be impeached, won't he? A year from now, there will be an impeachment trial over the Hunter Biden laptop. Don't you think? There'll be, yeah, there'll be an impeachment hearing. He will be impeached in the House and it'll go to the Senate. And as you pointed out, there's no way that two thirds of the people uh, are going to vote to convict Biden. Uh, you know what? I don't. I didn't read all the revelations in the last two days about the Hunter Biden thing, but the the one thing that's most damaging that directly implicates Biden is not about Ukraine. It's about China. It's about what's becoming clearer and clearer evidence that his son was paid huge amounts of money by Chinese leaders uh, and didn't and probably didn't even report it on his taxes. And when asked during one of the debates whether his son had any of these connections to China, he flatly said no. Right. So the son, the son owed the IRS one million dollars. He's since repaid it, but that doesn't mean anything. It's still a crime to owe the, the IRS a million dollars. Whether, whether yeah. uh, if you're looking to destroy a family, if that's your goal, the Bidens are ripe for destruction, right? Yeah, exactly. So don't you think it was political malfeasance on the part of Obama and Clyburn, all the people who put their thumb on the scale in South Carolina, the South Carolina primary, to push Joe Biden into the White House. There was no filtration. The beautiful thing about primaries is these questions are asked. And there was no filtration process. Joe Biden never had to explain any of these allegations. Had there been a real primary season, he would have got he would be unelect. We, he was unelectable. But Bernie was such a threat to the Democratic Party. They they just rallied around Joe Biden, knowing that he had this son who is troubled mm -hmm. but he went to Yale Law School sure so that makes him a disgrace you know it's it's <laughs> one thing to be a crack addict because you have tragedy yeah. in your life sure but when you are a Yale Law School graduate to whom much is given much jail time should also be given <laughs> should be given yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a horrible thing. And it, it is very difficult for me to, with a straight face, suggest that all of this mounting evidence about what Hunter Biden did that was not just ethically wrong, but probably illegal, is somehow made up or somewhat manufactured by the Republicans or by Russia or somebody. I mean, it's, it's, there's just too much of it there. But again, this is exactly what's wrong with the standard that was set in the last administration. Why did Trump's friends and sons and daughter make so much money when they were supposedly just working as consultants to dad or dad-in-law in the White House? So there's criminality that has gone unpunished for the past four years, and now we're into a year and a half, 
and it looks like it's going to go in a different direction, but equally unpunished. This is so the whole system of justice. You add that to, you know, the the tremendously uh, ludicrous uh, direction that the courts are taking, the Supreme Court. I mean, it's it's literally it's riddled with cancer, and it's there's no way for it to die unless right. you expand it, and that ain't going to happen, even even with Democrats in control of the Senate. I, I want to get st- to that in a second, but I, I, I've got a stone in my shoe because, yeah. Ber- you know, I was I wanted Bernie, Elizabeth. Yeah. If you were gonna if you were gonna say, I can understand. Uh, Bernie's a threat to the the Democratic establishment, Democratic Party establishment. We have to stop him. I understand that. So you put your thumb on the scale for Elizabeth Warren, uh, Amy Klobuchar, uh, dare I say, Harris. Joe Biden is the last person those in the know should have forced upon the American people as what stands between Donald Trump and the end of end of the country. This was who do you think make well who do you think makes those decisions? Do you think that there really are a cabal of people in the Democratic leadership who who think through now let's look at Amy Klobuchar, you know, what is and what about Elizabeth Warren? And what about do you think that that actually happens at the highest levels? Because I don't think it does. I, I really it, don't. I think that's what gave us Harry Truman. I think the party, I think there are smoke filled I think there are still smoke filled rooms. COVID made it really easy to yeah. to control yeah. the, the, the primary season. They were really, the Democrats were really spooked by Trump, as was I, a second term of Trump. Of who knows? Uh, I Yeah, I think Obama were, I don't think Obama controls the Democratic Party. Right. But I do think that... Obama and Hillary have a lot of say among some of the hardcore Democrats. There are some super delegates that you automatically get sure. without winning them. And I thought those super delegates probably belong to Hillary and Obama, or at least they. Sure. Uh, I think you could call up Pete Buttigieg, Beto. Amy Klobuchar and say, hey, you got to support Joe on this. There's no question in my mind that that Obama called up Klobuchar, Beto, Buttigieg and said, we cannot allow Bernie to win this. Go with Joe. But your question goes another step. What did he say then? See, I think you could find with Klobuchar, who I literally cannot stand. I cannot stand anything she says or does. I loved Elizabeth Warren until she decided she was going to take PAC money after saying, I mean, as a major part of her campaign was, I'm not going to take PAC money. Then she decides, well, there's this women's focus PAC. I'll take it from them. 
with the exception of a few PACs that literally give all their money directly to grassroots organizations. They're just pass-throughs. There is no good PAC. Emily's List, there is no good political action committee. It is a cancer on the body politic. And we're never, we could repeal um, Citizens United tomorrow, but as long as there are still PACs that remain, it'll still be a corrupted system of governance. So I don't know, when Beto O'Rourke said he, we should stop taxing churches, or we should start taxing churches, and I'm gonna come and take your guns. The guy's from Texas. Those are wildly unpopular ideas, and I'm not even sure that most Democrats agree with both of those. Maybe one of them, but not both of them. I don't, I don't see what the there is after you say, we can't let Bernie get the nomination. Let's go for somebody. Biden becomes, in this world that you're describing, he becomes the go-to guy. He's the only have candidate. You have you met him? Joe Biden? Yeah. Only once. Only once. I met yeah. him. I, I talked to him, or I was talked at for three hours by him. Really? Yes. This was in 2008. Okay. Uh, and I wrote jokes for him. Didn't go well. Uh, and I remember coming home thinking this guy, I hate to say this because he's my president. I thought, this guy's an idiot. I swear to you. I came home and told my family, I go, this guy's an idiot. And I think they picked him. I honestly think they knew about all the baggage. They knew he was in decline and they thought perfect he'll do exactly what we tell him to do i think he surrounds himself with opportunistic infections who are predators and they're just pointing him in whatever direction they find the most profitable so wrong guy for the wrong time i think I'm, you know, I'm rooting for him, even though uh, he's my president. Donald Trump wasn't my president. I'm no, not that patriot. not that patriotic. But uh, I do root for America. I, I think given the climate in Washington, D.C., why would you risk? I mean, we're, he's going to be impeached over this. I'm not saying he should be. No, but, but he's you're right. Be. He will be. He will be. There's no question about that. And he's going to be impeached. It discredits the whole idea of impeachment. Uh, impeachments are not supposed to be a substitute for another election. So you're right about that. And it's going to it'll gum up everything else. But if Democrats are not in control, us in, in theory at least of both houses, literally nothing will be getting done next year at this time anyway. There'll be a new Congress, but no new ideas and nobody interested in governance because the Republican Party fundamentally doesn't want to govern. And I know that you believe most in the Democratic Party don't want that to happen either, but Republicans don't want to, they don't want to pass anything. They can't even agree on extra COVID funding now that we know that everybody 50 and over ought to be getting another booster. 
the House will vote for it, the Senate will block it. So they don't get anything done. And it's, you know, Manchin and Sinema are largely responsible for the chaos on the Democratic side. But there are plenty of other people, the corporate Democrats, the they get on CNN and talk and, and they're struggling. Do they want to do this? And I'm sitting here in Washington. We have 800,000 people live in the city. We have no senators. And nobody thinks twice. Even people, I know Senator Bennett, who's running again out in Colorado, unless he, I, I wrote him a note the other day, that, but he, he opposed to having <laughs> two senators in Washington. They're going to be Democrats. They're probably going to be African-American Democrats. And people can't take that. They cannot stand that idea because it might somehow weaken their own grasp over Colorado. Yeah. You know, it's it's easy to be a firebrand, to be outside the tent pissing in. Earlier on the show, I was saying, why don't the American people just stop? paying their medical bills. Why, why don't we just say, I know you're married to a brilliant doctor. Yep. I don't mean to offend you, yeah. uh, except for your wife and yeah. Dr. Hershenfeld. But right. what, what would happen if the American people just said, I'm going to go to the doctor mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not paying my bills. I'm not going to pay my hospital bills. There aren't enough bill collectors. There aren't enough... Uh, health insurance employees to come after 350 million Americans and they would all go bankrupt and then the government would have to bail them out and we'd have single payer. What if we just stopped paying these bills? It's a wonderful mass movement. I don't think... 20% 20% of the people in this country are mad enough right. to do this because the evidence of that is that we don't have single payer already. Because if people were as angry as they sometimes sound like they are, we have single payer by now. It'd be called something, Medicare for all, Medicare plus for all, whatever it's called, we'd have it by now. So let me... We have a, we, look, we have a better internal revenue service we have a better tax code so that people we wouldn't be having these arguments over this it will never fly if you have a hundred million dollars worth of assets however you measure them uh, then you'll have to pay an extra 20 percent. that's never going to fly keep it simple i remember being on cnn once uh with some guy about the hillary clinton medical plan remember that hillary here I said, this is so complicated. I said, it's got so many nuances. They'll have lawyers, you have to hire a lawyer. Every family, I'll have to have a lawyer in the household just to figure out how to get it. Just guarantee it for everyone. And it was like a big shock at the time, but people were already talking. It wasn't Bernie who invented the idea of single payer health care. This has been going on since the thirties. No American ought to be able to live in this country pay taxes or be too poor to pay taxes and not be guaranteed that they can see a doctor when they need to see a doctor. There's no moral principle on the other side, zero. When you say the American people aren't angry enough, 
I'm going to show you a clip I've been playing all day of Congresswoman right. Katie Porter talking to Dr. Collins from the Commonwealth Fund about the current state of health care in America. And I want you to think back to Bernie trying to explain Medicare for all during the debates as just a barrage of lies coming at him from the 20 other candidates. Sure. He was just batting down one lie after he could not speak in a full sentence without being interrupted, uh, could not explain his plan. Uh, this is Katie Porter. I want to know if you if you saw this and what you think about it. This is Congresswoman Katie Porter, who has been on the show, I'm proud to say, uh, when she was running. And if we look at just billing costs, just billing and insurance costs, Medicare is at 1%. Wait, private companies spend 17 times more on administrative costs than Medicare? What are private insurance companies spending on that Medicare is not? Does Medicare spend hundreds of millions of dollars on television advertisements like private insurance does? Dr. Collins? No. Does Medicare spend millions of dollars on stock buybacks to shareholders? No. Does Medicare um, spend money on marketing? Private insurance likes to put its name on stadiums and PGA tournaments. Is there a Medicare arena? No. Does Medicare spend $23 million on executive pay like private insurance companies do? No. We know how much it costs to run a high-quality health insurance program. One dollar. Out of $100, research shows that Medicare spends 1.1% on administrative costs. We spend $4 trillion on health care every year. We could save $200 billion on administrative costs with Medicare for All. And those savings? They could go to expand Medicare. We could spend that money to let patients see dentists. We could let, spend that money to let patients pay for hearing aids, to help older adults afford eyeglasses, to bring down the cost of prescription drugs, to finally pay mental health professionals for the work they do. Instead, all this money is wasted. We're not talking about paying to keep the lights on in operating rooms or improving the quality of care. All this money is used to, to, to pay big insurance to push paper. It's death by 200 billion paper cuts. Did, did you see that? Did, did you see that on the news? It was this week. Did you see that? Did they no, I didn't see it because the news, as you know, is only about Chris Rock and Ukraine. So there's no room for this kind of news. And, and the thing about Katie Porter is if, if she was having a debate with someone, she would be able, unless they were not treating her correctly, she'd be able to viscerate her opponents. She'd be able to, with facts and graphs and just the knowledge she has in her head and the principles that she ascribes to, she would literally win every debate. See, I, I, Reverend, I don't see the point of a debate. I, I see gospel here. I, I see this is not up for debate. This is the word. Well, why don't we have it? Huh? Jamie, why don't we have it then? We, it, it, there's, there's, if you think that everybody understands what Katie Porter was talking about in this, if you did a survey, I mean, a real survey, not call people on the phones, but I mean, just, 
if you had a group of people listen to her just just that little piece of it they'd go wait a minute i don't even i don't understand what she's talking about most people don't have horrendous medical problems when they do and they see these bills and they they can't believe it so you have to you have to walk people through the steps necessary to make a dramatic change in the it's not so much the healthcare industry it's the health insurance industry which right. doesn't need to exist at all in my right. opinion doesn't need to exist at all uh, but you've got to walk people through this but what opportunity if, if this is i i respectfully disagree with you about debate because what Katie Porter is saying is undebatable. Would you agree with me that everything she said is? What? But I don't know what that means. What, why I mean, should I, that be debate? In other words, if you're because, we, because people have to go. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to write a letter about. It. I'm going to call Senator Rich and say, "Damn it, um, vote for something like Medicare for all." I mean, you, you have to take that step. People do not have the time to just independently decide that Katie is right about health care and therefore we should transform the system. That doesn't apply enough pressure. But the money, do you see the, the ads in the Washington, D.C. market from pharmaceutical companies about rare diseases and don't do this, don't, the government's trying to, uh, take medicines away from my child looking at me so wonderful and cute and smart i mean they literally buy all that influence because the people don't have money to help buy the right things and they don't have the avenues to go and have their voices heard it's nearly impossible forget covid as soon as uh, there was a, a guy who tried to shoot uh, tom delay in his office in the Capitol, they built this incredible structure around the Capitol that made it. I mean, I remember I had a, um, an appointment with Harry Reid. I had to wait 45 minutes in line. They knew I had an appointment just to get through the amount of security. So when you, there's a right to petition in the Constitution, and like so many other rights in the Constitution, there's no way to guarantee it because the country's too big or the forces allied against the people are simply too powerful to let that communication happen. Right. So, you know, I mean, respectfully, but I, I really think, I, I mean, I, I think this idea of people turning out, you know, FDR had armies of people coming to Washington on a regular basis, talking about better pay, talking about social programs. And in this generation, I mean, we've had marches against, you know, for women's rights. We've had marches for racial justice. But where have we gone? We just haven't gotten much done. We haven't, those things which I believe in, I know some liberals don't believe in mass marches, Progressives don't, they think it's a waste of money, but I like them. I think they're powerful, but I don't think they demonstrate that uh, whatever the people are marching for 
is therefore going to become law. Look at all of the, look at the antagonism, the opposition to guns after every mass murder. Where's the gun laws? There aren't any, there are no new gun laws. There, did nothing. So, you know, I think somebody sent me a note or maybe you said it, I sometimes don't think I trust the American people. It's not because they're dumb. It's because they don't have any opportunity to learn anything. When Putin was great fanfare this week, Putin said he didn't know uh, how badly things were going in Ukraine. If he watched CNN, here's what he would learn. Breaking news. Bombings continue. 37 people killed. Ed, commercial, commercial, commercial. Breaking news. Russia will be talking again to Ukraine tomorrow. So it's either all terrible or there's wonderful lights at the end of the tunnel. They're contradictory beliefs. And the more you hear them, if he was just watching CNN, which I'm sure he is, I mean, I'm sure he's watching, he has access to the Western facilities and shortwave and all those. He knows that the West thinks he's a liar, that he's losing the war, maybe, unless they think he's not losing the war because they, they just saw another 67 people were killed. This coverage drives me crazy. It absolutely drives me crazy. The, the, there is a possibility that he's playing chess, that all he ever wanted was the Donbass region and Crimea because that's where all the oil reserves are. And yeah. that's a theory. He, maybe he's a fool. I hope he's a fool and there's a coup and he disappears. Uh, but he may be playing chess. What do you think? Well, I the Katie Porter video upsets me because if that were made available to the American people, hmm. uh, uninterrupted, that's like a two-minute clip. If the American people heard that clip, they can't. They, they're not allowed to hear that. They're, they're well, not allowed to hear Katie Porter, in Con a United States Congresswoman, spelling, speaking the truth. The, um, someone could use that clip from a nonprofit that's interested in genuine progressive politics. They would get it aired. It would not be censored. It would not be canceled. And but people are with all due respect to the people that are running against Marjorie Taylor Greene. She ain't going to lose. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in the last week has just gone to just one of the Democrats running against her. To me, I think it's throwing your money away. If you want to if you want to save a couple of Democrats, you want to elect some new ones. There are better places to put it than that. Take that money and run it in, not, not in big markets where it's so expensive. Run that ad 
in North Dakota, where they have very few radio and television stations, run it in Iowa. That's where people need to hear it because that's where there's an opportunity for them to change their mind and to learn things that are simply not going to be made available anywhere else, nowhere else. Um, You know, as we approach the end here. um, Yeah. And then I have some business I have to deal with some some serious stuff. uh, Well, (laughs) religious right none of the week. Yes. Um, uh, I, I would vote for Greg Locke. He's the pastor at the Global Vision Bible Church in Joliet, Tennessee. Now, I don't know if you were sent some video of this character. Yes. Were you? Yeah. Yes. Do you want to play a little of it? I don't have it. I screwed okay. it. Well, uh, that's all right. He is literally let's a pretend, Let's pretend I played it. Yes. Okay. Let, take a look. A take a look. He has decided to burn books. And the books, this is the old, going the old school way. Harry Potter books, the Twilight series, maybe you could burn the movie versions, but we will not tolerate witchcraft and we will not be compromising with devil worshipers. That's what he said. Now, if the name sounds even remotely familiar, it's because he's also one of those pastors who are doing COVID, not only said don't get vaccinated, but also said it's not that serious and by the way, if you did get vaccinated, you've now been poisoned. So a few weeks ago at his Sunday service, he prayed that the vaccines would leave people's bodies so they would not be poisoned. So here's a guy. He combines. He says he's not a uh, you know, white supremacist and he's not a. Uh, but he mixes politics the most conservative kinds with these Bible ideas. He had a very small following. And then during COVID, he now has a thousand people who come to his church every Sunday. Um, he, he needed, he needs to seat hundreds of these people at a giant tent outside the church, which he calls the canvas cathedral. Um, he raised $4 million last year. He has millions of people who follow him on social media and listen to his commentaries on the radio. But just to prove that all people are not 100% bad, last Christmas he actually gave away $66,000 in the form of cash and vouchers to buy food to people who had come to his church. So, lots of bad, little bit of good. <laughs> He's my religious right of the week. Well, that's that's great. Uh, we have gotten some complaints from yes. from the chat room about you, Reverend. Really? On okay. at office hours. Ricky in London is trying to get funds to somebody who's helping the refugees, I believe, in Poland. Right. He wants to know what happened to the church of Feldman, because you've been promising to set up a church of Feldman that would give us tax free status. And 
we could actually make good use of our tax-free status and make sure the money goes to the people it's supposed to go to. I've we had a meeting yesterday to discuss the Church of Feldman. We discussed it in office hours. We have Tom Weber. We have a couple people who want to write our scriptures. We have uh, some feasts, some saints, some birthdays (laughs) to celebrate, like the death of Donald Rumsfeld, the, you know, that kind of stuff. So, uh, Uh, can I ask you a question? Yes, sir. Uh, Ricky uh, from London. Yes. Uh, who brought this up in yes. office hours? And yes. I, I haven't been at too many office hours lately. Uh, says, uh, did you tell him that the reverends told you that you don't need to do anything? You don't have to write any scriptures. You don't have any holy days. You just have to write a letter to the Internal Revenue Service announcing that you have formed a church called the Church of Feldman. Give them an address so they can contact you don't have to do anything there's nothing to do this i put this burden on you alone you so don't you're not going to cross my eyes and dot my t's you don't have to and there are none to cross look at if this if the global vision bible church can get its tax exemption it doesn't have to file any forms it doesn't have to report where its money goes the only reason we know about things like the $66,000 it gave at Christmas is because of investigative journalists. But you, you, I'll do, how about this? Write one paragraph. Send it to me via email. Next week, I will look at it. I will approve it budget a little bit and then all of a sudden we'll send it to the internal revenue will service. you put your name on it i don't want to be the one see i think oh, this is a, i think this is don't a cons- want to be the ju- they don't want to be it's your church i think this is where's cons- my money where's my fees well, you would get money if- 25 people used to give me 25 dollars to do weddings now i do weddings and don't give me anything i need money well, I need, that's why I'm trying to create a church of, to funnel the money yeah. to, to the people yeah. who help me steal the money. Sure. Huh? What, what's the, uh, from the Bible? I, what, what's the, the, the Bible says, no, the, there's a part, remember I've talked to you about the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha, the books that didn't make it into the Bible. In one of those, there's a specific reference to not putting your name on any legal documents. And so that's part of my theology. So I can't put my name. This is a conspiracy to I can help you. It's a conspiracy (laughs) to get me locked up. My father said to me, never, ever cheat the government. You're a loud mouth. You know what? And they would love to put you away, pay every any cash you get, declare it. And and I see something afoot here. All you people are trying to create yeah. a church and, and see me get arrested, all because I wanted to brand the thighs of my female parishioners. Yeah. Is that wrong? Yeah. Um, no, but there's precedent for churches that do that 
for their people to go to jail. I didn't say you could do anything. What I said was you could collect money and spend it pretty much on whatever you want. Like branding like branding the thighs no, of my brand, female parishioners. No, you can't no you can't brand people and you can't send the money to political candidates. Those are the only two things you can't do. So you can even I used to handle rattlesnakes in most states. Do you want to do that? Do you want to handle snakes? Can I talk in do, tongues? Do, do you you can talk in tongues, you can handle serpents. And brand my female parishioners on the thighs. No. Come on. Look, two out of two two out of three things you can do. You want to speak in tongues, you can do that. You want to hold serpents, you can do that. You want to brand parishioners of any gender on their thighs, you cannot do that. I can't do three. That. That's sixty seven percent. What did what did I hire you for if you can't find a workaround? Well, you didn't tell me I should find a workaround. What's the point Look, of having my own church if I can't brand the female parishioners on the thighs? That's the whole point. <laughs> Maybe the first thing, don't stop saying female ah. parishioners. Just say parishioners. See, this you is why not. I pay you the money. <laughs> See? This. this is absolutely right. This is great. This is why it should be. I... I now you're thinking. I don't know, David. Um, look, I here next week. In a couple of weeks, I've got this. I, I, I hope Hannah told you uh, this uh, longtime friend of mine named D Knight, the Marxist who D who I knew back in the day. D Knight. D K N I D E E. What's the first name? D E E. And what's the middle anyway, name? He's gonna he's gonna join us. Good. He's going to join us, and um, he'll he'll talk about his solutions for a better world. Good. And I will talk next week about the forgotten sex scandals because I'm sure that uh, this will hold. Because Madison Cawthorn only opened my memories to the scandals involving people like Wilbur Mills of Arkansas, Fanny Fox and Elizabeth Ray, Fanny Fox. Fanny Fox, what happened to her? Most people don't remember. He got away with part of it. Then he did something foolish. And of course, Roger Stone, the scandals involving Roger Stone and why he didn't admit back in 1996 what people were saying he and his wife were doing at swingers clubs. This is good, juicy stuff. With this, your ratings could go up enormously. Now you're talking. I like yeah. the way you think, Reverend. So our guest next week is going to be D. Knight. Oh no, no, it's sometime in the future. It's, it's. Uh, I think it's the next week, maybe. It's not next week. And do you know what I'm doing right now by saying D. Knight over and over again? I do not. I am torturing the chat room. D. Knight. No. D-Night. You know why I'm torturing the chat room? Yeah, no idea, because you told me not to look at the chat area. Because they want me to say his middle name is Znuts. Jeez <laughs> Nuts Knight. But I am not going to do a D's Nuts joke. No, of course not. not. You shouldn't. It's a pathetic joke. It's a pathetic adventure. Yeah, yeah. so I'm not going to give the well, chat I room. Am, 
I did, I did five stand-ups uh, in my entire life. You do stand-ups. You did stand-ups for years. Yes. You're a funny guy. I do have some questions about comedy, but there's only one I'd like to ask you before we leave. Yes. Um, Stephen Colbert last night did a series of jokes in his opening monologue about Ukraine, uh, making fun of the Russian army and how they have allegedly been using tree branches to cover up trucks and tanks and so on. And, you know, it was it was pretty good material. But I was sitting here with Joanne and she said, what do you think people in Ukraine think about these jokes? And I thought, I think they hate them. I mean, it, I think they got make, bigger problems than Stephen Colbert. Well, yeah, but, I think they do. But I mean, why would you? I, I don't know. It just it troubled me. It's like those the, the meme we talked about last week with the four uh, terrible Republicans dressed like women. It's just things. Maybe it's age. No, I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you what, what? happened. OK. O.J. Simpson, Jay Leno. 2005 no no 90 my god 95 95 the idea of making jokes that involved anything remotely close to death uh was verboten and jay leno uh broke through doing jokes about the oj simpson trial and right. at the time, a lot of people found it questionable and offensive. But he was the one, the Dancing Edos. There was a, a judge named Lance Edo. He had the Dancing right. Edos. And nobody had ever seen this before in, on television. The idea of taking a tragedy and finding the humor in it. Uh, and so, yes, there are... Something they as many as fifteen thousand Russian soldiers have been killed in those tanks. They say those are right. young young men. I would assume some women, young kids who were told this was a training exercise. They're following orders, and while I am rooting for Ukraine, I'm also rooting for the Russian people. And sure. I, I, there's a, the beast in me reads about these tanks being destroyed. And I say, yes, but there are young people in those tanks who, yep. and it ain't funny. Right. But maybe it is. To be continued. To be continued. The Thank Reverend you. Barry W. Lynn, go to barrywlynn.com to see a treasure trove of his sermons, his writings, his appearances on countless television and radio shows, as well as podcasts. Thank you, Reverend. Stay out of trouble, please. Only good trouble. Thank you. See sir. you next week. And 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 my best to your 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 wife. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Office hours this Friday night at 8 p.m. Now the question is, uh, let's go to Joe in Norway, 
who schedules office hours. He's also uh, going to be doing some ASMR for the eyes. It is the first Friday of the month. Is it office hours and hours? 24 hours of office hours. This Friday? Indeed. Yes. It's 24 hours of office hours. And who do we have? Who's signed up? That's a good question. I have not consulted in the list in a while, but I believe we have Professor Adnan Hussein doing his his uh, course, finishing up his course. Uh, we have Steve Kay doing a guitar lesson. We have Professor John with the Twilight Zone and his little Star Trek convention on a Saturday afternoon. And a few more on there. You can check the, the list in the chat. All right. Well, uh, I have to confess, uh, you're now going to be cooking. What are you going to be cooking? It is torture watching you cook because I had to get something to eat. Watching you cook, I, you give me a low blood sugar attack. It looks so delicious every time you do this. What are you preparing? I'm gonna. I'm all out of pickles again, so I'm gonna make some more uh, quick refrigerator pickles with these little cuties, and then I'm gonna make a, um, a Chinese a Sichuan um, uh, bruised cucumber salad with garlic and and black vinegar, and I'll be grilling these and grilling the eggplant for. Uh, this weekend's falafel that I'm going to make. Wow. Maybe whip up a little taina for, for breakfast, a little eggplant and taina for breakfast for the kids. Wow. Well, thank you. This is uh, ASMR for the eyes. Joe in Norway on the Q-cam. That's your cucumber cam. And we're going to watch you cook. It is time now. I'm going to mute you if you don't mind. And there okay. are, and there are we'll some... There, there's some openings left for office hours, right? If you want to teach, correct? If anybody wants to sign up, it's in the chat room. Well, it's time for the professors and Marianne. Joining us is Professor Ann Lee. Read her over at the Daily Co's, Annie Lee. Professor Jonathan Bick, he'll be at office hours Friday night to teach the Twilight Zone, and Star Trek. Professor Adnan Hussein, Chairman, Religion Department, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, host of the Mudgeless podcast, where Dr. Juan Cole recently appeared, and Guerrilla History with the newly married. Am I allowed to mention that somebody got married? It's out of the bag now, so. Henry Huckamacki, sorry, ladies. Sorry, ladies. <laughs> Henry, Henry Huckamacki is now married, uh, and he hosts Guerrilla History with Professor Adnan Hussein and Professor Mary Ann Cummings, our only elected official. We had uh, we had Katie Porter on the show, but once she got elected, she doesn't come on the show. You're the only elected official in America who comes on this show. You are a particle physicist as well as a brilliant artist. And we always go 
to you last, since it's the professors and Marianne. I figured we'd start with Professor Marianne first. Well, uh, I was checking the Twitters today. By the way, uh, our good friend Henry has complained that he's lost 12 Twitter followers since making the big announcement. Really? All those ladies. Yeah, he suspects. He says he's surprised. He says, I didn't know people followed me because I was single. <laughs> I said, well, the, Henry, you have fans. You never know that you have. Then again, he's in Russia, so those might have been American bots. Those might have been fake followers. True. Ameri True. I guess in, in Russia, they complain about the American bots. Yeah, mm -hmm. Paging Yakov Smirnov. Okay. Mm. We're going to do his so, bachelor party with... Uh, we're planning to do a bachelor party for him. Over the Zoom? Over the Zoom, I'm thinking of a Saturday night where okay. we, yeah. Sure. I go. Yeah. I may wear short sleeve shirts just to be, you know, it's a bachelor party. I would reveal, be a little revealing. So what is, you, you've been on the Twitters. What, what, what have you been saying? Uh, well, uh, there's a there's a vote going on over at Starbucks. They've, uh, I believe, they stopped counting the votes, but the yes votes uh, lead the no votes no votes by 354. You're talking about Amazon. 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 Did I say that? Okay. Yeah, there's a little bit of set to. Uh, I guess. Uh, I, I I guess uh, who is it? Crystal Ball has admonished the squad, in particular AOC, for not showing up to this. And apparently Chris Smalls and others have said that, you know, they, they feel abandoned. But and this is a very big deal. Um, you know, you would think that I think this is a very big deal that's going on right now. And I don't see a whole lot of it in the, in the press. But anyway, that's what I saw on the Twitters today. And but AOC, um, you know, when they were... Uh, striking when the Teamsters are striking out at uh, point wherever the vegetables. She go. She brings pizza. She, she didn't she go out for Christian Smalls? I can't imagine. Yeah, was, you know, she couldn't work it into her schedule this uh, this past week. I guess I'm being a little. I'm I'm maybe being a little harsh, but it seems like in terms of messaging and solidarity, the squad doesn't really coordinate to be a really effective you know, uh, visual, uh, to, to be a really effective branch of leadership. I mean, they should have just been, you know, pushing this nonstop. They just kind of, they, they seem to really have bought into some notion that, you know, they need to be good players or polite players in the Democratic Party and they'll get rewarded eventually, I guess, with chairmanships um, and, maybe one day get to be Senate, and maybe when the earth is just incinerated, uh, they get to be elected president. So, you know, this is, uh, I, I think the problem is that they, they don't understand power. I don't know if they don't understand it. I can't believe that, certainly somebody like Cori Bush, it's, I'm not cynical enough to believe that, you know, she was just being a branding exercise, but I think that the transition from people who are protesting or being movement leaders to actually exercising power is something we need to think about. And you need 
So you can't be, we, we tend to, as a country to, to focus on individuals. I mean, that's how we think about the world. We think about the world of good guys and bad guys. We tend not to think of movements because that requires a little more discipline, a little more understanding. And uh, so we want, we, likewise in our politics, I think a lot of us get a little lazy when we want to think in terms of saviors that we elected Barack Obama, thank God. The, the political situation corrected itself after eight years of uh, George W. Bush, and uh, you know that just didn't happen. That I was, who was it? Uh, as a famous politician once said, "Blame yourself." I blame myself for that. I was as guilty as everyone else, thinking that a tide had turned in 2008. So you know, and we just kind of let it go. And uh, you know, I think the next. And the reason why I am uh, working on a couple of campaigns this this year, because there are people who are still coming up as disappointed as we've been in progressive progress or non-progress. I mean, there's still people stepping up to the plate and people still willing to push further than the squad is willing to go. And, uh, you know, it gives me a little hope right. or at least something to do. But in the scheme of things. Mm -hmm. AOC is not the issue, is it? I mean, I, I don't think anybody, one person is the issue. Right. I think it's the idea that, you know, you don't, people, people don't see power. They don't see um, government for what it is. Why do you get there? You don't get there just to be a major influencer. You get there because there's real power at stake and leftists, or at least the left here uh, in the United States have been kind of reluctant to really exercise it because with exercising power comes responsibility, you know, and there's always the unknown. You don't know what happens if you decide to uh, vote as a block and deny Nancy Pelosi the speakership, at least on the first vote. Okay. Let me ask, yeah. go ahead. I, I could see Professor Hussein is about to say something. Yeah. Oh, well, I was just going to say that I, I think the bigger story is just appreciating um, the work that Chris Smalls is doing and um, seeing this as potentially a new wave of a new kind of organizing that is outside of the established uh, unions and um, I think uh, that's what makes this particularly uh, exciting and potentially radical is that this is really rising up from workers themselves, rank and file. Um, and that's, you know, you know, I think a lot more uh, effective. Um, they're able to communicate their message uh, much better. They're not constrained by the tactics of, you know, cut and paste outside union organizing. They're dealing with their colleagues, their friends, people they've struggled and suffered with. Um, and so I think this is a very authentic, I like the fact that he's just named it, you know, very anodyne Amazon labor union. That's my target. That's the workers that we're talking about. It's not, you know, um, you know, from another industry, um, you know, trying to come in and see a growth area or opportunity, but it's these workers themselves. 
concerned about their working conditions. And I think that might have a chance to be more successful. And I hope it's inspiring uh, to others. So um, I I, I really am glad to see this. I hope they win. And if they do, I think it's a marker, especially in contrast to what happened in Bessemer. Now, we still know that there was a there was a re, you know, um, revote. And it's not clear what will happen there. There's there are lots of ballots that would make the difference that are being disputed and maybe a couple of weeks before there's a final decision about that. Um, But I think the whole campaign um, has been run in a much more grassroots way that could be inspiring to people uh, elsewhere. So I'm very heartened by this and I hope I hope he's successful. You should have him on, you know, as soon as possible. Yeah, I sent him a note today and I said, even if it doesn't go the way you we all wish you showed us the way and he most certainly did. I want to just point out uh, who David A. Zapolsky is. He's the senior vice president, general counsel and secretary for Amazon. And Vice got their hands on a leaked memo detailing how Amazon should deal with Christian Smalls. David Zapolsky, it's spelled Z-A-P-O-L- S-K-Y. He's the is this a recent memo no, or is this the one from earlier when uh, he first initially ended up being fired? This was two years ago when he was initially oh, yeah, okay. fired. Uh, they decided to smear warehouse employee Christian Smalls. David Zapolsky said we should spin this by calling Christian Smalls, quote, not smart or articulate as part of a PR strategy to make him the face of the entire union organizing movement. In other words, David Zapolsky said, Christian Smalls, we should encourage him to be the face of the union movement. And they said it would work for us because he's, quote, not smart and inarticulate. That's uh, and tonight, Professor Hussein, it looks like Christian Smalls on Cesar Chavez's birthday has succeeded. Wonderful. Has succeeded. Symbolism. And please do make him the face of the union movement. He will be a lot more successful than many other exponents and figureheads for labor in this country. He's an authentic worker. He speaks clearly and directly. He would be a great face for the entire labor movement. People should rally behind him. Yes. And this is the face of evil. If you're watching in the Zoom room or on YouTube, this is the face of evil. Amazon General Counsel David Zapolsky, Z-A-P-O-L-S-K-Y, David Zapolsky, Amazon General Counsel, who two years ago called our Christian Smalls not bright and inarticulate. Uh, David, may I, may I point out that maybe uh, David Zapolsky is actually on our side? Oh, by, by saying that uh, Christian Small should be the uh, face of the union movement. Yeah, I have a feeling David Zapolsky is probably a racist. 
and uh, underestimated Christian Smalls. He's an inside so- man. He's yeah. an inside man. Maybe he's just taking uh, Bezos's money and <laughs> laughing all the way. I am so proud. I hope. I hope this holds. It's breathtaking what Christian Smalls has accomplished. Breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. Uh, what would you like to talk about? Let's let's go to Professor Ann Lee. I'm just going to keep David Zapolsky's. Uh, am I allowed to uh, shame the way somebody looks? Or is, are those days? I, I, I maintain the gloves are off with somebody like David Zapolsky. It looks like someone from Seattle. <laughs> yeah. He looks like the poster child for vitamin D deficiency. <laughs> looks like he's been indoors uh, in Seattle all his life. Uh, it does look like a pretty evil uh, glint in his eye. There's a little tint of red, at least on my screen. And um, that sort of fake smile looks like it's concealing some malice or evil behind it. So, yeah. It looks like he forgot to lock the crypt. <laughs> uh, but we don't make fun of the way people look. But if you think David Zapolsky is ugly on the outside, I pity whoever has to do his MRI because that's just just you got to wade through all that sludge. Uh, inside of him. What a horrible human being to call Christian Smalls not bright and inarticulate. Rot in hell, David Zapolsky. Although I think you're already there. I think that's, I think you took that job because you wake up every day feeling horrible. And the only thing that gives your life meaning is making other people feel the way you do. Rotten Hell, Amazon General Counsel, David Zapolsky, Z-A-P-O-L-S-K-Y. What would you like to talk about, <laughs> Professor Ann Lee? I should take this picture down because I'm. I think I'm going to throw a punch. Uh, well, I actually think there are worse people, um, like the woman. Is uh, it Baltimore? Uh, was just arrested. She was a uh, anti-abortion protester and uh, quite a fanatic, actually. And it um, it is that sort of strange cultishness. Um, oh yes, I know who you're talking about. What they found? They, she's a hoarder. Um, well, she's a hoarder of fetuses. <laughs> they found her with five fetuses in her basement. Um, she was being arrested not for the fetuses, although I, she probably could be charged on that as well. She was charged for blocking um, uh, uh, abortion clinics, and mm. uh, as I said, quite a fanatic. Um, but she was unhappy with the, the church that she created. Speaking of creating churches, and decided to become a Catholic. Um, and, not unlike uh, some people who join other churches because the Catholics aren't uh, conservative enough. But anyway, that's just the, the side. The five fetuses are pretty interesting. 
And similarly, they've uh, gone in the the Ginny um, Thomas case, uh, uh, <clears throat> Justice uh, Clarence Thomas's wife. They've uh, uh, pointed out that she used to be a member of a cult. Uh, they say I think it was before she married Thomas, and she had to be deprogrammed. Um, and speaking of shaming people. Uh, I think this, I don't know much about this particular cult, and I was just looking at a Twitter thing on it. Uh, apparently, uh, people would take their clothes off and shame each other's bodies. They would what? Was they would of, shame each other's they would, Yeah, you'd have to take your clothes off, and people would, you know, criticize you. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I, Wasn't I that best? I, I unfortunately have met people in cults, and it is quite interesting, the the whole construction of how cults work. Um, uh, I think the the work of Stephen Hassan is quite good on trying to, he, he was a member of a cult, and, and he's done some really interesting work uh, criticizing folks, not, not promoting deprogramming. Deprogramming is its own cult-like behavior, uh, but... Uh, uh, I, I just think it's quite fascinating, considering that with QAnon and um, the GOP, there's just incredible amounts of bizarre cultish behavior at work, um, and, and so strangely extreme that we'll probably get worse and more violent now that we've, uh, we're in a very violent period. And, and with all due respect, uh, I understand that, that uh, Will Smith, has some association, and I don't know what exactly it is, but he certainly gave John Travolta a big hug uh, on uh, Oscar night. I, no, I, this was all interesting to me. I mean, I was trying to look for what what was going on there, and it, it there's uh, uh, it's just a little weird. And so I understand this kind of assertive behavior is a, is one kind of thing you do. Uh, similar to the taking people taking their clothes off and other people criticizing you or shaming you, that that this is something that Scientologists do. I I have no idea, but uh, I've heard that there is this kind of um, kind of brutalizing that goes on. Right. Um, it's it's uh, uh, you know there many different groups do that. You know, I, I mean, you could in a political sense call it criticism. Uh, sessions, but I, I I don't think it's it's quite like that. Uh, particularly since it's not about I uh, not political in that sense. But anyway, so it's been an interesting day for strange cultural behavior. And uh, I wrote something earlier today about culture wars because we're you know it it, it it's just the strangest thing about why people would. And particularly Fox News, uh, why Tucker Carlson, et cetera, would attack Disney so vociferously, considering that, that Disney itself went through this kind of interesting historical period. You know, it used to be, aside from that they wouldn't sell chewing gum at Disneyland, and I assume Disney World, you couldn't buy chewing gum because it, it would, you know, it, it would create a mess. And so... There, there were certain kind of fascist elements about, right. about Disneyland in general. But early on, 
they used to have dances at Disneyland, and um, same-sex dancing was uh, policed or frowned upon. So, I mean, there was a very anti-gay kind of element until ultimately, I think, culture caught up with the Disney Corporation, and they suddenly realized that they would lose entire bodies of creative folks in their organization if they if they kept on with a kind of uh, uh, that. As it were, I, I mean, I would say that there are other fascist elements, uh, not unlike uh, uh, if you consider Kellogg and a variety of other other kinds of groups that that create kind of a, a certain communitarian ethos. Um, but anyway, so now there's the, the Disney is just simply being used as this uh, a scapegoat for uh, there's this guy Rufo who 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 is uh, a kind of in charge of this. Speaking of Seattle, to get back to the the Sapolsky guy, I mean, why are they in Seattle? Maybe it's Seattle that does it. it, <laughs> it, it it's it, it's all that lack of sun. Mm-hmm. That, that must be why why this happens. Anyway, so yes, it's it's a great day. Right, you're you're, you're uh, it is a great day. Uh, I want to ask Professor Hussein about cults I went, I, in a second. Professor John, what is on your mind, sir? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the media coverage of uh, Ukraine. Uh, I, I, I've watched some cable news lately, which is always a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's... Um, it seems to be wall-to-wall coverage of Ukraine uh, by people who want to escalate this war. They, you know, if it's, they want to give more and more weapons to Ukraine, larger, more sophisticated weapons, give them planes. Uh, there's a great amount of support on the talking heads in the media for a um, no-fly zone. Jake Tapper, uh, right? Isn't he... Oh, MSNBC, you know, which is supposed to be liberal. Uh, it's just from Joe, uh, morning Joe in the morning to um, uh, the person, you know, standing in for Rachel Maddow uh, at night. It's just unbelievable. I mean, I don't know if they're working from a script or, or what's going on, but it's very difficult to find someone that uh, is warning, you know, that those ideas are really very risky. Uh, You know, you're going to end up, I think, with one of three options. The first is that you have a ongoing conflict in Ukraine, uh, something like what was going on in Afghanistan uh, year after year, where the country is just ground down to dust. Or two, uh, you expand this war to include other countries and risk a world war. Mm-hmm. Or three, uh, you know, Putin reacts by uh, starting with uh, tactical nuclear weapons. And then, I'd, you know, I wonder how the U.S. would respond if he actually did that. There might be enormous pressure to do tit for tat, you know, and then it, that could escalate into a nuclear annihilation of us. So, 
it's it's hard for me to imagine what these people are pushing for you know I, is it that they just have this narrative of good versus evil and it's you know that's driving um their ratings up because they're they're covering this war and you know maybe some of these outlets are owned by the same companies that own the defense industry uh, contractors it's um it's really mind-boggling i i don't know i and how susceptible people are to it that's a that's frightening as well and, and not only uh u.s propaganda but russian propaganda uh, you mentioned earlier that the polls in Russia are showing growing support for Putin, not not diminishing support. So how you know it's how effective this kind of propaganda is if it's just constant and well, it looks like it's coming from different sources, right? Uh, because everybody's saying the same thing, so that must be the truth. That, that's very uh, disturbing well, to me. Two questions on this. Go ahead, Professor Marianne. No, uh, you know, many years ago, I think it was well over 10 years ago, I remember very distinctly uh, Julian Assange's statement on Afghanistan. He said Afghanistan and the ongoing war, which at that point had been going on for 10 years, which seemed like forever. He says this is nothing more than one big money laundering operation. You have a war and you can transfer, you can A, loot, and you can then B, transfer wealth from your citizens to, you know, the people who basically own this government. So what are we discussing here in the United States? Another raise for the Pentagon. Uh, they wiped out like $13.5 billion for COVID testing, for COVID treatment. Uh, you have to, now you have to pay $126 dollars if you're not insured for COVID tests. They're talking about food shortages here. They're talking about, you know, they're talking about a, a neocon and neolibs wet dream of an upcoming budget. Ah, and what can we do about mansion and cinema? You know, it's just, it seems that they're droning into us an acceptance of things that are of conditions getting worse and worse when these are just policy choices that people are making right now because they know exactly 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 and and i'm i absolutely agree with you uh professor bick you you know it's just the coverage of the war is like a coverage of a michigan ohio you mish ohio state game it's very you know russia is always losing and we're winning, and they're flying the flags. If they showed at least a fraction of some of Patrick Lancaster's videos, who is he? He's the American that's been living in the Donbass region for several years, married to a Ukrainian. I'm amazed he still has a YouTube. He'd been, he's been reporting on the war for the last several years, and now he's in Mariupol. And if you got exposed, if most people got exposed to just a little bit of these videos, all enthusiasm for war will drain because it just shows how ugly, how people suffer, how this is just, you know, why are we doing this right now? Right. But, you know, that's not what we see on MSNBC. It's still pageantry. It's still, you know, 
it's, it's still entertaining for people. Stephen Colbert is entertainment. People wearing the yellow and the blue, that's entertainment, that's branding. It's easy. Diplomacy is hard. Now, little right note that they seem to be some serious negotiations going on in Turkey that are actually yielding some results. That's what I'm hoping for. Professor Hussein. I wanted to actually talk a little bit about the negotiations that took place in Turkey, but to follow up on Prof. John's point about the coverage, you don't see a lot of coverage of the details of the negotiations or characterization of what progress has been made, where there might be sources of disagreement that need to be worked on, but where the sources of agreement might be and, you know, raising the possibility in a realistic way that there could be a peace deal and an end of the conflict, um, you know, fairly soon if people got behind it and tried to push for these negotiations to be successful and built public sympathy for them. I mean, frankly, the American public from polls that I've seen don't seem to be that concerned with the war. You know, overall, they're more concerned with the economy and there will be a lot of economic effects of this war and the disruption. And they don't necessarily have great confidence in, you know, President Biden's handling of it. So it would seem that like media accounts of this conflict should be focusing a lot more on these negotiations. But you find hardly anything you know, really substantive and where you do find stories, say, for example, in The Guardian, a left wing, you know, outlet, presumably uh, they're reporting on, um, you know, peace negotiations is, you know, about peace talks between Russia and Ukraine to resume on Friday, says negotiator. Kiev and its allies suggest the Kremlin may be merely playing for time to allow its military forces to regroup. In other words, um, peace talks are, you know, a mirage. It's just a prelude to more war. There's going to be more war. So instead of, but if you actually look at uh, the quotes from the Ukrainian negotiators, they say, well, we think that the Russians are taking seriously. They did come to agreement on a few points. You have to go to pl other places in the international press to really find out the details of what they're discussing. If you look at Turkey, Turkish English language based newspapers, you see that they're reporting that, you know, Erdogan even just said, actually, that his understanding is that um, Ukraine is not going to insist on NATO membership. I mean, this is a big sort of deal. OK, and especially if we want to um, propound the principle of sovereignty, that it's Ukraine's decision about what it wants to do, what military alliances it wants to be a part of, the very fact that they would be willing to say we will stay neutral and not join NATO seems to me to take off a very big question. The areas that there seems to be Couldn't disagreement. Couldn't they have said that before the invasion? Couldn't America have gotten them to say that before Putin went in? 
Of course they could have. If they if they said you're never going to be part of NATO, you should, you know, try and make a deal uh, to be neutral uh, and guarantee your security under some kind of regional security umbrella and agreement. I mean, this clearly could have been could have been done. But I mean, the point is is that there are precise issues that they have discussed. Some of which they found agreement on. Others are a little more thorny. But this should be considered a hopeful sign that it's possible to conclude uh, an agreement and an end to the conflict. But nobody wants to talk about that in the Western press. I mean, Ukraine did agree to those terms or similar terms back in the the 2015 Minsk agreement. It's just that they've never implemented it. And when and, and when Zelensky looked like he was beginning to, he got a very harsh backlash from the right-wing extremist groups and even the so-called moderates in the parliament. And I think he's, he's now got a conundrum. I mean, the, uh, the left-wing press here, like the nation and the Israeli press has covered the fact that there's a big problem in Ukraine with these extremist groups having way outsized influence on policy. And that's kind of, that's the needle he's got to thread if he's smart, if he's situation. smart, sorry, sorry to interrupt. If he's smart, Zelensky, he will send those people to you know the Donbass and other areas so that the Russian military can take care well, of them, and then he can conclude a, an actual peace deal. Actually, that's what he—that's what he's doing in Mariupol in, in, yeah. in the Donbass. Exactly, all, all of the right-wing militias are are defending territory right up against the Russians. So I, I think that's part of the complexity of this. Mm-hmm. And and the Minsk agreement suggests or demands that they have a bigger role. And I think he was a much, much weaker before before we get to any peace peace settlement. And and there's a lot of spin. And then the latest spin, which is more interesting to me anyway, just because it, it, it has an even weirder spin is that Roman uh, Abramovich, the guy who owns uh, Chelsea FC, he's attending the talks in Istanbul. Now, why the hell is he there? You see, that's a whole nother set of weirdness. But he, but he, but he got purportedly poisoned like a couple of days ago. No, no, that was a weirder. month ago. I think wasn't oh, was it a month, month ago? ago? I thought it was like a week or two I ago. Thought, I thought it, it was. I that, thought it was this last week that he got poisoned. Oh, okay, it was more I recently think. than that. Okay. And, but why and, was he, who was he representing? Putin? Well, the, yeah, that's the whole thing. We don't know who he's really representing. The oligarchs. They're the ones yeah. who really have a stake in all of this. <laughs> the other thing is uh, the Ukrainians do a, a certain segment of them, and that's they had like five legis- parliamentarians talking to Congress today. And they were just yelling about their weapons list. So that's, you know, to address John's point, there, there's just a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of varying interest groups at work here. Right. I you have to remember, I think it's hard for some liberals in this country to understand this, but when parties go into negotiation, they always make a big deal of their maximum asks. 
not the Democrats, but everybody else on the planet, when you start bargaining, you start from a position that's going to be probably a lot more than what you know is going to happen. And that may be for political purposes, but it's also just, you know, a, that that is a standard bargaining tactic. You, you need to be seen that you're willing to give up something sub, substantive to get, you know, your major priorities. So, yes, as, as uh, Churchill used to say, jaw, jaw, not war, war. And I, you know, I want to see these guys talking. And that's the best. That's, that's the best we can hope for. Otherwise, given anyone who claims, like Rokana did today, that giving, just throwing more weapons is there. It's, it's just more Ukrainian death and suffering. And people here are willing to wow. just shed every last drop of Ukrainian blood to get at that evil Putin. You know, it's kind of frustrating. There's so few anti-war or pro-diplomacy voices. Even, well, you know. I, I, you know, Russia is just making adjustments, you know. They, they sent a lot of conscripts and cannon fodder in there, and it turned out to be totally screwed up. And now this, quote-unquote, withdrawal it's not really withdrawal it's the repositioning they're just you know they're and and then they conscripted 130,000 uh conscripts that, and obviously they're not going to throw those into battle what they're doing is is they're they're just filling out the areas they're going to train the, those people elsewhere and just move their their whatever troops that were available combat ready troops back into the fight so there could be a whole new set of offenses you know, there could be a big offensive coming up this this coming week. And I All agree, it's still about oil. Push these talks. All, yes, all, all the, the while we're having peace talks. That's, you know, it's just getting, and unfortunately, it's still about weapons. It's still about military-industrial complex. It's still about fiscal policy. Ultimately, it's fiscal policy. That is, all the transfers of soviet era weapons from nato to the ukrainians what new things are they going to get and you can see this in 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 the european press what's going to happen that what they want is brand new shiny american weaponry of you know advanced radars uh uh they're they're and and in fact on the on the weapons list today it wasn't about migs it was about F-15s and F-16s. That's what they really want. No, our and oligarchs they, are at the table, too, apparently. Yeah. Well, no, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what it's going to be. And the way that the U.S. can do that is to transfer its stocks from our National Guard to to the Ukrainians if they were really going to do this. They're not supposed to do this, so they should do this. But the whole point is that that boosts the production of F-35s down the road. So it's still a huge boondoggle. For, for the American military-industrial complex. My, my question is, uh, how can anyone look at the performance of the Russian army here and with a straight face say that Putin is going to take over Europe? I mean, that is ludicrous. He can't even take over Ukraine and and people are saying, oh, next thing is going to be Poland. Then he's going to go into Germany. I mean, come on. Seriously? Well, the the, mili- the U.S. Was- military over- overestimated what the, the Russians were capable of. 
and everyone's got egg on their face. And, no, well, their well, job well, but, but was to over, overestimate it to sell more weapons. Right. Yes. Right. I, and they've been doing that. that do. th that's been the case throughout the Cold War and afterwards. Bingo. Yes. Bingo. The, the Soviet Union was never anything more than a regional power in terms of uh, its military. Uh, but the U.S. constantly overinflated its military power. Uh, you know, th there's the whole idea of the missile gap, which was a lie uh, during uh, Kennedy. the Kennedy administration. He, yeah. Kennedy made up the missile gap. Right. Uh, when he was running so, against Nixon. Yeah. So th this has been an ongoing practice to justify these ever inflated budgets. And what's happening is that you're seeing an acceleration of the U.S. and European states moving from welfare states to warfare states. They, they are Germany is rearming because of this. Uh, they're going to be increasing the amount that they're giving to their militaries in, in the European countries. And that I'm sure that's going to come at the expense of the welfare of their people. Yep. Yep. But but it's still unfortunately, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, but but it is, quote unquote, good for the economy in terms of fiscal policy is sadly to say what well, the problem is that the revenues from that are not going to get redistributed in terms of social welfare. That's that's the whole it's just going to go into corporate pockets, regardless of the country. That's that's where this is totally absurd. And yet it will unfortunately help drive down inflation with all due respect. And and people are worried about it. and they're willing to do that now because even the 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 pocketbook things are going up. We have the increase in, in mortgage interest rates. Uh, it's just it it's just happening and it's really screwed up. And yet, you know, we're in the same damn cycle that we were literally in the 50s and 60s. War and inflation. So, so you're saying case. Oh, go ahead, John. I just wanted to clarify, uh, Professor uh, Ann Lee, uh, are you saying that um what effect do you think this this additional military spending is going to have on inflation? Well, it's going to drive some of it down. That's the whole point of the use of fiscal policies to reduce certain elements of inflation. The problem is that it doesn't get redistributed. It only goes into corporate pockets and into in, into military industries. It does get redistributed the way we, we do it in the United States because of pork barreling. In other words, it gets redistributed across the states. So it's good for our economy. The problem is, in case of Germany, it doesn't get distributed that way. What, why does it cut inflation? Yeah, that's the part I don't understand. Well, if in a Keynesian model, increased fiscal policy, a military economy can reduce inflation by, you know, by making things more productive. By, by increasing income and revenue for certain sectors. It, it, props up the, it props up certain sectors of the economy. It makes it more productive, only, but only in certain sectors. And, and there's no and multiplier given, effect. If money is right. given to the military, it's not passed from hand to hand. It, it slows, it, right? 
Right. And it doesn't affect consumer goods in, in terms of, you know, where I'm not, you know, I'm not running out and buying an F-35. Uh, you know, it, this is, even though it'd be kind of cool to fly one around, yeah. but, right. it, you know, it, uh, the consumer goods don't get the benefit of that, right? It's like Tang and, and Teflon, you know, you, you don't quite get the distribution in the, in the consumer economy. So while you're propping up part of the economy and it helps out banks and financialization, et cetera, it doesn't affect the thing that really drives an economy. And that is, at least at the present moment, consumer goods. So you're saying, just so I understand this, because Professor John, I think what Professor Lee is, I understand is you're pumping money into a very specific sector of the economy that benefits the banks and the military industrial complex. But the economy writ large is not awash in excess cash. So there's no inflation. Right. Well. I would just say that. um, And yet Vietnam, they say, caused inflation. Yeah, I mean, it's still money going into the economy that otherwise wouldn't be. Right. So I'm not sure why that would have a deflationary effect. But uh, but but the main thing is, um, uh, I think that this inflation is at least a significant part of it is being driven by supply chain issues. And certainly uh, military equipment, high tech military equipment is going to be using things like computer chips. It's going to be using rare earth metals. It's going to be using, you know, all of these things that are this where the supply chain has been disrupted. So I I think this might contribute to inflation. In the short run. But I I, I think what what we're trying to get is the promise of more cash, et cetera. Now, the other way to approach it is simply, you know, start selling off uh, seized yachts and stuff. And it's certainly, <laughs> it's certainly clear that we can redistribute lots of sanctioned things. And, and I think that that's what we really want to do. Certainly that should come first. But I think the, the militaries of the NATO countries want all these new toys. Ultimately, that's still, I think, on their minds. I got a question for Professor Ann. Um, I just yeah. looked because I was curious that the ruble seems to have recovered like to its pre-invasion levels. That yes, coupled sure. with the, the willingness now of countries to consider doing trading oil and paying for oil in other than dollars. I mean, that's, that's got to be having, that has got to have an effect well, it, it's because the Russians wanted to get all their payments in rubles rather than in a you know in a reserve currency. So there's a little bit of back and forth going on right now of, of how they're manipulating currency. So this is we're in a kind of weird area. I think we'll it'll be clearer in a month or two whether right. depending on on where where the war is in, in that sense. But I think the idea of whether whatever happens with the war, I mean, there seems to be kind of a realignment. There seems to be, you know, this Eurasian type of coalition that is willing to buck the petrodollar, that's willing to do banking outside of the Western banking institutions. And it's certainly doing trade all over the world, 
far more widespread than the U.S. is doing trade at the moment. Well, that's that was indicated today when Lavrov met with uh, uh, Wang, the the his opposite number. Uh, there's a lot of this kind of and, and then there was the trip. I mean, he's been doing like shuttle diplomacy. Lavrov's been doing shuttle diplomacy. I mean, he's in New Delhi now. So there's a lot going on in, in the Lavrov is, is Russia's foreign minister. Right. Yes. Yeah. He's I mean, I was tracking. Yeah. And I was I was looking at that ruble issue as well, because India, he's in New Delhi, India has done business with the Soviet Union in the past, uh, has had a good relationship. Nehru always tried to avoid committing himself entirely during the Bandung 1955 conference. The non-alignment movement got launched. He was the, one of the main figures behind it, and he wanted to be able to continue to have positive relations with the Soviet Union. This current government is continuing with that sort of historic geopolitical alignment they're prepared to you know purchase russian oil in rubles they're doing so the day that they announced that they intended uh you know uh their oil or natural gas to be paid for in rubles the ruble started recovering and it's just been going back up and up over the last few days he's given they've given a deadline of april 1st for europe um, to if they want shipments um, of oil to continue, that they'll have to be paid in rubles. And it's not clear yet what will happen there, but 30%, 40%, something like that overall um, comes from Russia for the European Union. So, you know, the question is, is what are they going to do if Russia decides we're not going to send it for free because we will only accept payment Um uh, it's a game of chicken and yes. you know we'll see tomorrow who blinks because tomorrow is april 1st they're gonna need it's still winter they still need heating oil um and so that's going to be very interesting i think professor marianne is absolutely correct that there is a realignment going uh taking place and when you impose when you kick out russia from the swift system you're simply requiring them to find other ways you know to make payments and to secure financial transfers and inter interactions and they are starting to do so and so this is the case where if you want to bluster and push them into a corner you've got um you know one of the world's largest economies in china seems to be cooperating and collaborating with russia um they already announced a historic agreement um a couple of months ago two three months ago um they said that we have a you know a friendship between these two countries that is a relationship without limits in other words we could go in military alignments and economic arrangements and so on uh, you have these two starting to cooperate and they've been the center of the response to u.s sanctions on so many countries, you know, there's, you know, Iran, um, uh, you know, Russia has been under sanctions before the Ukraine war. Um, you know, there, there is a whole, you know, Sudan, Libya, Syria. There's so many countries that have been in Venezuela. There's so many countries that have been put under this sanctions regime by the United States that there is a large 
um, you know, group of countries that have an interest in devising some alternate system. And, and the more the U.S. has pushed these unreasonable policies attempting to isolate more and more other countries, the more they're overplaying their hand and they're going to enable the end of the petrodollar, you know, the, or at least as the dominant and only you know, way in which financial transactions can happen for for oil payments. And, you know, the whole financial architecture could be broken up. What we're seeing is perhaps stress is being put on the age of the neoliberal moment when the U.S. was the sole single superpower and global hegemon. After 1992, we had 20, 30 years there where the U.S. was relatively unchallenged. Now China is a challenger. Um, and um, we're seeing, you know, that maybe that era is over of U.S. globalization. Instead, there will be regional affiliations and alignments and the world is going to look really different. Um, and so we're, we're accelerating it. You know, I think with this war, um, we're accelerating that process if we don't actually if we want to maintain, you know, the system that we have, I think it would be to, you know, the U.S.'s benefit and, you know, to uh, conclude a peace agreement soon, you know, and not, you know, enable an entirely different, you know, uh, system to, to emerge as a counterweight uh, to it. Uh, agreed. I, I don't want to sound like an accelerationist, but in some ways, this whole experience does reveal all the cracks in the system that it, it reveals the corruption underneath uh, the, the thing is that russia did have a fair amount of surplus i don't know how many hundred billion dollars surplus that that they had a cash cushion even though from a supply chain point of view there's there's starting to be shortages in in the russian economy so the problem is it's it's all becoming real now. You know, there are dead bodies. I mean, if it really is 15,000, that's a hell of a lot of people who died. I mean, there was clearly an effect from from Afghanistan and, and, and Chechnya uh, in, in terms of people. I mean, conscripts and people dying. So that did have a cultural effect. I think that there, those elements are at work as well. But I agree with you. I think that America needs to rethink all of these kinds of policies on the one hand it could could result in reform on the other hand it could be we could get a fairly quick recession if this war goes on too long uh when you talk about the decline of america i hear that a lot i think of patty chayefsky network the ned Beatty speech which i just put out in front of me. Uh, the famous, you have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale. Uh, you are an <laughs> old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems, one vast interwoven interacting multivariate multinational dominion of dollars petrodollars electrodollars multi-dollars reichmarks rins rubles pounds and shekels there is no america there is no democracy there is only ibm and itt and at&t and dupont dow union carbide 
and Exxon, those are the nations of the world today. That was Patty Chayefsky's network in what, 77, 1976 or 1977? Isn't that the truth? When we worry about the decline of empire, the decline of America, as Patty Chayefsky writes, uh, when the Russians get together, they're not talking Marx. They're coming up with plans uh, on transactions and investments. Isn't that well true? Well, in, in network, this comes after the I'm mad as hell, you know, and I'm not going to take it anymore sequence. And it's before the network decides to hire revolutionaries in order to create on-air content. Right. So I think we're we're right in there. Uh, we have people who are willing to just give you this. The mainstream media gives us these sort of images of blown up buildings and, and refugees. But the reality is, you know, there's a lot of other revolutionary activity going on. There's the Wagner Group that's in East Ukraine. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. Right. <laughs> I don't know if the Syrians have gotten there yet, but it, it could be very strange very quickly. And why is why are these wars being fought? I, I understand partly because it's the military industri industrial complex. We just need wars to feed the weapons manufacturers. I understand that. Why is Putin doing this? Ukraine was a weak target. It's the poorest country. I, I'm sorry, I interrupted, Marianne. Uh -huh. Um, no, it, it it was an easy target. I, I think this was the moment where he thought he could get away with it. Putin is a, has been called the richest man in the world. He's maybe worth a trillion dollars. We're being told he's in isolation. He's mentally ill, all that stuff. Why does he do this? He is a country unto his own. He doesn't, he's worth a trillion dollars. He doesn't need Russia. He doesn't need Ukraine. What, what is, the, what is going on here? Why would he do this? Well, the question is why is he only doing it now? I mean, he could have, he could have uh, invaded, he could have declared, let's put it this way. He could have recognized the breakaway provinces immediately as they happened. He waited eight years, or the Russian parliament waited eight years to finally recognize him. And that was a big deal. And that was one of the more disturbing things I saw, that things might change. Um, Russia wants security. It's pretty clear. I mean, the Minsk Accords, what was articulated at the time, it's not hard to understand what they want. Noam Chomsky, if you want to get some background on it, Noam Chomsky had a, an interview with Amy uh, with, with democracy now and and just kind of explain the whole thing and he was also talking about all of the rhetoric going on like he's quoting people in major journals saying that putin is mentally ill putin is having a nervous breakdown you know it's like they're they're bringing out all the tropes that they did and i have no idea i don't know anybody knows how rich putin is nobody knows how rich uh zelensky is either and it's kind of the point of these offshore accounts that they all set up that, you know, they are notoriously opaque. So we don't really know what's happening. So I think that 
the, the military people that I've been reading for a long time and respect, you know, have look at Russia and they see a very predictable, very, you know, very rational set of concerns. Doesn't matter what you think of Putin personally in terms of a nation. And if Putin, if we overthrew Putin, why would you think anybody who replaced him would be right? Wouldn't even be more ruthless. Right. Well, there's, there's so much. Yeah, I'm, can I jump in here? Because I, I know. Oh, please. I, I, oh, please. There, first of all, first of all, you guys are spinning out something that, of course, points to, uh, you know, a pathway for Putin to have maybe constructed, maybe not intentionally constructed an empowerment of Russia through a bond with China that would make him emerge from this almost looking like a genius. Right. However, I, one thing I'd, I'd point people to is a recent Jacobin Radio Jacobin interview that Susie Weissman did with Boris Kagerlitsky. I don't know if anybody knows Kagerlitsky, but he's sort of been remained a, a left opposition within Russia. And he felt that uh, Putin was weakening domestically and that this did have a lot to do with domestic policy. Um, and as somebody's put in the chat that his poll numbers have gone up. But um, I, I want to the one thing I do know more clearly, uh, because I think this is so dynamic. It could go in so many different directions. And I think you're pointing to some very significant things, including the potential bond between China and Russia that would very much strengthen the hand of Russia as the United States is losing its grip as the imperialist hegemon. But think also about what happens to the domestic politics of the United States with two things on the horizon. One, the Republicans win one of the houses of Congress or both houses of Congress in the midterms. That completely... Um, ties the hands of the United States government, except at the executive level and internationally still at the executive level, to move with any kind of, uh, uh, you know, lateral capacity or just be uh, abrupt in the way they respond to crises. So clearly, then, the Chinese model and its capacity to address crises is much more fluid, much more agile than the American system to respond to crises. Secondarily, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is a piece of uh, there's a case in front of the Supreme Court called West Virginia versus the EPA, and it's probably going to be adjudicated in the midsummer. And it basically will, again, tie the hands of the executive branch in terms of executive action, will limit the executive's capacity to do executive action. So you'll have an American government that is completely in a logjam in terms of a congressional legislation. You'll have an executive that can't act. No executive. Yeah. Right. You'll have you'll have the Chinese Communist Party able to say to the world, we can address, we can make change, we can make things happen. We can improve people's lives. This American system is just broken. Okay, so I don't think Putin would have seen that coming. But boy, the the idea of an alliance between Russia with all of its natural resources and China, that's a straight up threat to America's empire right now. And it's happened very quickly. Right. Mm. So I, I got a question for Ellen. Um, do you think that uh, Biden's tanking poll numbers is finally going to push him left? Hell no. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> no, I think that I think you can see. Well, I mean, Manchin, look, whether he would have gone left or not, first of all, his poll numbers wouldn't have been tanking if he hadn't if he had been able to pass the legislation. You know, you look at Mark Kelly's vote yesterday. Did y'all hear about this? Mark Kelly joined with Manchin and Cinema to yeah. sink a nominee within the Labor Department. There were more people backing Manchin and Cinema with 
the Democratic Party than just those two. There certainly were the group of 10 within the House who could have defeated the legislation at the House level. There's things that a president can do by executive order, and particularly an aggressive one that would use a worldwide pandemic as a national emergency and, you know, expand Medicare, Medicare for all, cancel student loan debt. I mean, there's a lot of things that an aggressive leader could do that would be wildly popular. And even if it was blunted a little bit by Congress, just seeing him fight would be a real, I think it would be a real energizer for the Democratic Party. He'd better act before the Supreme Court acts because Judge Roberts can't even side with, uh, you know, there's five judges against him in terms of, uh, you know, ruling in favor of West Virginia and the capacity to utilize executive actions to impose regulations on industry. And that can be extended and challenged by Republicans across the board on executive actions, though probably I've been told not extending to foreign policy. We, we have to wrap it up. Last question. Getting rid of Clarence Thomas. There, there were calls to impeach Earl Warren. Uh, if it were if the shoe were on the other foot, would the Republicans be trying to impeach Clarence Thomas? Wouldn't that be their bet? Shouldn't they be impeaching Clarence Thomas and forgetting about Donald Trump? Isn't that the best way to save this country is to get that Republican pick off the court right now? Go just go after Thomas and destroy him and get him out of there. They knew they need two thirds in the Senate to uh, remove him from the Supreme Court. It's not going to happen. Good point. Good point. Well, thank you, professors and Marianne. Uh, but before you go, let's go to Norway, where Joe is standing by. And let's find out how the cooking went. He does this in an hour. He should have a restaurant. You, you, the speed. Oh, I got a lot of prep done tonight. Yeah, your sous chef helps, but <laughs> the actual cooking is remarkable. What'd you make there? Look at that. So this is a grilled eggplant, a roasted eggplant. I just did it on the, the stovetop. And then I made the taina, taini sauce with pomegranate syrup, some pomegranates and tomato and a little of my sourdough bread with my special uh, everything seed mix, which is a mixture of um, uh, white and black poppy seeds. Onion you say seeds. puppy seeds or poppy seeds? Pop, poppy seeds. Puppy seeds. Uh, fennel, so are... fennel and salt. It was it from a Rottweiler or oh poppy seeds? I'm sorry. Okay. Poppy. And then this is a, a smashed cucumber. I don't know if anybody noticed. I, I beat the pulp out of this cucumber. You damaged the, the cell walls to uh, extract more flavor, and then it's in a. Uh, soy, black vinegar, and uh, sesame oil dressing with garlic. This is fantastic. Amazing. And some pickled grilled peppers and the rest of the eggplant, which I'll probably make falafel for office hours this week. Fantastic. And when do you get your Norwegian citizenship? I've got it. I have my ceremony coming up in May. Wow. So, uh, you got out. 
you got out. I've got health care. It's amazing. I feel like you're like a prisoner who, who is out, is out. padded walls, padded yeah. walls here. You got out of the prison. You Velvet, broke free. Velvet cuffs. Yeah. Congratulations on your dual, you. dual loyalty. Thank you, Joe in Norway. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. Thank you, Jonathan Bick. Thank you, Professor Annie Lee. Read her over at The Daily Co's, Annie Lee, A-N-I-L-I, -I, right? And Professor Adnan Hussein. Don't forget to listen to the Mudgeless podcast where he talks with uh, informed comments. Uh, Jesus, I, I just... Had a uh, freshman Juan moment. Cole. Juan Cole. Had a freshman moment there. Dr. Juan Cole and Gorilla History with the recently betrothed Gorilla History. Uh, 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 Henry Huckamacki. Yes, it's been a long day. And before we go to Alan Minsky and his special guest, let's go to Dave in PA and his trusty helper, Chad. What are we going to be making, Dave? Uh, good evening, David. Uh, thanks for having us. Uh, Chad Chad had to lose his Lucha Libre mask that he's been wearing. He's starting to get pimples on his forehead and his hair is really <laughs> just starting to stink. We didn't want to say anything, so, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, he's coming around. But I can't find his helmet, so uh -oh. he's going to have to, like, background on this one. But uh, my... Anybody who's watching last week realized that this bowl that I was turning got maple blown wood. off the That's lake. maple wood, right? Uh, no, that's walnut. That's black walnut. Okay. You could have just said yes, but go ahead. You have right. to shame you at least once. Okay? Right. Um, and so anyway, I it, what happened was it blew off of here. I caught on something that blew off of there. And so since since this is a bowl for nobody, it can be whatever shape I want it to be. So I'm going to re-grab, return the bottom, re-grab it, and try again while you uh, talk to Alan and his guests. Thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. Thank you, Dave and PA. And we'll talk about this uh, later at the end of the show. Well, Alan Minsky is executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. And Harvey J.K. could not make it today. That's his bedtime. It's, yes. So you brought a special guest. I did, and um, I, I, I invited Melissa Figueroa. You guys know each other. We once, I remember we once went to uh, Piquito Mas together, right near um, Joe's Falafel Place. Yes, um, yes, right. Yes, and uh, and Melissa now lives in uh, adjacent to Paradise, California, which may be better known to people these days than Chico, California, where she actually lives. The fire. Were you part of the? Well, just to set it up. We'll say about that. Talk about that in a second. But um, she actually works um, in coordination with uh, a brilliant partner, uh, a work partner of hers, um, Ali Metters Knight, who just testified in front of um, a branch, a wing of the House Oversight Committee. What's the proper name of that it's subcommittee? The, um, subcommittee on Environment um, for the from the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. And Laura Kana convened that. Carolyn Maloney is the head of the Oversight Committee, mm -hmm. and. Um, um, it was a her her um, testimony was brilliant. Her exchange with a number of the people there, um, very notably with AOC, were, was spectacular. And it was about well, Mel can explain. 
Um, so she now lives in Chico Meldas with um, with uh, and works with the Machupta tribe, which is the the, the land of, of uh, Chico area is Machupta uh, land. And, uh, you know, let Mel take it from here. Mel, before you do, we have an yes. artist's community here, a lot of painters. What is the beautiful art behind you? What is so that? the beautiful art behind me is painted by um, my friend Ellie Mitters Knight. Um, so she is a traditional basket weaver. She is a traditional ecological knowledge practice, practitioner, a master practitioner for her tribe and an artist. So one of the reasons, um, so one of the things about California that not a lot of people know about is that there's nothing natural about California. All of that big forests and nature that we're all used to, those majestic pines. Um, that's not actually what California is supposed to look like. 98% of California's um, native ecosystems were damaged and removed. Oak woodlands were removed. 95% of riparian habitats were removed. And of course, up to 95% of um, the stewards of those landscapes were removed um, through the active genocide of California natives. Um, and so, um, you know, when we're talking about environmental restoration in this place, um, a lot of times people don't actually know what a healthy forest should look like. People don't know what a healthy fire adapted, drought adapted landscape should look like. So it's up to Ali in her mind's eye to paint what she knows. And so- So you can't um, separate, you cannot separate climate catastrophe with genocide that the two are absolutely absolutely right. um one of the things that you know ali talks about one of the things that we talk about here is that you know for for california natives the gen uh, the the climate apocalypse happened 180 years ago the ecological apocalypse the end of the world happened 180 years ago so you know when i work with tribes and and i you know look at um native communities and what they you know what what people are working for what they want it's, um, you know, it's it's looking at people who've already survived the end of the world. Right. And so, you know, I'm not indigenous to this territory. Um, my, my family is indigenous to the Eastern Visayas Islands in the Philippines, but we have an indigenous culture. And so in many ways I can, it's a different culture, but we have kind of a similar grammar to understand the world. Right. And so um, in that, you know, I realized that I too come from a people who survived. Right, the genocide of the Philippines in 1901. Right, it's the reason McKinley was killed. Um, it's you know uh, the 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 land that burned was my father's island. So you know I come from a perspective of people who survived as well. How many so how many uh, people died after the Spanish America War in the Philippines? So a lot of accounts say um, maybe fifty thousand. Some accounts say up to 1.2 million. Right. General Jacob H. Smith of the U.S. Marine Corps um, famously issued the order on my father's island to kill every Filipino male above the age of 10. This um, was after we supposedly ended the Spanish-American War. Yes, that was from 1901. And actually, on my mom's island, the war lasted till um, after 1911. So, um, you know, there was a fierce resistance because we don't give up that easy. We kill Magellan. So, <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that, I mean, and, and what's so in weird is that 
you know, looking at the history of this place, um, I see that some families of the people who came here to California to commit the genocide, their sons went to the Philippines to commit genocide on my people. Wow. So, you know, we have a connection that way. And, you know, a lot of colonized peoples have a connection that way. Why was it? I'm sorry to go off on a side oh, road here. Why, why was America committing genocide in the Philippines? There, there was an uprising against the colonial power, and this was how we subdued. Yeah, so the, the hearts and war, minds. Look, this, we have to look at it in context. The Spanish-American War was the United States' big moment as an imperialist power. Right. You know, 1886, you had the Berlin Conference where the European powers basically carved up, you know, Africa and, like, gave a slice here and whatever. And, you know, at that point, the United States was going through this. You know, they'd gone through their, the, you know, the Industrial Revolution, and, you know, they had colonized already to, you know, from, from sea to shining sea. And then, but what was happening is that they, of course, because this is capitalism, the market needed to grow, right? And so they needed more markets for raw materials. They needed markets to disrupt other uh, um, colonial imperialist powers, right? A lot of what Spanish American War is about cutting off those trading routes, cutting off the sea routes, right? The, Phil the Philippines and Indonesia held the keys to China, right? So it was all about you know, um, uh, well, much of what's going on right now, right? A lot of geopolitical repositioning, right? At a time when the global order is changing. Right. So the U.S. is a relative latecomer to the imperialist game and Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines were what they had their eyes on uh, as overseas well, Hang on for one second. Mm -hmm. I thought it was all about the main. They blew up the main. <laughs> right. And, and World War One was about Archduke Ferdinand that got shot. Right. Wow. Like that. Every, so many people love that guy that, you know, the whole world went to war when he got shot. <laughs> so it wasn't to to avenge the sinking of the main. Interesting. OK. <laughs> Turns out it's a bit more complex than that, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, you don't see the whole game going on. You just see that little pow explosion that happens at the end of that tension i thought Kinda they like blew the up the main in cuba right? but the weapons came from the philippines and it was planned in puerto rico and that's why we were just i'm joking around uh let's talk about what you wanted to talk about alan and mel what 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 is well you we have to unmute your... hey just to pick up first of all ali couldn't be with us tonight unfortunately um just said you know everybody has days where they don't feel that great and and so hope Ali it feels better and hopefully Ali can come back but I really do encourage people if they can find it uh to uh, look at the exchange between her and AOC on that committee it was pretty pretty incredible and again you know obviously you Melissa just reviewed you know some of the hard realities of of the you know, tragedies of the history of the society we live in it's abominable of course um but um, I felt that Ali's testimony was the most hopeful things I'd heard in ages. You know, I mean, if you if, if we're locked into this just seemingly this crisis of the climate emergency that can't be addressed and people are looking for things that can inspire and, and, and begin to imagine a way out of this and talk about, you know, humanity painting itself in a corner 
tighter and tighter and tighter. And I really thought that uh, what's really presented there um, just makes so much sense and really to be applied all around the world. I mean, humanity was living in harmony with the planet not that long ago, uh, most of the Earth. And the vision that Ali paints is an inclusive vision that welcomes everybody to participate in reimagining a world where we're not devastating this planet. So there's that. The second thing I wanted to say, and of course, Ali, I, I hope you get better, but also, um, and Melissa dropped it into the chat, which is great. I do want to mention too, um, the, a book by a UCLA professor named Benjamin Madley. And for all of us who live in California, um, you know, when people think about uh, the, you know, because of Hollywood, when you think of the indigenous genocide, people tend to plant it around, you know, the, the um, North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, down in Arizona, and of course, the pilgrims arriving, the eastern seaboard, Columbus again. Not too many people think about what happened in the state of California. And the book American Genocide by Benjamin Madley is about the genocide of the indigenous people in the state of California. And uh, it is history that most people <laughs> who live in California currently know nothing of. Right. And that's absurd. Of nothing and it's you got to read it it's eye-opening and it speaks volumes about the culture that that we inherited from the settlers yeah people should read it american genocide by benjamin Matthew. great great and up in chico how is the homeless situation because we hear about climate refugees the the fire in paradise i mean displaced 52,000 people. Um, a town of 26,000 in paradise it was not the only community that was um, impacted by the fire, but there's only maybe 4,000 people maybe have come back because we don't know because there's a lot of corporations that are buying up houses and flipping property up there. So we don't actually know how many people actually live up there, but it's about 4,000 um, residents as of last count. So. Yeah, there's a lot of climate refugees here. Chico has the highest per capita homeless rate in California, and that's saying something, right? And um, yeah, our city council can is probably as cruel as can be. In it's terms a beautiful, of I remember Chico being a, a beautiful college town. And like Berkeley, it's riddled with unaffordable housing. Absolutely. And, and even more so uh, since the fire. So I moved up here about six months before the fire. And because I got priced out of the Bay Area, actually, I was right. living in, in Richmond at the time. And, you know, I couldn't afford to to live there anymore. So I packed up my van, went out there. Well, actually, I went around the country for I was van lifing it for a while. Ended up in Chico because, um, you know, I had friends here and I hadn't met Allie yet. Um, but, um, you know, it was a place I could land because it was relatively cheap. Then the fire happened, and now uh, we're basically where we were in the Bay Area when I left. And you know, I still can't get housing. I live in a trailer in Allie's driveway, actually, um, and you know, which works out because we work. You know, we're working to build this program for workforce development for restoring California forests with uh, tribal knowledge and tribal training and perspective. And um, you know, so. You know, I'm committed to that project, um, which is why I really want. But but, you know, this is the point is that um, a report just came out. There are 14,000 fewer jobs in Butte County since the fire. There are people living on our streets. There are 
um, there have been, I think, something like um, 60 deaths of unhoused people in just this past year in Chico, uh, from people having heat stroke, from people freezing to death in the winter. And so, um, you know, the, the, the city when it has, has, just, um, has just lost its second federal lawsuit for violating, um, you know, the, the Boise, um, Martin versus Boise for cruel and unusual punishment. Um, or what they basically tried to, they tried to build a concentration camp for the homeless people out by the airport on the gravel in 120 degree days. Uh, when that didn't felt, when that, when that didn't fly because it was completely inhumane. Um, now they're constructing the pallet shelters for the very first time. Like, and folks, you know, in the community, we've been lobbying for this for like, you know, years, you know, it's been four years even just to get a bathroom, a public bathroom open that the unhoused can use. Um, and they still haven't opened it. They're citing delays and all kinds of stuff. So there's a lot of disaster capitalism. There's, um, uh, but there's a, a good movement here. A lot of great community, a lot of good people doing good work. So. Right. Homelessness. I think of, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, the big studio executive, who a year or two ago went on a listening tour to find out why there's homelessness in LA. How could you run a studio and be that stupid that you have to go on a listening tour to understand why there's homelessness in L.A. Is that willful ignorance? Is he pretending to be stupid? This is an interesting question because, you know, I mean, I've, I, I've, I know where the, how the other half lives. I've lived poor. I've been around rich people. <laughs> I've never been rich, but I've been around, you know. And, you know, I honestly do think that there's something about being in a bubble, especially in L.A., right? You're west of Fairfax. Uh, you're in a bubble, you know, uh, you're west of Highland, you're in a bubble, right? Um, but if you're um, in the hills, and if you're in the hills, you're in a super bubble. You're a super and bubble. I, I, I know too right? much about you. I know, I know some of them people <laughs> used to hang with. So, right, right. Yeah. Mel went to a super elite school, but I'll say that's another. It went well, I, grew, I, I lived in Burbank. I went to, uh, I was a scholarship kid on the west side and I went to music school in South Central. So um, I'm an L.A kid you know mm -hmm. but and but i had the you know weird um this weird upbringing that made me kind of go between the worlds so um i understand that you know when you're in the west side i mean you might be like abstractly aware of issues and you know perhaps you go to venice or something like that but like like you know th there's something different than like but, 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 but jeffrey katzenberg you know? I'm, I'm sorry. Jeffrey like, Katzenberg yeah, yeah, yeah. can read a newspaper. He has cognitive ability. He buys and trades stocks and homes. The reason there's homelessness is he owns four homes. Yeah. His friends yeah. own five homes and they don't want to build low income housing in oh, yeah. their neighborhood or in any neighborhood. They don't <laughs> want to pay more taxes. They don't want federally subsidized housing. They don't want free yeah. housing 
for people. They want to commodify a human right, shelter, create a shortage of shelter to drive up the prices of real estate. He knows that. He knows that. You don't get that. gentrification without gentry, right? Right. He knows why there's homelessness. Yep. So yep. why do they pretend not to know? We well, I'm pretty sure he got he had a good deal coming with that documentary, right? Is he doing um, a documentary on homelessness? Or I don't know. The, what I, I can't remember if the film, you know, whatever whatever he's doing, you know, he's going to make some money off of it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, but the like the, I think that there is a weird kind of exoticization and fascination that, you know, people call it poverty porn sometimes, right. you know, when uh, you do have people of privilege that are like, you know, they kind of have their own ideas of what how poor people live like, you know, and then they go hunting for that. Like they go hunting for the Majos and the, you know, thing. But, you know, a lot of times there's the, the reality is a lot more complex, you know. Right. As I like to say, there's two kinds of people in this world, people who have experienced not knowing where, where their next meal is coming from and those who have not. Right. And right. I think there's like a, you know, there's something in that experience that I think builds empathy. And, you know, maybe he was seeking an empathy like that. Maybe he didn't know how, you know, I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to be generous here. Right. But um, maybe he's just a piece of shit. Maybe he is just a piece of shit. Right. I mean, yeah. like there's people who like know and then they just don't care. Right. You know, it's like when people kind of double down on being, you know, offending or harming people, then you're just like, OK, you know, right. I, you know, that's who you are. Right. I thought one of the things that surprises me is you think we all think like an accelerationist that, oh, OK, COVID, a million people are going to die. That's horrible. But will come to our senses and they'll be single payer. No. Joe Biden, no, not going to have single payer. As Professor Marianne points out today, through executive order, he could declare a national emergency and we could all have single payer. Won't do it. Doesn't care if you live or die. Basically, that's not complicated. I can hear That's certain capitalism. <laughs> but we're talking about Joe Biden, yeah. our president. And if you say he doesn't care if we live or die, I can hear my friends saying, why would you say that? Why he's would so you? Nice. Yeah, he's so nice. He, he was he nice to my dog once. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I think there's a difference between you know, the, how you act to somebody on, on a personal day-to-day -day level and the systemic violence that is occurring all around us. Systemic violence. So tell me about the Absolutely. work you're doing. Is is this being supported by the federal government or, or yes. Gavin Newsom? She has a big grant from Michael Bloomberg. No, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, maybe we'll go for that Leo DiCaprio money. I don't know. Uh, but, but this is a thing, right? Ooh, uh, uh, are you getting help? Because Harvey JK isn't here tonight, but he often talks about the CCC under Roosevelt, which put yeah. a lot of out of work people. Absolutely. And yeah, it, it, in the in the in the New Deal era. 
you know, it put a lot of people to work, Civilian Conservation Corps. Unfortunately, now the CCC is basically dominated by prison labor. And so when you say CCC nowadays, parts up here, um, people think land management is a punishment. And that's, you know, a huge thing about kind of how we cognitively look at our landscapes. Land management is considered a punishment, right? Um, prison firefighters make less than a dollar a day fighting the wildfires in the summer and risking their lives, right? Some of the, the, the fuels management work that our crews do, you know, it's backbreaking work with chainsaws and piling and cutting all day, you know, going up you know, steep, steep terrain and, and everything like that. Um, the thing is, is that we have devalued uh, land management work um, to basically landscaping, right? right. Um, you get a sheet, you get your thing, you go into your tractor and you, and, and you just mow over it and to make it look like what they say that you want it to look like, you know? Right. And land tending, so an indigenous approach to forest management is incredibly different. It's night and day, right, from, um, from the way that it's kind of done right now, right? The um, uh, land tending was done because well, that's what you did. It was life. It was normal. If you don't take care of the land, then it's not going to take care of you. And in California, a place that is dominated by environmental disruptions, climate change, it's funny because in California, we had had volcanoes, right? 40 million uh, year history of California, there's volcanoes, there's earthquakes, there's droughts, there's fires, and there's floods, right? One of the things people have, settlers have only been here in for 180 years in California. But there's a flood that comes every 200 years. You wouldn't know that if you've only been here 180 years, except for people who just got 1862 was the last time that, that the flood came in. You know, it comes like clockwork. And um, that's where old Sacramento was destroyed, right? Leland Stanford had to take a rowboat to San Francisco, the temporary capital. And the untold numbers of 49ers died in that flood because you know of course it's a gold rush <laughs> where are you gonna where are you gonna put your little cabin up by the creek right and it's very interesting because you you hear um accounts of that flood and they say that the natives mysteriously disappeared shortly before the flood you know like it was some weird mystical thing no it's a a, a flood that comes with regularity there are signs there are things it's a it's basically an el nino system merging with a polar vortex snowpack that happens the the you know you get a it's it's science this <laughs> is right. basically what it is and you have people who have been on that land and know the way it works for 20,000 40,000 years of course they know when it's going to happen and go to higher ground you know it's interesting because you see stories of like gold miners going in to the places that natives abandoned when they went to higher ground going hey look free land and going right up next to the river right and then getting washed away these are one of the things that we're looking at in terms of looking towards the future looking for climate change climate change adaptation right um, the USGS knows about this. Look up arc storm scenario, right? It's the trillion dollar disaster that's going to hit California guaranteed. And so these are the kinds of things that we have to look at. We have to look at making our landscapes resilient, um, propagating native seeds and native plants and restoring our forests with native plants instead of timber plantations, right? Because native plants are food and medicine and things that happen when there is a disruption, right? 
Um, and so these that's the kinds of things that we're looking at. And California tribes are relatively unique because of the genocide, right? There's not a lot of big reservations where native communities kind of live separately from everybody else, right? So that, that creates, um, you know, this, this sort of double bind, right? One, native people do not have access to land, right? If they don't own land, um, they have to have access to public land. And that's what sort of we're going for right now. There's 180,000 acres of federal forest um, in Butte County where I live alone, you know, um, and there's a lot of public land up here. Well, that public land is held in trust by the federal government. It's ha has, and, and the federal government has what's called a trust responsibility to sovereign tribal nations, right? Um, sovereign tribal nations, uh, re federally recognized and state recognized, right? There are 109 federally recognized tribes in California, 59 state recognized. Um, those tribes have jurisdiction over those federal lands. They're the landlord. <laughs> That's how the trust responsibility is set up. And so the difference here is that, uh, and, and you know, going back to your question about how we get funding, can we do this within this intransigent Biden administration, is the Biden administration doesn't have a choice. You know, um, the tribal, gov uh, tribal nations are sovereign governments and they are federally federal entities. They have access to federal programs and now because Biden actually owes something to Native communities, especially in Arizona, right? Remember, Arizona, like that's that's who put him over the top there, right? So he does have, a, you know, he has, yeah, and he's a horse trader, you know. And he, if Biden might, you know, is probably is, you know, doesn't have a heart, right? But he is a horse trader, and he knows. And so, you know, and with Deb Holland and the thing, there's 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 money that is being. Uh, um, uh, recognize there's money but the thing is is that nobody else recognizes that tribes are governments and so they'll tend to pass tribes over oh you're just that little community group oh how sweet yes let's do a land acknowledgement and yeah we're just going to go like you know frack over here or put the dam up over here you know right. Right. and so part of it is that tribes have power and tribes are exercising power all over the nation um, it's uh, it's up to us in the non-native community to recognize that, to fight for it, and to do whatever it takes. You know, if, if you're a bureaucrat in a in a public agency, you have um, power and and you have a duty to consult with your local tribe, right? right. There are 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States. Everywhere you are, there is a tribe, and that tribe has jurisdiction. So if we can get used to the idea that we have a city government that whose whose regulations we honor, we have a county government, a state, a federal, and a tribe, right? Who with whom we must consult when we make decisions about land, that opens the door for a lot of workforce development. Of course, tribes are stepping up to the plate, and we do need that help, and we do need that support. Um, I say we, but because I'm working with a tribe, but right. you know what I'm saying, but is that, you know, um, uh, normalizing the, the, the state authority right, of tribes as a government entity goes a long way towards actually healing this planet and healing the relationship of the non-native community with indigenous people. So today is a good day because it looks like Christian Smalls his Amazon labor union succeeded out on Staten Island. That's what we're being told. 
that we're going to finally have a oh. fulfillment center in America that is union christian smalls pulled it off and uh he's a friend of this shows and we've been rooting for him and today is a good day today Woo! yep today is a good day most days have not been good this is a good day this is a major victory well, in, eight, in eight minutes be careful what you say because it'll be april fool's day i know that's why i want to get that tell me since it's a good day uh, the joy that you get from working with the First Peoples and what you've learned uh, restoring the forests. Absolutely. But what is the joy? So the, what is the joy you get? The bedrock of our program, and I'll put our um, website here at um, tekchico.org. The bedrock of our program. What is the website is again? Tekchico.org. It's traditional um, ecological knowledge. Yeah, traditional ecological knowledge. Um, and so there's a 17-acre park here in North Chico called uh, Verbena Fields. And um, it, it it was a dump uh, in a rock quarry that helped build uh, Highway 99. And um, uh, then the city was trying to decide whether it was going to be low-income housing or a park. And, of course, the people in the subdivisions were like, no low-income housing, let's make it a park. And so... Um, but, you know, the city was trying to look for some partnerships. And so Ali and the Chupta tribe basically signed an MOU with the city to do native restoration in this park. So for 12 years, she's been almost single-handedly um, uh, uh, tending the plants in this park, you know, planting native plants, helping them survive. Um, for the last about year and a half, uh, we have done weekly Friday community work days where people in the community are free to just come out from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And, you know, there's a task to be done that day, whether it's building willow walls so that you have erosion control when the when the when the winter flood rains come. Or now we are picking wildflower seeds so that we can have more wildflowers. It is beautiful out there right now. It's blooming the lupins, the poppies. And so we're starting to, you know, we're starting to gather seeds, um, you know, people People who come every day, every week, they really, you really build a deep relationship with a specific place. You know, like I know the trees, you know, I go, I know which trees I check on when I go there. You know, I know um, we just had the first cultural burn, so indigenous burn of um, deer grass in Vermina Fields for the first time in 150 years. This was a practice that until 1978 was banned uh, outright by the federal government um, and up until a week ago, right, needed tons of permits and grants and all of this stuff. Well, SB 332 was just signed in the state of California, which allows cultural burners to burn just with the permission of the landowner and to revive those traditional practices. And um, I mean, uh, I'll put those videos. I still need to update the website and put those videos up, but it's it's incredible. I can't tell you how healing it is. A lot of people say it's their therapy, you know, to come out to pay reparations to a tribe by helping them take care of the land um, by using native seeds. You know, we were just having that discussion about the global currency debacle. Seeds are currency too. seeds, you know, and seeds are real things that help to feed us and to nurture us. And when you develop a relationship with a place by taking care of a place, it it puts you in touch with being human 
and what being human is in a way that I don't think a lot of us have experienced in our life. Well, and I, anybody can do that, even if you're not indigenous to the place that you're in. Well, I hope you come back. It's great to see you again. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and next time I will definitely bring Allie. That would be um, great. She can, she can explain these things way better than I can. So. Fantastic. Thank you. Let's give yeah. your website out again. It's techchico.org, T-E-K-C-H-I-C-O.org. Thank you. Melissa. Thank you. And thank you, Alan Minsky, Executive Director of the Progressive Democrats of America. And this is a good day. Today, it, it looks like Amazon finally has a union fulfillment center, thanks to the hard work of Christian Smalls, AmazonLaborUnion.org. It looks, what are you laughing at? Oh, just the just the the jibe at Harvey that Mila put into the oh. into the chat, uh, and it looks like Bessemer they didn't win. They're doing a recount. They're asking, I think they're challenging about a hundred ballots, but I don't have much faith. Was the, was the result better than last time? Yes, but fewer people voted. It was closer, but fewer people voted. But that union is not like Amazon labor union. There's a big difference. Uh, what a great celebration of Cesar Chavez's birthday. Thank you both. Uh, and please come back. Dave and PA, we have to wrap it up. Dave, you were doing our ASMR for the eyes and- Yes, sir. Why don't we look at your how you salvaged the I want to say maple wood, but it's 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 walnut wood. Right? Uh it's maple walnut. How about that? Okay. Your favorite flavor of pancake. Thank you. Um well I managed to salvage the outside. Uh it's beautiful. Put that put that nice lip on there. There you go. Yeah. A nice lip on there. And then uh, I'm just finding the right size chuck so I can mount it and we'll turn the inside, say, next week, maybe Monday or next Thursday. Right. And then we can cut Pete Rose's hair with it. Hey. That's how Pete Rose cuts his hair. It's a little bowl on his. And how's Chad? Where's Chad? Here he is. He's he's totally stoked about Staten Island. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. And Fire Island, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they know him there. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, plug Bertie. What is your uh, bed and breakfast? Bertie's Country Cottage. Tinyurl.cc. Bertie's Country Cottage. You can also find it on Airbnb. It's a, I think it's listed as small country, re- small farm retreat in Millerton, Pennsylvania. Millerton, Pennsylvania. I'm here to be here in May. Yo. Yeah, you can do the uh, Finger Lakes Wine Trail. You can go to Corning Museum of Glass. You're not far from Ithaca, New York. Uh, Grand Canyon of Pennsylvania. It's a nice nice part of the middle of nowhere. I I, I look forward to coming up, and uh, Dan and I are planning a series of crimes, and we'll be hiding yeah. up there shortly. Thank you, Dave and PA. Yeah. Liam McEnany said, uh, express some interest. That'd be fun for you two to bunk here, wouldn't it? That would be funny. That, <laughs> that would be fun and funny. 
the the always pleasant Liam McEnany. Bring bring pictures next time. Will do. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, that wraps it up. That's our show. Thank you all for uh, accommodating my schedule tonight. We had to start an hour early, hour late. All right. Uh, thank you to Grace Jackson. Follow her on Twitter at Grace Jackson and listen to Lit Literary Hangover. Thank you to Marshall Allen. Go buy his book, Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win. The Hershenfelds, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, and of course, Ethan. Go download or stream Thug Thug Jew, Ethan's amazing comedy special on YouTube. It's close to a million views, so let's get them up to a million. Emil Guillermo, listen to the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He's also a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Barry W. Lynn, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Go to barrywlynn.com to see his sermons and his appearances on countless television shows. Thank you to the professors and Marianne. Marianne Cummings, follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl. And uh, read Professor Ann Lee over at The Daily Co's. Annie Lee at the Daily Co's. Jonathan Bick, Professor Jonathan Bick, will be at Office Hours doing a, another lecture on the Twilight Zone and Star Trek. It's 24 hours of Office Hours. And of course, Professor, Professor Adnan Hussein. Listen to the Mudgeless podcast and Guerrilla History. And of course, Melisa and Alan Minsky, thank you for joining us. Thank you to Joe and Nor Norway for cooking for us and Dave and PA. Uh, thank you to the people who helped put this show together. We can't do this show without them. Dan Frankenberger, Sarah Bush, the brilliant Andy Brown, the brilliant Professor Jonathan Bick, Grace Jackson, the Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, and Hannah Feldman. They all make this show possible. We can't do this show without them. Please come to Office Hours. Meet better people. Come to Office Hours. It's Office Hours and Hours, 24 hours of Office Hours. All you need is Zoom. I think that was a song by the Beatles. All you need is Zoom. Go to my website to sign up. And if you'd like to sit in our virtual studio audience on Mondays and Thursdays when we tape this show, while you're over at my website, sign up to attend a live taping. You can ask questions, join the chat room. And uh, while you're over at my website, sign up for the newsletter. We have a YouTube channel and the Invisible Ninja and all the people who are helping out produce this show are cutting up episodes and making digestible morsels, highlights from the show. That's the easiest way to share uh, what you like on the show. And we have in the description of the podcasts timestamps, so you can just click on various parts of the show and find them. 
please join us live on YouTube Mondays and Thursdays starting at five o'clock if you don't want to join us in the Zoom room. I think I've covered everything. Give to Rahima.org. Rahima.org. That is it. That is it. Thank you to everybody in the chat room. you do a great job keeping me honest. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comics too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. Just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. So sad, David, when the kid named after you turns out to be such a disappointment. I tried to get Don Jr. to switch names with Ivanka. They wouldn't do it. I wanted Ivanka to be Donald Jr., but Jared wouldn't allow it. He didn't want to be married to someone named Don Jr. And Don Jr. fought it tooth and nail, too. He wanted to keep the name. He thought it meant that he'd have to be married to Jared. We tried to explain it to him, said it's just a name. We got a professional name swapper to explain it to him, but he didn't get it. He didn't budge. He said, I want to, I'm angry. I want to kill an elephant. Not a bright boy, (laughs) bad namesake, bad, terrible namesake, like Fred, like Fab Five Fred. Yeah, that's not nice to talk about your older brother, Fred, that way. Okay, well, listen, David, his daughter has been very unfair to me. Very unfair. Very unfair. Nasty woman, nasty woman. Very nasty. Sad, sad, nasty. But let's talk about Dr. Mary Trump. She has a PhD in in clinical psychology, Mr. Trump. Psychology, psychology. You know, I've never been to a shrink, David. You've never been to a shrink. Never never... been to a shrink, David. That is hard to believe. I know, right? Because I'm so, I'm so well adjusted. I amaze people by how well adjusted I am. No quirks, no anxiety, no paranoia. I took a well adjusted test just a couple of years ago, David, when I was president. I got an A plus. Most doctors said, I was the most well-adjusted president in history. 
doctors were amazed. Every doctor I meet is amazed, amazed. They always want me to meet their psychiatrist friends because they say they've never seen a man as well as Justin as Trump. They all want to study Trump. Every shrink wants to examine me. They want to learn the secrets of my well-adjustedness. <laughs> you're the, yes, you're the exemplar of mental health. Every doctor, David, I meet, everyone wants me to go to a shrink. I mean, they want to study me, I guess. When I was a kid, doctors told my parents that I had a fascinating brain, David. It would be a shame not to share it with the psychological and psychiatric community, David, but we decided against it. I'm incredible. I'm, I am the most well-adjusted president ever. No imaginary enemies. I'm loving and caring and filled with grace. That means I can share with others the divine gift of salvation, David. You probably don't know what grace means because you were raised by the money counters. I love those people, the money counters. I love them. I love them. That's a nice thing to say, Mr. Why, I, what, I called you a money counter. I love, I love the money counters. My daughter became one. We need you people. I'm not sure that's, that's, you're perpetuating a stereotype. David, what are you talking about? The money counters have no bigger friend than Donald Trump. Can we talk no about your friend? Weisselberg, right? Is a money yeah. counter. <laughs> Chief financial officer of my company. Terrific money counter. Wouldn't flip. They arrested him, but he won't talk. They want him to flip, but he's not a rat. He's not a rat, David. He just looks like one with that nose. Chairs in this Bessemer shop Back and outdated Don't ever seem to stop The man went down Cause his heart gave out Get back to work We heard them shout They said the EMTs are coming That's what they're for And life slipped away On the cement floor The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my raid in all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place
my dreams were bold Now every day my life's controlled Last year we had a meeting and they made us go They gave us all pins that said vote no But maybe this year union can give us a little more And put some chairs on this Bessemore floor I'm hoping the union might make things right Some days I just don't have the strength to fight This plant down here can take its toll It'll break your body, it'll crush your soul Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop Rodrigo, Rodrigo, before we go. Hi, David. Uh, I'll try to be quick. I was watching an old episode of This Revolution podcast with Jim Bagelan and Ashley Frawley as guests or a friends, uh, Jason and Pascal. And she said something that I've only ever heard from me before. Uh, we all think this to one extent or another, but we should be all be more cognizant of this structural reality. What am I talking about? It's pretty simple. Uh, we tend to think and believe and tell people, no matter how much we think, we're far left that there's too much corruption in capitalism and Bernie Madoff and the Terranos women are symbols of the corruption. What we should be explaining to people, however, is that Bernie Madoff and a handful of others getting caught is the anomaly, because the entire system is set up to constantly produce new Bernie Madoff characters. The system isn't broken because of how many Bernie Madoff copycats we know about. The system with all the Bernie Madoff types that have not gotten caught is how the system is supposed to work. This is what the system looks like when it's working. And as leftists, we should be helping people understand that a system full of con men competing with each other is the world that we live in. One of the related ways in which we fail as the left is this nonsense of white people rejecting equality because they think black people want some kind of special treatment without realizing that we have a bad system because most white people struggle too. It's hard to see it unless you have black friends, but we don't have a system that privileges all white people. We have a system that pretends the extra struggles everyone faces are being mostly aimed at keeping black people down. 
Pascal knows the statistics better than I do, but the crap that black people have to go through gets in the way of lots more not so rich white people than it does black people. There's people out there that we used to believe were real leftists, but they're currently worried that Trump wants to collude with Putin again. Which is what happens when you keep reinventing the wheel instead of coming with us to study Marx's capital, for example. Uh, some updates from Mexico, if there's time. Uh, the Mexican president has directed three political parties to take Russia's side in public, only one of which is actually his. He's also getting ready to amend the Mexican constitution in a way that violates international law because he really wants that sweet, sweet strip-mined lithium money. Yet another genius decision that defies classification. And I have a couple of pictures I took a couple of weeks ago of political flyers that break electoral law, but I haven't uploaded them yet. I'll try to share them later. And please uh, look for Melissa Lucio, M-E-L-I-S-S-A, L-U-C-I-O at the Innocence Project. Read about her extremely sad life and share her story before she gets executed at the end of this month, at the end of April. Thank you. In what in what state? She's in Texas, where right. the DA that sent her today is currently serving 13 years. The DA is in jail. Yes. The man who decided that she should face the death penalty because she did not react when her baby died in a way that the cops liked. Okay. Thank you so much, Rodrigo. I think I've frozen. Did I freeze? Yes, I'm frozen. Can you hear me? We, I can hear you, but there's no video. Hang on. Now, can you see me? Yes. Now you can see me. Now I can say goodbye. I need a new computer. Okay. Thank you, Rodrigo. That's it. Show's over. That's it. I'm done. Good night, everybody. <laughs>